Hello and welcome to another episode of the Underhive Law Keepers podcast, the number one Necromunda Law podcast recorded live in front of an unwilling audience of our wives. As always, I am Spamiel, and to my right, the maleficently mutinous manvent, Nathan. How are you, buddy? I'm good. The the what? The the what? The how now, Mandel? Mal- maleficently mutinous. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah and that's, that's... going from our previous episode, you said you were going to one day get me to actually explain what these words meant to you and the audience. <laughs> now, the dictionary tells me that maleficently, it means causing harm or destruction, especially by supernatural means. Right, cool, and cool. mutinous means <laughs> refusing to obey orders of a person in authority. So basically, you're burning stuff down and ignoring your betters, and you're a manvent. Right, cool. So, But it's, it's, it's mind magic. Mm. Oh, yes, no, excellent. So for the three listeners that have remained listening to the podcast <laughs> after that rather dull explanation, hello, welcome. Yes, yes, yeah, please. I, <laughs> it's, been, it's been great entertaining you for these seven <laughs> seconds. Um, right. How am I going? I am doing quite well. I'm still battling a little bit of um, Nurgle's blessing, which is a bit of a cough I've got. But other than that, <laughs> life has been onwards and upwards. Uh, I'm a little bit stagnant on the old gang idea. Um, I've had quite a few, but nothing... That's truly, truly been inspirational. So even though we talked about them in the episode, I've been like, I just want something to to dig the claws into. So I'm, um, uh, oh, for use of a better term, just a little bit of an idea funk at the moment, but that's all right. What about yourself, brother? I actually have a question for you. Do. Uh, do you know how many needle weapons mm. come in the Escher weapons and upgrades to broke? <laughs> Because I do. I have them right here. It is two needle rifles and two beautiful needle pistols. Why? I, I don't know why I would have them. But let's just say uh, the Timmy Town Locos have been on a little bit of a recruitment drive. <laughs> I, 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 I want to see this game, but at the same time, I just have no desire... To, to come up against that kind of craziness. Uh, just the, the idea of basically forcing the opposite gang to become drug, a drug afflicted is, is just, I don't know, even in the darkness of Necromunda, you've made it extra dark. It's extra a dick nasty. move. It 100% like a, is. Like I said, it is a dick move. And you know what? I'm all about it. I've I've basically spent the entire time since we recorded the episode just reading about it. I'm just like, also, I really need to learn the rules because apparently it has been really obvious to everyone but us that you can just shoot drugs at people. Really? Um, yeah, app- apparently everyone does it. Do you know why I wouldn't do it? Because I'm a good bloke. I'm a nice guy. It just doesn't seem very nice. Weird because I, th- I thought I was the one who won best sports three years in a row at uh, Akramunda. Mm, yeah, cheated at I'm least gonna, twice. I'm just going to take a sip of this uh, delicious tea. And yeah. Anyway, before we uh, 
allow this to degrade into something that (laughs) (laughs) ends up with me crying again. It's been a it's been a big read for us this last couple of days in preparation for the next three episodes. It has indeed. This is this has been a a massive amount of information gathering and a lot of reading and a lot of sparking of ideas. But um, yeah, it's been been quite full on. But I I really love I love what we're reading as well because it is really cool. It is all about the Aranthian succession as promised, um, and particularly for this episode, our focus is a Cinderac burning. And like we said in our last episode, uh, the next three episodes, so the rest of December as well as the first episode of January, are all going to be based around the Arantian succession, with each episode being based on one of the books. And we will be wrapping up the Arantian succession after those three episodes with a gang episode. Uh, that has a huge focus on the succession itself. I really hope it's Vansar, but Nathan still hasn't given me back the episode I wrote. So I'm wary. Uh, and in fact, he's he's got a very disgusting smile on his face right now. So I have but a feeling it's not going to be You were very Vansar. close to getting them back, but then you mentioned the uh, Arkham Under 3 Pete for best sports, so... Bad luck, buddy. Um, well, okay, that's my own fault, and I suppose I'll have to wait another episode to hopefully be nice to you during the opening of that one. Um, I doubt it. But before we jump into our episode here, there's a couple of little uh, housekeeping things we need to bring up, and the first is actually the return of a little bit of a fan favourite segment, the Spamuel Corrections. I haven't had these for a while, have we? Um, They've been really good. We're apparently not so much. Um, I have two here. Uh, a fella by the name of Lachlan slid into our Instagram DMs last night and hit me with a little bit of knowledge. Now, me being the charismatic and um, people person that I am, basically immediately went, you dummy, Lachlan, No. And then Lachlan came back with, no, Spamuel, you were the dummy. So, do you remember back in the Escher episode, we mentioned Manvents, uh, and quite specifically saying that it was rare that, they, that Escher men went into their second great cycle. Yes. Now, you and I, based on something, I was convinced I'd read this somewhere, a great cycle, sorry, a... A grand cycle uh, was 10 years. So we were like, a lot of these Escher are dying about, you know, 20, give or take. Mm-hmm. A grand cycle is one year on Necromunda. Oh. And Lachlan slapped me with that. And I'm like, nah, man, you're thinking of great cycle. I'm talking about grand cycle. And, you know, we're just chatting. And he goes, well, actually, Spamuel, you enormous dummy. Uh, House of Iron, page 72. I'm like, oh, okay, let's, let's have a look here. So I grab my copy of House of Iron, I open it up, and page 72 is describing Margot Medina, a character I can't wait to talk about when we do our Orlock episode. 
but it talks about how Margot is actually a road boss for House Orlock, and she's still shy of her 30th grand cycle. So unless she is looking amazing for her age, it is actually almost 300, she's probably in her very late 20s. So, yeah, right. Yeah, Lachlan has uh, made me look like a little bit of a dummy there. Thank you very much, Lachlan. Thanks, uh, Lockie. Yeah, you have been blocked on all of our social media. <laughs> no, he, he was an absolute dude and sort of just came in and immediately said that you needed to be aware that you should be taking pride in the fact that you are a revered ancient, according to Manvin Stance. So, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're, you're oh. basically like Dumbledore to them. <laughs> Literally the oldest uh, person I think of. <laughs> I, I kind of guess that's what you were going for. You're just like old, wise, um, Dumbledore. Dumb. Yeah. Yeah. I just need a Harry Potter now. Dumb. Yeah. Well, you know, as long as you keep your hand off your wand, we'll be fine. And in the... B plus. B plus. No, G plus. G plus. Um, Lachlan also came in with a second piece of knowledge there. Oh, what a lovely um, lad. Yeah. Our opening the armories episode about last guns. Now we mentioned that the last guns themselves in the kit were a whole different array of different guns, um, and I'd actually pretty much sort of said that a lot of them were no longer the Cantrail pattern. And yep. he did correct me on that one. There, we actually both had the kit handy, so we're going through it and sending each other photos of the weapons and that. And no, I was wrong there. That one's definitely on Spamiel. Uh, there are a bunch of different guns on there, but there are definitely in those new Cadian kits, the newer version of the Cantrail and last guns. Oh, righto. Yeah, so, I haven't delved too much into that kit, to be honest. So, Well, I was sitting there going, no, Lachlan. Come on, buddy. I've got the kit right in front of me, and I literally pull it out, and I'm like, nope, he's right. <laughs> so we had a we had a, a, a great point of you being a revered ancient. The bad point is, unfortunately, Manvents apparently don't get out of nappies. And then... Oh, well, that's still the same here, so... Well, that's true. <laughs> uh, and then I'm a dummy for literally looking at last guns and being like, yeah, no, this is totally different. No, it's the thing that's directly in front of me. So... yeah. No. Maybe Please. get some glasses, mate. Yeah. Well, I'm literally wearing them now. They do nothing. <laughs> so, Lachlan, thank you very much for that, man. If you do find anything else that Nathan has said wrong, please make sure you send it through to us, underhivelawkeepers at gmail.com, or reach out to us on any of our socials. And that goes for everyone else as well. If you find something has said wrong, please get a hold of us. Now... Yeah, Nathan. please do. <laughs> try not to get anything else wrong. <laughs> I'll try. Sorry, boss. So I guess that's uh, the the interaction we have with Lachlan, uh, probably a good segue into this as well, that, you know, we, we love that interaction with our fans, um, whether it be Instagram, Facebook, or just directly emailing us as well. Uh, if you want to show some more support and some more, um, I guess, allegiance to the podcast, uh hit us up on Patreon, just have a look at what we've got offered there, which is not very much at the moment, but there, oh, it's it, is, <laughs> it is a work in progress. But um, 
yeah, all the support is noted, and um, we we do love that from our Patreon fans. Just a shout out to the people who have joined us on Patreon with uh, Underhive Dad, who's got already a bit of notoriety on this podcast. <laughs> uh, Shimon, Jesse, Josh, and Craig, thank you all for your support to this day. And um, yeah, as I said, it means a lot to us. It does mean quite a fair bit to us. Also. What works for our podcast is our five star reviews on um, yes on whether it be uh, Apple Podcasts or um, Spotify. Spotify. <laughs> I forgot yeah. Spotify for a second there. Uh, but Daniel um, just lost us any sponsorship we might get from them. Well done. <laughs> you know the, that that spot show. Yeah, I, all I could think was pod pod pod. I'm like, it's not Spotify. Come on, Nathan. Just, like, get the old brain firing up. But, yeah, those, those five-star reviews really help us to just be to be found within the community, the Necromunder community, the wargaming community, and just, you know, adds to our, um, our, adds to our audience base, really. All right. Now we've got all the mushy stuff out of the way. Uh, <laughs> I've emasculated you for saying something wrong. You ready to start the Orient in succession? Yes. Let's get into oh, Let us get into this monster. No. Hopefully it's not a five and a half hour episode, but it's know. gonna be at least that. I'm I'm I will drag this bad boy out. I'm talking <laughs> twelve hours each episode. Oh good and, lord. And that's before all of our wackadoo theories. But <laughs> speaking of wackadoo theories. The Orantian succession is going to be a lot more about the, for lack of a better term, the fact that we know. Don't get me wrong, you're going to get the same amount of nonsense that you get from us that you've all come to know and love, be it gang ideas, terrain ideas, table ideas, but we are going to try and hold it back because there is just so much information to go through with these books. Yeah, just in terms of the factual stuff, so... um I guess for it's factual in a sci-fi setting, but throughout the review, um, throughout the read that we were creating for this episode, um, we just found that <clears throat> there was there was just so much volume of information that to add, we're going to try. I'll I'll put that as our caveat. We're going to try not go down carriage hit holes here, but. You, you know you're not allowed to say that word. <laughs> I know, I know. But, um, yeah, we are who we are. We are law keepers and Carrier Tit holds uh, a fantastic place for us to end up. So we're going to yeah. try and stick to the facts, folks. But, um, yeah, bear with us, I guess. And one of the reasons we're sticking to that is that we we have spoken to a few people who have said to us they just want to know what exactly the Oranthian succession is about. Um, they want to be able to sit there and listen to it and have our lovely voices describe it all for them. Well, let's get into it. And when it comes to the Oranthian succession, we really need to start at the beginning. Now, the Oranthian succession doesn't just start on Necromunda. There is so much more that goes into this before we see that first spark of rebellion lit. Now, the opening of the book 
is given to us from the perspective of a number of psychers within the, the hive itself. Um, you have Queen Lorsha, Alice Shiver, Mortana Shroud, and Sirena Scar. Each of these women, either blessed or cursed with the psychers' gifts, in one way or another, look up and feel the effect of the Cicatrix Maledictum and what it has now done to the galaxy. But we can't exactly go into the Cicatrix Maledictum and what that is without unfortunately mentioning the fall of Cadia. Now, if you don't know what Cadia is, man, you are really going to enjoy the next three and a half hours while I describe to you exactly what went <laughs> on there. Um, no, that we would literally have to start a brand new podcast, just it, simply titled The Fall of Cadia Lawkeepers, everything that's occurred up until this point. Yeah, um, true. <laughs> the long and the short of it is The Fall of Cadia is a very simple thing if we break it down to just some key points. Cadia was the only bulwark holding back the Eye of Terror. It was dotted across its landscape with Necron pylons uh, made of the psychoreactive material Blackstone. These pylons and their positioning that had been placed there by the Necrons in ages past kept the Eye of Terror in place and allowed at least, I wouldn't say easy, but more navigatable transport. Uh, across the Imperium via the will of the Astronomicon. Now, Abba the Spoiler, the leader of effectively all chaos in our galaxy, had finally had enough and decided to make his final Black Crusade into Cadia. Now... <sighs> I would love to jump on board and say that it was a hard fight, but inevitably he got his way and effectively throwing a little bit of a tanty, crashed <laughs> a Blackstone Fortress into Cadia, completely destroying the planet. Now, when this has occurred, the Necron pylons have no longer been able to do what they were designed and built to do. And... That's basically not being able to hold back the, the immaterium, the, the, yeah. the Eye of Terror. Yeah. And so from that is where we see the, the creation of the Cicatrix Maledictum, yeah, which is basically what that, ha what that does is it tears, oh, I guess for layman's terms, is it tears the, the, the galaxy in half effectively. Oh, yeah. Um, and then you have this Imperium Nihilus, which is just a horrendous place to be in. Um, and then you have the Imperium, Imperium Sanctus. Sanctus, that's the one, which is where Terra is. So the light of the Astronomicum is a little bit brighter there and so forth. And that's uh, also where Necromunda is. But the key yeah, fact... Yeah, we're so, yeah, we're fine. Yeah, other than being an oppressive regime um, and constant warfare and incredibly brutal ties and pressure put on you by the nobles. Yeah, we're sweet. It's all good. Um, I haven't seen any of that. It's actually yeah. <laughs> it's actually pretty cool here. <laughs> One of the nobles then. Uh, <laughs> so the, it is the Cicatrice Maledictum, which is what basically 
triggers the Arantian succession. That and also the return of Somnus. So, would, would you say that? Oh man, we're going into theory already. I know would, we have to do it. Yeah. Would you say that the Cicatrix Melody? So the firstly, uh, for my Imperial Guard players, the planet broke before the guard did. Respect, Hoo-ah. brother. Pull one out for Cadians. Yep. But do you believe that the creation of the Cicatrix Maledictum, and just in case people aren't really grasping onto it, it's literally cut the galaxy in half. We will, I'll definitely put a picture of the galaxy as we now see it up when we put this post up uh, for the actual episode release. But from the sort of galactic northwest where the Eye of Terror is, all the way across, you know, down to the Maelstrom, which sort of sits about centre of the galaxy, and then down southeast, all across, down to the Tau Empire, the Scourge Stars, far into the eastern fringe. The, there's just this horrible gash into unreality that sits there. So, yeah, it's definitely going to cause some problems everywhere. But, Nath... Do you believe the creation of the Cicatrix Maledictum has been the thing that started the succession? Or, honestly, was it just really crappy timing? No, I, I think it's the impact on the psychers. It, it, it's, it's completely destabilised the planet. Um, okay. So that it's, it's, I think it is the Cicatrix Maledictum that's done it. But, you know... You need to take into account that, and we'll go into it in the episode. How much of an, how badly the world has been affected. It's. I don't think it's a coinky dink. I think there is some serious stuff going on, and it is because the demons have been let loose. You know, basically, the gates of hell have been opened, and anybody who's a psyker or even just got some sort of psychic tendencies um, is going to be afflicted. And those afflictions are going to manifest themselves into, into physical aspects in the way that they interact, in the way that they behave towards their groups and their peoples and so forth. And this is just outside of the realm of Necromunda. So all of it is bleeding into, and each one of those becomes, as I said, a, a portal for a demon to to infect in, what is, the, what is the word I'm looking for? Possess. Possess, yeah, to possess. Yeah, okay. So, I like so that. that demon then becomes a, a, a product that is then causing chaos and terror wherever they are. So not only do you have the, the physical effects of what's happened to the universe, sorry, to the galaxy, you also then have on the ground creatures and demons creating uh, the, the the scenarios that they want to unfold to bring more and more warp energy and more and more demons to the planets. And in this case, obviously, Necromunda. Yeah, no, you, you, you've kind of convinced me. You've <laughs> definitely kind of convinced me. All right. So that's what's going on on the outside. Some stuff's happened. There's a giant hole in existence. So, with all the background information sort of filled in... Uh, well, I guess there are key events, aren't they, from this book? They're the, the absolute, like, underlying points of what happened. But, um, yeah, you're right. We can, we can jump very much into it. 
Um, and I guess I'll start it off with our first right. little section. Let's rock and roll. The great darkness descends upon Necromunda, plunging it into chaos and disorder. While the noble houses seal themselves away in their spires, it falls to the teeming masses of the hive world to survive as best they can from the horrors that come boiling up from the depths. The wastes and hives become a war zone, while the underhive spirals into complete lawlessness with settlements and gangs fighting for their lives. So from this, the what we understand is that there, there is something coming from the under, even below the underhive. So within the, the dark, deep recesses of the underhive is where the, the, the real threat is emerging. And it, it's something we'll mention later, but it, it, it's, it's showing the great divide between the two um, levels. So you have the spires and the, the nobles and... Oh, I think we've mentioned to about the the upper middle class of Necromunda as yeah. well. <laughs> <laughs> but you have the these elements that are now starting to segregate themselves, and it, it it is unfortunately the the dregs and the 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 vast population of the masses that are are going to suffer from this great darkness that's descending. Well, the underhive as you know, ironic, and please, the pun really isn't intended here. As soon as this all starts happening, it's like someone has jammed a big stick into a termite mound. An ant hive, you could say. <laughs> and everything is swarming up from the base where we find, like, like it says, the, the horrors that come up boiling up from the depths. Because the lower you get, the deeper down to the sort of the bottom of the hive the worse it really is and there's something down there that is stirring up all the the let's be honest the monsters the creatures yeah. down there and they're making their way up to you know to sort of tear down what makes up society on necromunda yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Like, with, again, we're not going to go too far down the, the, the carriage it holes with this, but it is very interesting that we we begin to explore the idea of the things that aren't even talked about, aren't even mentioned within the Necromunda lore, the creatures, the dark things, the shadows. Um, and it does, for me, it relates a lot to the Delacroix and um, <clears throat> the things that come up from the deep with them. But it's also the... The creatures that are shunned and, and tucked away into the very bases of the underhive, the the obviously chaos corrupted things and the 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 monstrosities that are created from the gene stealer cult that are just pushed away into the shadow without the the right, I guess, drive, focus or power to become a true threat. And now with the advent of the cicatrice maledictum, and I mention it somewhere later on, but it, it's it's like a calling now, yeah. you know. It, it's it's not it's not a an enigmatic leader. It's not a it's not a you know uh, a structured battle plan. It is a calling from deep within the warp that's pushing these things. It's driving them, and it, it's sending them up hive, which I I think is is both terrifying and cool all at the same time. Well, the warp is always. 
manage to reach out and sort of touch on those of weaker mind. Now, you know, the lower on the hive you get, the closer you are to more animalistic types and baser creatures. So you can imagine the influence that something like the warp is going to have on them. But something else that may have caused a lot of issues for those lower down in the hive. Inexplicably, the core of Necromunda grows cold, plunging the hive cities into gloom. Madness spreads rapidly in the Habs and Factorums, as workers and overseers alike cry out in anguish for guidance from their masters. Yet the lords of Necromunda are struck dumb with terror, and no reassurance or plan comes from down the spire. So, what happens here is the heat sinks themselves that sits at the heart of each hive, that powers everything. They are effectively giant rods stuck into the molten core of Necromunda, drawing heat up and using the thermal energy to power everything. They turn off the things that literally stop the, stop the hives themselves from freezing. They start to cool. They effectively are no longer keeping the lights on. Yeah, exactly. But... Um, what I what I love about this is they're saying that even the core of the planet is starting to go cold. Yeah. So there's there's something that it, it's such a great amount of power that is taking effect. That it affects the core of the planet. Yeah, exactly. It affects the core of the planet, right? Now, harping back to our Delacroix episode, it almost feels like it's the perfect breeding ground for the silent ones. To, to really make a play, to do something here, you know, to, to regain their lost planet. But again, another outwardly theory of mine that I'm sort of going, oh, it'd be great to see, but it would completely destabilise the entire, I guess, uh, IP of the, uh, the game as well. <laughs> well, we know that one of the things that has come back uh, with this great darkness is that rogue planet or rogue moon somnus mm. we know that bad boy is back so i'm assuming later in this series of episodes we will hopefully see something about the delark and maybe some sort of squid beast that'd be rad uh, i don't know <laughs> i definitely know but i don't know yeah <laughs> i guess the other thing i want to make a a, a point of is that and so it's not only about, and and we talked about it in with hive mortars. It's not only about um, the lights going off. It's about production failing now. You know, so we know it, who the real bad guy is when it comes to Necromunda. Exactly. So we're starting to see the the end of the production period for for just everything, and the 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 whole world has been thrown into chaos. But I guess at the same time, the Imperium's not in a position to really turn the screw on Necromunda because it's dealing with the, the Cicatrix Maledictum as well. So as much as it needs its resources from its planets, it can't actually tap into those resources. Like if the, if the planet is failing, it can't put pressure on them because it needs its resources to defend itself as well. So there's a, and there's a whole gamut of things that are affecting it. And this is why I guess the, the cessation of production, um, 
of the inability to meet the ties becomes very much a backseat issue now as the as the planet itself is almost trying to survive. Um, and it, it is a really good part of the book early on and um, that talks about, I'll put it in my own words here, but it talks about basically the, the complacency of the rulers of Necromunda, that they're, they're not really set up for this. They're, because of the way that they had built and structured their planet all around, you know, uh, achieving tides and production and so forth. When this hits, it it's so wild and unexpected, and and rightly so because it's such a major event. But there is there's this status quo that has been established for millennia, and when this hits now and it disrupts and throws out the whole status quo, the mm. the noble classes and the ruling classes of Necromunda go into a sort of almost like a a, a paralytic sort of shock. They don't quite know what to do. They don't. They haven't got the structures in place to. I don't want to say defend, but to to circumvent what what is going on in their planet. They don't, they haven't because it is all about putting the 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 heel of your boot on the the class that's lower than you. That it it doesn't work unless that's happening. Necromunda doesn't work unless somebody's being stomped out. Well. Mentioning the sort of the boot on the throat, um, when all of this started happening, and naturally, like you said, these the, the uprising occurs from those being oppressed. The oppressed will always attempt to rise up against their oppressor. Yep. And uh, as this happened, you know, skirmishes break out between the clanners and the drudges and the, the clan houses and the nobles, and the enforcers themselves simply flood the streets of Hive City and effectively forcing people back into their habs, their factories, their settlements, and then just lock the doors behind them, mm. saying, we will open this up when, it's, when, when the problem goes away. When everything is back to normal, we will let you back out. And in all these different places, it effectively broke into almost a genuine revolution. Uh, we have examples of Hive Rothkel bases and open insurrection by its clan houses. The nobles of Hive Ceres simply seal off the spire and let everyone below the wall basically just fend for themselves as best as they can. They don't care. Now, mm -hmm. in the Minerva Cluster, and this is something, I actually find this quite funny but also horrific, the mycoprotein domes of the Hive Cities were just set ablaze. Now, they don't know if it was by workers who just happened to be freezing or was it cults trying to strike out against the old order, you know. Either way, they're looking at it going, this is just an insurrection, it's fine. Whereas in our favourite Gothril's Needle, the lords basically plead to the population, to the citizens, hey, everyone, relax, you know, it's fine. We are all good. And then they just usher their favoured people into the self-sustaining yes. hab shelters. Yes. Um, so, so even, even, even in equality. <laughs> even in equality. There is, and I, I read that and I was a little bit brokenhearted as well. I was like, no, yeah. not in Gothrals. You know, this is the shining light of what the Imperium could be. And it is... It's unfortunately there. They're just going. Let's let's protect our own. Let's protect our yeah. kind, and everybody else can you know 
survive off the uh, the fungus that's growing in the now completely black feet. What's the old saying? Um, everyone is equal. A couple are just more equal than the rest. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, exactly. The so, needle, unfortunately, has proved that. Yeah, and look, I mean, we, we're going to go on a bit of a rant. We we have gone on a bit of a rant about like the the, the idea <laughs> of class, um, about classes in necromunda, and it, it's true. This first initial bit really shows that those wanting to protect themselves and keep power. They're, they're going to do it in the, the most horrendous way, the sending in the enforcers and just purely stomping out anything that looks remotely like a rebellion or an insurrection. And it, and it comes from, and I'm, I'm not defending the actions here, but it comes from a sense of they're, they're, they're in total fear. Oh, they, they've never experienced anything like this before. Well, it's, so, the, the planet is cooling. Like you, yeah. You've definitely not experienced anything like this before because, mm. you know, there's life on the planet. But mm. this is, in, in one foul swoop, mm. the, the sky has ripped open. The planet that last time it was here, like hundreds of thousands of people just went walkabout. And, um, oh, yeah, uh, I don't know. There's a huge rebellion happening somehow across the entire planet at the same time. Yeah. True. Nah, just casual Sunday, mate. <laughs> yeah, every other Sunday. Yeah, look, I mean, but that I guess one of the things that I love that we talked about is, is that crackdown. That crackdown happens in the civilized areas of the hides. Yeah. Okay. So below those areas, there's not even a crackdown. There's not even a sense of like let's try and maintain some normality here or some sort of the you know the the status quo for use of a better term. They're, they're not even looking to do that in those lower levels. It's just like, mate, eat each other. We don't care. Yeah. Just do not come up here. Leave us alone. Just yeah. do your thing. Yeah, exactly. So I guess ahead of the that chaos that's absolutely going bonkers all over the planet, and especially in the hives, the Ironhead Prospectors, uh, they return to their wasteland fortresses. Yeah. Which is kind of cool. So they do, they're bugging out as well. They're saying, no, we've had enough of this. The Anglish ab- abandoned trade deals mid-meeting while the technical-minded Tafakit leave the, their mining works and vanish into the wasteland. Both Scarfrig and Savardol armoured convoys are seen crossing the great equatorial waste, firing on any who impede their progress home. So... I guess what we take from this note of the the history of what's happening is that all factions are out to protect their own tr- interests right now, and they're trying to get back to their base of operations. That's where they're well, going to be most safe. The Ironhead prospectors are, are packing up. They're packing up all oh. their toys. They they live to go. You know, hi ho, hi ho. It's off to work we go. Yeah. Not 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 right now. They are saying oh. no. Pack them up, boys. We are. We, we have to get back. We know something is happening. And yeah. to the point of not only are they, uh, the English abandoned trade deals mid-meeting. Now, do you remember, um, I'm sorry, turning this into a 40K podcast again, one of the big problems that the, the squats themselves, you know, now the leagues of Votan, have with uh, the Elder is way back when the, the Elder were bad trade partners. 
And yeah, this, right. You know, yeah. This, this is they, they either broke deals or when the squats needed assistance, the Eldar were unwilling to give it. And the concept of honor and being seen as a fair trading partner, not only for yourself but your clan, is incredibly important to the Ironheads. Now, in the middle of meetings with prospective trade partners or existing trade partners, they're saying, we have something more important to do. It shows how serious that the, the Ironheads are taking this, where they're on such a hurry to get home. If you are, you, maybe you're, in, you're, in, you're heading in the same direction as them, but just you're not going fast enough, they're just shooting with you and to, to yeah. make room. You are slowing them down. We cannot, we cannot afford this delay right now. Yeah, right. Yeah, they're, they're just gunning everybody out of their way. They're just saying, yeah. look, here's my ridiculously firing bolter. You're going to cop all the rounds from it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. That's that's a really good point you make there about the, like, walking out of trade deals. That's 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 massive. That's, like, you know, the, one of the biggest things that they can do. Yeah, that is that is amazing. I mean, they're, they're obviously, if they get back into their fortresses and their fortress collapse on top of them, that would be fantastic for everybody. But, you know, to see well, them, sorry? Why would you say something so horrible? <laughs> like, what have they ever done to you? <laughs> yeah, space dwarves. I don't like dwarves. Um, <laughs> I mean, I've got no problem with them. I just refuse to paint them. Yeah, true. Uh, That's your problem. They've got a problem with you. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, to, to see that from an alien race, basically, or was it subhuman race, like bugging out. and Abhuman. Abhuman, yeah, subhuman. They don't really have psychers, do they? The uh, no, they do. They are. This is going into leagues of Otan stuff. Yeah, but like, um, dabble, dabble, mate. Yeah, they have the ability to. Uh, the leagues of Otan, they are clones. Uh, yeah. They have their clone skins. Do have the ability to um, be cloned with the ability to be psychers. So I'm, I'm guessing the Iron Heads have that same ability? Yeah, I'd imagine they would. I mean, if they're tapping into the same resources of their race, then they would. Well, stepping back into the hives real quick, um, really showing the, the terror that is occurring inside these hives. Gun battles, looting and violence break out in the confusion of the blackout. The powered locks of the Great Gilder prisons open spilling convicts into the streets, while hab matrons and shop owners resort to firing first and asking questions later. Soon, the streets of Hive City run red with blood, lit by muzzle flashes. Hot damn. You know what that reminds me of? Do you remember in Judge Dredd where they have the, uh, the block wars? Yes. Yep. Could be identical to that, I imagine. And just be an absolute, absolute murder fest. But my concern is for Honest Cabus. Mate, okay. We both <laughs> know Cabus well enough to know that he is loving this. He's charging a 30% premium. <laughs> and he's just like, all right, lads. You know, what's, yeah, I understand it was 15 credits a shell last week, but it's blackout. It's a, you know, it, it's Blackout Friday and uh, <laughs> Blackout all, Friday, all so. of our yeah. prices have been increased by 307%. Yeah. 
all right? You know what? 300%, I'm a good bloke. Yeah. <laughs> He'd be selling torches at, like, probably a 1,000% increase. It's like, you want a torch? Ooh, matey, mate. Those things are worth, like, absolute mountains of gold at the moment. Exactly. Um, but the, the the concept and the terror of, of living and operating within a hive that has suffered a blackout or, you know, you've just got emergency lighting or something like that, it's even more terrifying than mortis. You know, and I, right. I mentioned that in the mortis episode, we, you would be, it'd be horrendous going down those blackout streets, but this would be have the emergency light flickering, the, you know, the old exit sign still sort of just running off backup power. And this place would also be freezing as well. So you're not, it's not just about the blackout conditions. It's also the fact that this place would be like a, a freezer and you'd still be trying to fight your way out of it, not knowing if you're, if another gang is coming for you or if you're in the wrong part of the, the hive or if you guys have been activated and switched on to go just get Even if you've been sent to the right place yet. Like... Yeah, true. Are you heading in the right direction? Like, you know, you got a torch. Yeah, fair enough. Sweet. No problem. Um, but what if you are... What if you're heading in the wrong direction? What if you are going to... I don't know. Um, you're a, you're an Orlock and you, you're running the where you think you should be going. And then you realize, no, you've just run into Goliath territory. Or yeah. you know you've you've just turned down the the wrong street and all of a sudden you're surrounded by a bunch of corpse grinders. Yeah, it's that, the, the terror, yeah, yeah. which is just horrendous. Yeah, like I, I'm, I've been in blackouts in my own suburb where all the lights are off and how pitch black it is then, and you don't even have like you know you're just in a normal suburban area. Imagine that in a hive, completely enclosed. No semblance of external light coming. That is, mate, you'd be firing a gun just to be able to see where you're going. That's it. Yeah. Spending a 300% increased <laughs> ammo. <laughs> so it's in this confusion that the, the, the indecision of the Necromunda nobility really hits. It's something that we mentioned earlier as well. The, they are basically... It's not the, the upper echelon nobles. It's the it's like the the middle tier who can see the the see the potential disaster rising. Yeah. That go let's they're the ones who unleash the enforcers. They're the ones who go crack down on everything. Just and it's savage. So anybody who raises arms against the enforcers, they're just like, yep, have at them. Absolutely wreck them. You're not even having to raise it, arms it, against them. You're Hey, get back in your hab. Yeah, but I don't live here. Okay, pop. Yeah. They're, 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 they will be accepting no excuse. They're, they're, they're enacting martial law in its truest fashion of do as we say or you're resisting. I, I love this as well. The idea of a place like Necromunda having martial law so it's already a horrendous place it already sucks you, yeah you crank it right up and go no 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 actually we've got martial law in place now you're like whoa 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 hang on a second what exactly does that look like considering life everyday life is hellish anyway 
Yeah, it's hor- it would be a horrendous scenario to have to, to live through, that martial law of the enforcers. And we know the enforcers are not clean cops. They're the complete opposite of that. I mean, that's... That's offensive. Are <laughs> oh, you little law keepers? <laughs> exactly, yeah, I think so, buddy. Exactly. What about the law keepers? They're pretty cool. They are the worst of. Yeah, nah, fair. But yeah, it's it's ridiculous, and this this does show that yeah, those enforcers really are hammering home the fact of no. At the end of the day, we are here to ensure the protection of those above us not mm-hmm. not anyone below um it's they they truly show the fact that they are a militia in this respect uh, beyond anything yeah. now and it's it's their field captains who are basically pushing them like you know they're they're precinct leaders and precinct captains i don't know what rank they have there they would be the ones pushing them because I guess they would see that you, if the masses start to really decide to turn, they will be the first people that, that cop the, the, the brunt of it. You know, they're, they're the nobles, the higher-ups could properly mobilise a, a, a um, PDF or some sort of local military arms to defend themselves. Yeah. But the, the enforcers, they'd have nothing. So crack down early so that they can maintain that some sort of semblance of, of, of authority and control over the population. The issues that the enforcers have, we will be touching on uh, a little bit more soon. So many of the issues that arise during the Aranthian succession do occur because orders are given to the enforcers, which are never updated. And this does lead to a lot of problems later on. But moving back outside the hives, as the hive city struggle to survive the darkness, the Sungar nomads emerge from the wasteland to prey upon travellers and outland settlements. Convoys without power and outposts whose defences are down offer little resistance to the raiders with many fleeing to their deaths in the wastes rather than dying at the hands of the Sungar. Now, for those of you who don't know, the Sungar are the Ash Waste Nomads. And somehow, almost as if they knew something was coming, almost worldwide, the Nomads decide that it's a good time to try and wipe out these invaders as... And we will eventually get to the Ashways Nomads in their own episode. <laughs> they view any who are not of their own people as invaders of Necromunda and not worthy as of existing on their lands. And what I find interesting about this is that they would probably be affected the least from everything that's going on. Yeah. You know, they 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 are without need of the heat sinks. They're without need of the vast productions of Necromunda. They don't have a requirement of what the other gangs have within the hives. They don't have the requirement of what the, the, the nobles require. But 
I mean, we, we will talk about it very shortly. The what what's impacting and affecting them is is vast and great, but they would survive this, I think, better than than the majority of gangs out there. Absolutely. What what do they care if the hive cities themselves are losing power? What do they care if it's getting colder inside the hive cities? They don't live in the hive cities. They they live in the waste. They live in the environment outside of all of this. And, you know, if something goes wrong in the hive city, they jump on their helamites and ride in the opposite direction. Yeah, exactly. And it would be better for them anyway because people would be potentially fleeing hive cities mm. and they'd just become, if they're fleeing on foot, let's imagine that absolute worst-case scenario, um, they've just become really tasty, easy targets, the Ash Waste Gangers. You let the wastes kill them for you. True. And well, you just watch. You just watch until they're weak <laughs> enough that you just sort of go, you know, you, you get up to that uh, Orlock Ganger who's, you know, maybe his quad ran out of fuel and uh, he needs water, he's hot, he's tired. And next thing you know, he, he turns and... There's just a nomad who's grabbed him on the arm and is just slapping him with his own hand. Stop hitting yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Stop hitting yourself. Stop hitting yourself. <laughs> I, I would find that really funny. But I, I, it's, I'm not... it's an unarmed hit, though, so he'd get, uh, I think he gets a bonus to his armor save, so he'd be all right. It'd definitely be an armed hit because he's hitting him with the arm, you see? Uh, <laughs> he's on tonight, folks. Uh, <clears throat> so, yeah, it... The the next bit I find really oh, I love this really really actually probably the the top tier of terrifying of what's happening now. So it takes little time before the noble houses themselves are at each other's throats. Yeah. The Atlantic brat gangs duel openly in the streets with their Ranlow rivals, while House Green security guards down the servants of House Kawaran for simply straying into their domain. Unwilling to threaten their noble masters, Lord Helm Wars enforcers concentrate on protecting the Imperial House from attack. This is the worst thing that can happen to Necromunda. Yes. So you're now yes. having the absolute top echelons fighting each other, just as if they were street gangs. Well, brat gangs have always been quite possibly one of the coolest parts about when you go back to old confrontation n95 the whole lot the the you know the untested youth of nobility we touched on it a little bit with our escher episode with the yulanti girls heading down hive with uh the escher and brat gangs oh man games workshop if you bring these back i will be the happiest little boy in all of necromunda they would be very cool to play yeah. actually, oh man but... no save it for the end save it for the end <laughs> so this is terrifying in a couple of ways and i think you agree i think you're probably of the same mindset here where you've got your lanti killing rand low house grime attacking Koian. um you know and the enforcers just sitting there going, nope, nope, not at we we they are they outrank us. They're yeah, that level exactly. up and they can see what they're doing is wrong, but they are not getting involved because at the end of the day, the enforcers are still subservient to the nobles. The nobles can basically do whatever they want to anyone below them. <laughs> and right now, while everything is still 
up in the air, unfortunately. Yeah, so the enforcers are just purely on protect the Imperial House. That's all they want to yeah. do. He's going to hold it. But it's something we mentioned, and I can't remember which episode it was in, but the idea that the clan houses and the noble houses, they don't, they don't fight up in the spire. It's all, you know, discussions. The killing and all that happens down in the underhive. Outside of ritual combat. Outside of ritual combat, yeah. But yeah, yeah. so now you're starting to see that breakdown of the the law effectively, or even if it's an unspoken thing, the the noble houses are now warring with each other. So mm. the, the 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 web that tie them together to ensure that they maintain their semblance of authority, their their concept of a peace and their ability to function under the imperial house and consequently under imperial law, that's all dissipating now. That's all going. And if that's all yeah. going, that means from the top down, chaos is spreading. But once things are said, once these things, these actions are put in place, the nobles themselves are the only ones who can amend those orders, who can fix any of this and if you've got a noble of house yolanti saying go kill those kawaiian and those Co the noble of house kawaiian are saying no go kill grime and then grime is saying go yeah. and kill it it's a hell of a lot safer to just you know ask forgiveness later than run the mistake of possibly killing someone to be in charge of you very very soon yeah and the enforcers do the most intelligent things so far that they could be doing. They surround the Imperial family and say, everyone else, stay back. Yeah, yeah. We will level you. Now, another cool thing that we read about in the in the book as well, it was that the the events of the Cicatric Maledictum actually destroy the Vox communication systems on the planet as well, or make them, not necessarily destroy them, but make them really quite ineffective. And so you have... They're very, very short range. Yeah. So you have house nobles contra giving contradicting orders to each other as well. Uh, not to each other, to this, um, their soldiers and their, their underlings. So you could have one, one noble saying, yeah, we, we're now going after House Ranlow, and another one going, no, 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 no. We don't fight them anymore. So it, it is pure chaos and pure confusion up at that, that top tier of the spire. Well, this would be different from hive to hive because you would have the hierarchy of each clan house or noble house within each hive. The hives can't communicate with each other. Outside, of, outside of getting on your bike and riding down, you know, the road to the nearest other hive. <laughs> and avoiding the ash wasters. Yeah. Avoiding the ash waste or running a really long string between two cans. <laughs> it takes 45 minutes for the words to even get there. But the no one knows who's in charge. So you know for fact that, uh, you know, you, Nathan of House Co-Lion, are in charge on, you know, in the needle. But Who's in charge at Hive Primus? You can't you can't get a hold of anyone. Yeah. So you've ha you've got an issue with House Grime. So you say, screw it, everyone, let's go kill House Grime. Yeah. Whereas in House Primus, 
your uncle who's actually in charge is the sitting there going, no, no, we're allying with House Grime and we're going to make sure we knock out these Yolanti. Yeah. And they're contradicting information that may be getting through too late or maybe just not getting through at all. This is going to be adding to the confusion. So even just coming up to this point here, we can see that the hierarchy of Necromunda has been rendered completely impotent in regards to its ability to actually control anyone else. And this is just the first few opening moments of this. This, this, you know, this may be the first couple of days or weeks or whatever, but the reality is this, all of this here, where, what's this? Um, You know, it starts effectively... Uh, 11-2, and we are not even coming to 25-3. So we're a couple of weeks into this so far. Yeah, and it's already, it's everything's already blown right off. People are going absolutely bonkers. Um, it's, a, it's a crazy, it's a crazy part of the, the law, and it's only the tip of the iceberg. And, and it's exactly what I was saying at the start of the episode, the, the, Necromunda works. The system works when the person with the person at the top of the chain has got their boot on the person below them, and henceforth and henceforth all the way down to the very Correct. bottom. Yeah. And know, so now it's not happening. No, it's not. And because it's not, everything is. It's 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 going to hell. And yeah, exactly. Uh, there's nothing sort of shows this more than heading back down to the Underhive and gangs make their stand in the Underhive against overwhelming odds. From the drinking holes of Dust Falls to the docks of Sump City, all sane residents of the Hive cities know that unless they stand together, the tide of mutants and chaos followers will bury them. Old grudges and rivalries are cast aside as gangs ready themselves for the slaughter to come. Now, this part here shows the difference between the the haves and the have-nots. So, above the hive wall in the spires, the nobles are killing each other. They're allowing their their personal rivalries and hatreds and whatever they have to basically let them show who they really are. They have nothing to constrain them and no true threat beyond each other. So... They're doing what they're doing. Whereas in the Underhive, where things are actually bad, things are act- there are literally mm. monsters crawling from under your feet to kill you. And you have gangs throughout all these settlements who, up until this exact moment, have been enemies, who would quite willingly shoot each other in the street. And they are looking at each other, giving that nod and going, not today. We we need to we got to sort of stand at each other's side right now because yeah they have a common enemy exactly yeah. and mm. at the moment it's more important that we fight together than each other and yeah. this this mindset and this agreement happens all through the underhive multiple settlements and multiple instances of these attacks are occurring and gangs are banding together 
to stop. Like it said, from the drinking holes of Dust Falls to the docks of Sump City. And by recognizing this common enemy, the gang is, not even, not even the clan houses, the servants of the clan houses, your average ganger is able to pull together tighter than their masters or the masters of their masters. Exactly. Totally agree with you. They, they, because of what you're saying there, the nobles have no fear. They know they're protected, and yeah. so they can prosecute their stupid little war, whereas below the spires, the, the clan houses are going. And it's, it's not even the clan houses. It's the, it's the gangs of the clan houses that are coming together and going, we're not going to survive this. Yeah. Like, uh, unless there is unification between us, we're absolutely going to get destroyed. There'll be the whatever enmity we have with each other will just get thrown out because otherwise we're just dead and that enmity won't exist anyway. So the, the unity that I'm talking about is exemplified at Dust Falls. Yes. So, and and it's it's awesome. It's so cool. And it also the, shows the that the enforcers are dicks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. That's 100%. So in Dust Falls, greatest of the Underhive settlements, Precinct Fortress 1313 sealed the gateway to the Nexus and the Hive above. Autocannon turrets tracking and tearing through anyone foolish enough to try and move up Hive. The message was clear. Dust Falls was on its own. Again, as you say, dicks. Yep. A hasty gang council in the six clans saw old rivals from the Bittersweet Blades, Coldfire Cabal, Sump Dogs, and Iron Tree Reavers all put aside their differences to defend the settlement. Yet when a dozen Delacroix silently entered the drinking hole and offered their assistance, they were not immediately met with jeers and bullets. It's yeah. really interesting, isn't it? Well, you know the situation's bad when your Escher, Vansar, Orlocks, and Goliath all look at the uh, mayonnaise crew and go, yeah, okay, we, we, we kind of need the help. Yeah, exactly. They're sitting there going, well, you know, we know we shouldn't trust you. We know you're the dodgy ones, but, yeah, we need you on board for this. Otherwise, it's all over Red Rover. Mm. And it's just, it's amazing to think, like, you know, the, the, the enforcers have locked in. They, they're just following orders. Well, following orders to protect themselves as well. And all the other gangs are coming together and just basically saying, well, this is the only way that we have any semblance of survival. Because the, the conflicts that are happening now, they're not, they're not gang skirmishes. No. So they, they, these are vast huge battles that are going on and it's almost almost probably something more reminiscent of a battle you would see in a in a 40k environment rather than a necromunda environment where you're talking about hundreds of of gangers coming together or you know potentially thousands coming together to defend certain areas of their hive or wherever wherever they might be defending but with the the numbers are just vastly more than what a regular gang would look like well, I can't help myself. Dust Falls is, we know, the, it's the greatest underhive settlement. 
it's it's the biggest. Uh, I think the second is most likely Sump City, uh, but we'll get to them in a moment. So these four gangs, Bittersweet Blades, Coal Fire Cabals, Sump Dogs, and the Iron Tree Reavers, all incredibly well-known gangs uh, from their respective houses. But these are just f- probably the four largest gangs in Dust Falls. There would be dozens of gangs there, and yes, there would be other Escher gangs, but at the end of the day, the hierarchy is that the Bittersweet Blades are the biggest girls on the block. And yeah. they say to the other Asher gangs, this is what we're doing. You know, we're going into an alliance with the rest of these guys right now. They, they tow the line or they've got a lot of trouble, not just from their own house, but from the other three houses that are there. And inevitably, there are going to be Cordor there as well. But, mm. you know, they're just excited that someone set fire to a Prometheum drum and they're like, sweet, <laughs> time, time yeah. to cook this chicken. Okay. Exactly. They start to think people are believing them. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's always right. It's always, always right. Always right. But yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. There could be hundreds, if not thousands, of gang members or outcasts or just scum willing to fight that are mm. now under the control of, if we think about it in an incredibly basic form, the mm. four gang leaders of these four massive gangs. And it's all about survivability. Yeah. It's, it's, it's all, it is about trying to survive what is coming. And as I said earlier in the pod, the, what's driving these chaos-tainted warbands, what's driving these beasts and griblies, all that emerging from the underhive, is a calling. They're not, yeah. it's, not, it's not a single leader. It's not an objective. It is a calling from the cicatrix maledictum, driving them upwards. So it'd be like these frenzied mobs and they would just be gathering as they as they come further and further up. Yes. So they'd just be adding to the hordes that are there oh. and creating creating chaos. Yeah. As they're as, as they're advancing upwards. Well, this uh, this next read of yours has one really really cool example of uh, one of those gang. Oh, I'm going to call them a gang. Yeah, one of those gangs. Yeah, they're, they're a gang. So the mutant tribes and hallet cults, long hidden in the shadows, crawl up from the depths to strike at Hive City. The greatest of these is the Subdemons, a motley gang of outcasts led by the weird Yith Wild Eyes. Yith uses his not inconsiderable telepathic powers to bend a dozen other gangs to his will, forming a formidable army to strike at the hated hivers above. That is so rad. That Mm. is so rad. Like, Mm. now, theory. Not theory. Question. Gang idea. No, sorry. Gang idea. No, actually, yeah, gang idea. Later on. (laughs) Later on, gang idea. Is Yith bending a dozen other gangs of mutants and helot cults? Absolutely not. Is he bending human gangs that are possibly defending against him? I, he, I think it is the latter. Yeah, he's he's basically using the force and being like, no, you serve me now. And they're like, all right. Mm. And then they turn on their settlement. You know, yep. that's, that's awesome. That's awesome. Like, this is the sort of apocalyptic doomsday stuff that yep. the, the, the quarter have been telling us forever. 
that they were right all along. You know, they maybe, were right. Maybe that Eldar prince had that thought that was driving all the people insane. Maybe this was it. Yeah. This is insane. But you said it before, where they're they're gathering as they come past. And mm. this is a this is an amazing example of that where this, I, I don't think we've ever heard of this Yith Wild Eyes. No. But what what do the kids call it? He rizzes them. He he uses his riz. I don't know. I've got a young nephew and apparently he like the kids do something with their eyes and people it's like charisma. I don't You're hurting the podcast. I'm hurting myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, he rizzes them. them and they're like, yeah, cool. We're going to, we're going to fight with you now. And at all the time, yeah. they, you can just imagine in their minds, they're screaming because yeah. they're yeah. no longer in control of their own bodies. And this is something I've always, wa- I've actually never, I don't think I've ever mentioned it to anyone. When the Cicatrix Maledictum occurred and sorry, this is some Warhammer 40k slash theory stuff. Um, I promised we wouldn't do this, but I'm breaking that promise. It's good. It's like every time I've started a diet. <laughs> Would the opening of the Cicatrix Maledictum have caused these minor weirds and minor psychers? Would it have increased their power? Because the opening to the Immaterium and the, the powers of the warp is now so much more available to people. Hundred percent. It, it. You would probably, probably know this better as an electrician. You, they're tapping into more of the power source. You know, and it's a direct line to the power source. There's no regulator there. There's nothing to slow them down. There's nothing that they have to work incredibly hard for. It, it is just literally just pouring into their brain. So we haven't heard of. Yith wild eyes before from the sump demons because the greatest extent of his psychic ability was able to do up his own laces without using his hands, right? But now he has just had his mind ultra supercharged by the cicatrix and he is able to take control over gangs and maintain that control whilst they're fighting. So he's part of he's 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 got a whole cadre of gangs laid out in front of him that he's maintaining control over. You're talking about countless minds, well, not countless, but probably hundreds of minds that his brain is invested into and and basically possessed them. Yeah. So obviously his power has just been increased a thousandfold, and he probably won't have long for this world. But during his period of time, one of the greatest psychers to ever probably graced Necromunda. I always like to think of the mindset we try to think of. We all know it. Uh, numbers when it comes to Warhammer 40k and Necromunda and Stigma, all of it. Numbers are meaningless. So we yes. all try to assign these arbitrary values to everything. When I think of a gang, I always think of your average gang being 10 people. You know? Yeah. So if he's just turned a dozen gangs to his own, sort of to his will, let's, let's say roughly 120 gangers. Now, yeah. the greater, he said to be the greatest 
of these is the sub demons. He leads the sub demons. They're a motley gang of outcasts. Now, if they're greater than average, let's say 30, 40, yeah, 50. Yeah, cool yeah. Let's let's say 50. Plus the 120 he's just he's just got there. Plus uh-huh. all these other mutant tribes and helot cults that are coming up, seeing the fact that he's got 170 fighters going, okay, well, we're going to sign up with you. Let's say he's got a formidable army of let's... A thousand? Yeah, easy. A thousand fighters led by mm. this insane mutant weird? Yep. That's horrifying. 100%. 100%. I, and, and exactly what I was saying to you before, is they would be gathering more as they advance yeah. as well. Well, so they would be individuals, pairs, yeah, exactly. little groups. Yeah. That's exactly what I was about to say. It's not just the gangs, it is about, oh, there's. Oh, four people coming out of Honest Cabuses. Tap my mind into them. That's yep. four blokes with uh, blazugas. We're ready to go. Oh, God. If he sold anyone a blazuga, I'm going to be pissed. <laughs> he said he was holding those for me. <laughs> the dirty bugger. So, yeah, <laughs> the, 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 the movement and the attack of the Chaos Cults is, is just tenfold of what it would normally be, and it is more impactful now because the structure and hierarchy of Necromunda is falling apart. Yeah. And the only thing that can offer some sort of semblance of normality or peace is being held together by by gangers who would normally be at each other's throat. Yeah. So it's a very, very thin thread that holds this piece together. Well... Speaking of weirdly thin threads that are held together by a sense of, you know, we don't want to die, the Escher Gang Queen Yelena and the Makeda Gelt Gilda Tor Goldfingers form an unlikely alliance in the defense of Sump City. Tor promises Yelena and any other gang who will fight a Gilda's ransom in credits if they help him defend his Archeo treasure ships from the mutant army at the city gates. Yelena takes the credits and then the ships after she blows up the city and invaders both to hell. We often joke about some city being sunk a few times and this is it. Yelena sunk Sump City into the depths of the hive. Now, again, the, uh, again. (laughs) So I want to read a little section of uh, Cinderac burning here because this just shows what we were talking about, about these disparate groups coming together to fight in the mutually beneficial cause of survival. Some city, the lowest settlement in the underhive, came under almost constant attack from the Great Black Sea beneath its pile foundations. Tentacled horrors and pale corpse-like killers hauled themselves out of the spoil, hungering for the flesh of the locals. An alliance of Escher gangs led by the Sump City Sirens and the Carrion Queens met the invaders on the docks, heavy stubbers and last guns lighting up the dark as they fired into the attackers. Locals of all kinds from gilders to narco-gangers, helped in the defence, lobbing crudely made firebombs and firing gunk rounds into the mutants with deadly effect. Again and again, the frenzied mobs of cultists, monsters, 
scavy clans and other things that defied classification came. Yelena, leader of the Carrion Queens, had taken command of the Defenders after descending to the Abyss to help her sister gangers. Even the coin lords and spider huntsmen of the settlement deferred to the hardened gang queen. When Yelena ordered melted charges to be set on the pilings under the city, none questioned her plan and fell in with her gang as they fought their way to the sub city shipyard. The final battle took place as they boarded the ships. The sound of gunfire constant until they cast off and Yelena triggered her bombs. The clamour of the battle momentarily drowned out by the deafening sound of some city and thousands of howling cultists crashing down into the poisoned waters below. Yes. So those numbers that we're talking about? Is it understated. Mate, understated. understated. Thousands of howling cultists. Like, what was it? It said before, the frenzied mobs of cultists, cool monsters, pretty rad, scavy clans, um, yes, and other things that defied classification. Not to mention yes. tentacled horrors and, I'm sorry, pale corpse-like killers? Yeah. Are they, are they your uh, idea they are exactly. Yes, <laughs> yeah. they are. I read that before and I was thinking about it. I'm just like... 100% they are bodyguard Delacroix. Yeah. So they are built for murder. Once again, someone has gone, has listened to our podcast, gone back in time and then written this book. <laughs> it's not like we subconsciously kept this information in our brainwaves. That's insane. Like, mm. yeah, the, I think our idea of old, uh, what was his name? Yith Wild Eyes. Having a thousand, uh, having an army of a thousand is quite possibly either accurate or a little bit on the lighter side to what he may have really had. Yeah, exactly. And, and I love that the, the narco, narco guilders. Yeah. Or, <laughs> I don't even know what they are, to be honest. Um, narco gangers. They're narco gangers. They're basically the Timmy Town Locos. Oh. Right, okay. <laughs> They're like scum that serve the narco lords. Oh, right, oh, yeah. So the the unification that's being made, that's been happening across just some city alone is it's absolutely everybody because it even mentions the spider hunters. Yeah. So oh, for use of a better term, it's just fishermen, really. Who, right. who hunt spiders the size of horses to cut out their eyes and sell them. But yeah. Yeah, exactly. But they, they, everybody's being put together. Yeah. Yes, including these spider huntsmen that you've mentioned that have always mm. been described as these sort of very, very singular, very aloof, very I do my own thing, leave me alone types, like real wilderness style huntsmen who are mm. turning to this gang queen. And when she says jump, they're just jumping. Yeah, they're going, yep, boss, this is the only way we're going to continue hunting spiders down here, and that's by having your back. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll go on to our, our next point because let's keep the tangents down to a minimum. It's also a really cool point. I know. I was hanging out to read this one. Vanda Gorbos and his sister Gayan essentially set the settlement of two tunnels on fire amid an assault by the serrated bone corpse grinder cult. Screaming murder, the cultists leap through the rivers of burning gunk as the Gorvos siblings and their allies gun them down. 
desperately hoping that the serrated bone runs out of bodies before they run out of bullets or gunk to burn. So the mention of the, the corpse grinder cult here is important because they go a little bit off chops. Yeah. These bodies lying everywhere. Usually so uh, reserved and calm. <laughs> One of the more placid gangs on Necromunda. <laughs> yeah, they are. Um, they are. I don't want to de- detract too much from the the siblings, but they they certainly take it upon themselves to take advantage of everything that's going on on Necromunda, and whether that be gathering up the the dead bodies or simply going and making some dead bodies, which is very very. Making um, a lot of dead bodies. Yeah, yeah, making a lot, which is very obviously corpse grinder ish. But directly from Cinderac burning, with the the talk of um, the two tunnels is amazing. So I love two tunnels, and I love the Gorvos twins, like. Gain and Vanda, or Vanda and Gain, really depends whose perspective you're going for it through. Vanda definitely thinks he's in charge. Um, the reality is, I don't know how Gain hasn't killed him yet. But yeah. these two, yeah, I can't wait to do uh, like some episodes on the hired guns and dramatis personae and stuff. Because mm. so I really want to talk about these two. These two. These two are insane, and there's a really cool section in Cinderac Burning that you've highlighted here. Um, yeah, so I'll, talking I'll, about these two. Yeah, I'll jump straight into it. So, so despite the fact that Gaian truly hated her brother, she had to admit that in the face of overwhelming odds and certain death, his delusional self-assurance had come in handy. Just pause there. <laughs> But that's just like the bond and the love that you have between two siblings, isn't it? Where one's just like, "Yep, you're a moron, but I see your good qualities, and yeah. I need to, I need to take advantage of those particular ones." Mm, mm. So, don't like, get killed like, by one of them. Yeah, delusional self-assurance, and it comes in handy because he's he's like, "Oh no, no, I know what I'm doing. We've got this." So, <laughs> when the lights had gone out. The Gun Queen, which is Gaian, and her crew had taken the opportunity to rob their rivals blind, as well as settle a few old scores. As time as time dragged on, though, all semblance of law and order in two tunnels vanished, and things went from bad to worse. Then the lodge of the Meat Lord turned up, having ravaged the corpse factories up hive. The corpse grinders attacked two tunnels in their thousands, screaming for fresh meat. Only the rivers of flaming gunk the Gorbos siblings diverted as a defence had kept them alive. Though it was probably only a matter of time before the fires died and the two tunnels died with them. So we take on board, we have halot cults and other manner of chaos infestation growing and swarming the hives. And then we talk about them in the thousands. Now we also have the corpse grinders in their thousands as well. Corpse grinders in their thousands. Mm. It is. It is a horrendous place to be. And what I love about this is it actually mentions exactly what we're talking about. All semblance of law and order in two tunnels had vanished. Yeah. So 
even though early days these gangs are going, yes, we can take advantage of the blackouts, we can take advantage of all of this, they're now starting to realise, hang on, the, the, the more insane members of Necromunda are taking advantage of that and that is exploited by the corpse grinders able to get, generate thousands of, of, of followers to just literally just go wipe out other hives. But this is something that, ironically, if I'd continued reading, I wouldn't have had to ask it before, where I said the Cicatrix Maledictum is making things worse for everyone. And this is one of those instances where I genuinely believe you may have had one or two sort of cultists in the corpse factories. But with the with the the great wound opening up, um, you know, the the Lord of Skin and Sinew or Flesh and Sinew. I can't remember what they call corn on Necromunda. But this uh, Skin and Sinew, I think it is. Skin and Sinew? Yeah. Mm. The Lodge of the Meat Lord. It's it's taken root. And in my mind, this whole corpse factory has fallen to the cult and they've killed those right. that stood against them and Ooh. they know that two tunnels is just a couple of levels down. So that's when they've attacked. And it's ridiculous because um, only the rivers of flaming gunk the Gorvos siblings diverted as a defence kept them alive. Though it was probably only a matter of time before the fires died and two tunnels died with them. Now, people may not know what gunk is, and if you go to uh, the Book of Judgment, it is where we first met Gain and uh, Vanda. And gunk is a va the gunk tank which sits at the centre of two tunnels. It holds a vast reserve of fermented runoff from the hive city. And gunk is turned into weapons. It gunk rounds, basically. They yeah. hit you, it does bad things, and then you get set on fire. But Yeah, the bolt around. Yeah. The particular bolt of gunk round. Yes. Yeah. Gain has seen that instead of just defending her supply of gunk, it is more important that she turns it into a moat of flaming poison uh, yeah. because she can either win the battle and save her gunk but lose the war and lose her life or, mm. hey, she can, she can pour it out down the streets and hold these, you know, frothing maniacs at bay while everyone in two tunnels is basically handed a gun and told okay, go shoot them or else we aren't getting out of this. And yeah. it's, I think it's, I think it's great. I think it's a, a great example of, like you said before, at first, her and her crew robbed everyone blind, settled a yeah. few scores, you know, a couple of bodies would have been thrown into the gunk tanks, whatever. But then it's just like, um, nah, Nah, okay, we're all gonna we're all gonna call it quits for a minute, and let's focus on let's focus on staying alive, you know. Mm. And I, it shows. I mean, we talk about it constantly, especially in this first part of the episode, where the level of confusion and chaos that is spreading through Necromunda is just unheard of. So much so that you know, once your scores are settled, you're sort of thinking. Okay, things haven't quite got back to normal yet. 
what what's the scenario for us? The scenario is everyone grab a gun and yeah. man the walls. No, but I'm, what yeah. I'm saying is yeah, no, no. You, you're, you're waiting for that return of normality and it's not happening. No, it's not. And, yeah. yeah, you're absolutely right. This is the instance where the common man has taken a little bit longer than they should have and now they're going, uh, for lack of a better term, oh, shit. Yes, exactly. This, yeah. this is not good. Yeah, 100%. So moving away from your common man and heading to a little bit, to something a little bit different. Pale Consort Evelra embarks on a vast harvest of flesh for the Corpse Guild. Surrounded by half-mad followers, she delves deep into the Underhive to gather up the bounty of the fallen. Soon, corpse grinder cults are shadowing her entourage, looking for fresh meat, until they too become entranced by the strange consort and aid her in the desire to find ever more dead bodies. I mainly wanted to talk about that because that is awesome. This, is it? This, this pale consort who's just like, yep, Gotta collect me some corpses has somehow just convinced a whole bunch of blood mad corn worshipping corpse grinders to be like this chick's onto something. I, I I would like to subscribe to her newsletter. Yeah, I I do understand that because corn worshipping. Yes, let's go get some skulls, some blood, all of that. Cartel, our poster boy. Um, but. The the concept of gather up the bounty of the fallen, yeah. I, I I think they're actually adding to that bounty of the fallen. Yeah, one hundred percent. I was going to say they're not they're not gathering anything up for her. Yeah. They're I think they're like, hey, um, definitely go to dome. You know, two one C. Trust me. And Avella yeah. is just like, okay, we'll be there in about an hour. And the corpse yeah. runners go, all right, lads, run. So they bust it into zone 21C and everyone's just like, oh, I wonder who this is. Ah, cut, cut, cut. Yeah, murder, and, murder, murder. Yeah, Avelra shows up and is like, you corpse grinder fellas are just so lovely. Um, <laughs> thank you for helping me. And they're just, they're, I can imagine like, they're like proud puppies. They're like, oh, <laughs> you're, you're, you're welcome, Avelra. Yeah, oh, yeah thank little you. little scratch we... behind the ear. Yeah, I was going to say, can I get a little pat on the head? Um, I get a pat on the head and 11 skulls. Yeah. You keep the meat. I just need the cranium. But it's a, it's a yeah, yeah, true, actually. Very true. <laughs> that, that's all they'd be going for. Like, you can keep all the mushy bits. I want the, the scully bits. That's it. They're, they're not hungry. They just want trophies. That's the first time I've heard of the title of a um, pale consort as well, so I'm not well versed on the, uh, the old corpse oh, grinders. Man. They're, they're pretty high up. So the Pale Consorts are the actual guild delegation of yeah. the Corpse Guild. Yeah, yeah. And the models themselves, honestly, I think they are probably among the best miniatures released from Forge World in regards to Necromunda. So you get the uh, Pale Consort as well as two Corpse Grinders. Mm. They 
they're the they're they're corpse grinders, but without the cult, they don't have the masks. Yeah, yeah exactly. It just then you, get, you know glorified butchers. Yeah. yeah, they they are, and you get the the bone scrivener who's just, I'm convinced it is a squat in just like who's just convinced everyone that he definitely deserves to be there. All he does is carry the big stick, wear a cool mask and like a hat, and he's chilled. And then the two absolutely insane little med skulls that go with the and it's the Oh, the, those are the best. Oh man. Those are what I love about this set of miniatures is they're actually to me so iconically 40k. You know what I mean? Like they, they are they don't belong together. Yeah, they don't yeah. belong together at all. Mm. I love the little uh, the the piece on the top of our helmet as well. It's the the two-headed eagle of the Imperium without the actual wings. So it, it, they look like vultures, you know, the heads of vultures. I have never noticed that before. Oh, okay. Well, I think it looks cool. I think no, it's like a hundred percent. That's uh, rad. Yeah, it's like a yeah. These, these two watching vultures waiting to pick up the the corpses. I love the fact that her corpse grinders both obviously still have their mouths covered in traditional corpse grinder fashion. But the fact oh, they're wearing yeah. they're wearing gloves that go all the way up to their elbows. Yeah, I, th- I just think it's hilarious because you know you're effectively uh, topless. Or that one fella, he's topless. He's got the, the front of the overalls hanging open. He's got oh. an axe that's taller than him, and you know, yeah, but he has to be hygienic. <laughs> he doesn't want to get covered in the icky. I oh, guys, I don't want to get blood under my fingernails and have to clean it yeah. out again. Yeah. That's ridiculous. I've still got this face mask on. I can't chew it out of underneath my nails. I've got to use the chain axe. And, you know, that's how we got one-armed Pete. Yeah. <laughs> There's just one guy, one-armed Pete, just staring at a glove he can't put on. Like, you know, he's right. He's right. Still his bow glove. Good on you, Pete. Well done. <laughs> Could just turn one inside out and double glove. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's a safer side, double glove. Yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> anyway, yeah. The, the the idea that there's this vast sort of um, host of of corpse grinders out on the hunt, and they're creating they're creating the the dead bodies to harvest. They're yeah. like, oh yeah, we'll go find some dead bodies, but all they're really doing is just creating more and more carnage. Within, I think I said it earlier as well, the complete lawlessness of what's happening in the Underhive and actually probably more just the Underhive at the moment. It's just pure lawlessness. There's no, that lack of structure is is just debilitating. And the only thing that's really creating some structure is the the gangs forming together to create some sort of tether. But I love the fact that there's some sort of, uh, and I want to, uh, I understand we are G+. So I'm going to try and think of a way to say this without swearing. But there's some kind of warp trickery going on here that mm. Avelra ha- has this desire to do her job, to find, to gather up the, uh, the bounty of the fallen. That's just what they do. We get that. And yeah. then this corpse grinder cult has become somehow so entranced by her that it almost seems like 
they've that they've turned away from chaos a little bit. Something is right. Yeah, I, this I, is I the new scion. Yeah, I may be reading into this too much or in a different way, but it something about what she's doing has turned them away from what they should be doing. I like that. I like that because that to me, like it, it it's one of two options here. It's either a um a, a demon of corn or a messenger of corn or a tool of corn, right? Or it's exactly what you're saying. It's the opposite of that, turning them away, which means that surely the Lord of Skulls would be going, okay, there's a great rift across the Imperium. It's easy for me to uh, plant myself or plant an agent of mine on a planet, and I'm going to send a gribbly little nasty skull taker down to Necromunda. Yeah, I've actually completely skipped over the obvious one here, and that is she's uh, she's a not an avatar, but she's maybe a messenger of corn. I don't know why I didn't think about that. Well, no, no, but I like your idea better. I like your idea better because it's the the idea that that the corpse the corpse guild can actually draw the corpse grinders in more effectively by just simply saying we just need to harvest. Imagine if that's all they needed to do to um, to stop the corpse grinders. Be like, hey, you guys like making corpses, yeah? Yeah. Uh, and we like turning corpses into food, yeah? Yeah. Um, what if you go make a bunch of corpses and then we turn it into food? Let's get it on. <laughs> like, Absolutely. Actually, I'm just imagining, I'm actually imagining the leader of the corpse grinder cult to be Macho Man Randy Savage. Oh, why not? I mean, obviously. <laughs> oh, yeah, brother. I really can't do a macho, man. I'll leave that to our boys over at Necromacho. But, um, yeah, true. <laughs> while I, to stop me from talking about professional wrestling, because this isn't our professional red, wrestling podcast yet, uh, <laughs> how about you talk to us about Balthazar Van Zip? Yeah, this is, I really like this period, and it, it, it highlights exactly what I was talking about, the absolute chaos of what's going on. So narco lord Balthazar von Zepp reluctantly breaks open his armories and arms to anyone who can stand against the coming cultist hordes. Heavy stubbers, frag mines, mining lasers, and anything else that can be scavenged. Set up around the abyss leading down hive as Van Zepp's ragtag army waits, ready for the storm to come. This is exactly what I'm talking about. It is... It is these small, tiny elements within the hive that are trying to create a structure and a formality. And it, and it's not coming for some sort of altruistic means or desire to help those around them. They're saying, we're stuffed. If we try to defend ourselves with a ragtag group of 10 or 15 of us, it's not going to happen. Yeah. We need a ragtag army. We need, you know, 10 to 1,500 people. That's the only way we're actually going to go and survive this. And it, and it comes down to survival. Everything that we're talking about so far in Cinderac Burning is survival. There, there's, no, there's no extra element here of production or taking advantage of this or that, whatever, maybe a little bit from the Pale Consort taking advantage of the corpses. But there is no sort of nefarious way to, to gain an edge at the moment. It's It's... Mm -hmm. It's everything that we talk about is survival from, from this storm of cultists. 
Well, it's ridiculous because this was all happening in Dust Falls. We talked about it earlier. Mm. And this isn't just Balthazar Van Set. And whenever you talk about him, you have to use his whole name because he just sounds so cool. <laughs> this was not only Balthazar Van Zepp, but it was also a gilder next to him. And it was the mistress of coin, Minerva. So the two of them who hate each other and the, the, the two of them are forced to actually run Dust Falls together. Uh, there's a really cool Apocrypha Necromundus on the Warhammer community website. And it talks about it, how they're basically the whole time just being like, Ugh. Balthazar goes, hey, listen, I'm going to leave this giant bag of like with the, the dollar sign or whatever the imperial credit dollar sign. I'm just going to say dollar <laughs> sign. I'm going to leave this giant bag with a dollar sign on it on your desk and you're going to ignore the 17 guys carrying just suitcases that say not chems. And uh, <laughs> she's sort of like, okay, it's going to have to be, you know, 16 of those fellas because I definitely didn't hear nine people being thrown headfirst into the abyss last night. It was like, okay, that is acceptable. And she's yeah. Yeah, she's just the sitting there being like, just bribe me and I'll let you sort of be a bad criminal. Um, but it's crazy because the two of them have come together. These two who hate each other, who were forced to work together purely out of necessity previously, are forced to work together mm. now for survival. So... Van Zepp is opening up his factories and his warehouses of illegal weapons, and they're also scavenging, you know, uh, the mining lasers, and I can imagine um, whatever they've, they've managed to smuggle in or they're in the process of using. He's just like, okay, I'm going to lose some profit, but you know what's more important than profit? Me breathing. And they're, they're yes, throwing, exactly. I can imagine yeah. them, like... Uh, it's like in uh, Lord of the Rings, the Battle of Helm's Deep, you know, anyone who can, you know, put on a helmet and hold a spear, you know, you're, you're, you're in the army now, yeah, son. They're like, yeah, the, the image, what is it? It's like a 13 yeah. or 14-year-old kid. They're just like, <laughs> yeah, hold this. You're fighting a Hurakai. What's that? It's, it's basically it's a, a wall. It's a wall with a sword uh, and lots of teeth. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, on the plus side, yeah. if you live to tomorrow, you'll be a veteran. But yeah, you can imagine Van Zepp sort of just busting open his factories and Malerva sort of going, all right, any of you who owe the Guild of Coin money, go and get a gun from him and I'll forgive your debt. And so you'd have everyone in this settlement fighting for either, well, if I don't, they're going to shoot me, or if I don't, I have to pay her. Like it's, I, I think it's such a cool juxtaposition of the two of them from the opposite sides of the law. Yeah. Once again, yeah. like we've been talking about, everyone below that wall to the, leading into Hive City, everyone below there is willing to put aside their crap and, yeah, Dust Falls mm. and Balthazar Van Zet and Mr. Zakoin Malerva, I, I think they're a great example of it. Yeah, uh, totally, absolutely. And, I mean... We're talking about the chaos cultures that are emerging, the the obvious spread of uh, dissent and anarchy throughout the underhives and throughout the, the hives themselves. 
the pressure that's been put on and all these get all these like armies then let's not no. call them gangs anymore these these chaos armies are basically forming within the underhive and storming upwards and we haven't even touched yet really on what's happening in the ash oh, base either yeah which is just a whole another whole different threat you know we, we sort of mentioned a little bit about the ash race earlier but there's a threat coming from there, which is just mind-blowing. Well, I like how you said that there was, you know, these cults and the like rising within the Hive. Because around this point, in the depths of Hive Primus, a hundred pellet cults. And just pausing that read real quick. This is no longer just a couple of cults. Hundreds. Yeah. What did we say the average sort of gang in that was before? About ten blokes, right? Ten, 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 ten fighters. Yeah. Yeah. Let's say it's 200, the lowest point you can be, hundreds. That's 2,000 cultists, minimum. Minimum, yeah. I was about to say that. It's 2,000 plus. Yeah. And this is, I mentioned it earlier, we're talking about engagements and conflicts that are of a 40K yeah. level, no longer oh, a Necromundan level, no. you know? And that they're one of the apocryphas. Remember where they're like 5,000 credits? Oh. and. I know I got slammed, but, and we mentioned it before, it's perfect for this. It's absolutely perfect for totally, this. Okay. Just quickly, just totally outside of uh, Cinderac Burning, if you are based in Australia and would like to donate rats of any description to Spamuel's ultimate 5,000 creds of giant rats army, please reach out to us at underhivelawkeepers at gmail.com. I've gotten about 16 so far. And I think I needed, what was it? A hundred. I needed a hundred. Yeah, it's a hundred. So I need another 84. Let's just say, let's even 90 just to be safe. So please feel free to reach out. But back to the uh, episode there. Circle back. Yeah. (laughs) In the depths of Hive Primus, a hundred helot cults gather in the ruins of some city and begin erecting a massive idol to their dark gods. Those few underhivers left alive among the ruins are driven mad as they look upon the four twisted iron faces of the effigy, screaming and moaning as they try to claw out their eyes. Do you think it is the other guys from NSYNC that weren't Justin Timberlake? What the effigy is? That was the first thing that came to my mind. It was actually my second guess, but... Yeah, no, I thought it was the uh, the Beatles around about the time of <laughs> the White Album when they when they went to India, <laughs> the White Album. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> no, and then I I imagine it's just Yoko Ono blaring through the underhive at that stage. <laughs> but I'm sorry to any of the Beatles slash NSYNC fans, but that that's heavy metal. Uh, and that wasn't just an iron face joke. That is insane. These <laughs> hundreds of cults coming together. And you can imagine the helot cults. So there'd be a mixture of dedication to the four individual gods. There'd be chaos undivided. Yeah. Maybe a couple in there who are followers of Malal or whatever minor demon or entity they do worship. But they've come together to build this effigy on the ruins of some city. So... Mark that place off your holiday destination list. We are not going there. And <laughs> it's, it's so horrific to look at that 
these poor bastards who were left there are trying to scratch out their own eyes. But you know what breaks my heart about that is the it, and it says the few underhivers left alive among the ruins. These are the hard nuts. Yeah. These are ones who have survived all of the nonsense that these horrendous cults are doing, and they've still managed to survive. And then, boom, yeah. checkmate, you're done. We've got an idol that's just going to make you tear out your eyes for all the fighting you've done, for all the scrambling you've done to get away and hide and do whatever. Too bad. Didn't mean yeah. anything. That's actually sad. But it's, that's, once again, that's that warp trickery. Like, it, yeah, you know. ju- it just makes me sad. You've got to feel bad for them. I mean, that being said, when when the city you live in starts to sink into the you know the water or the ground or whatever, move, move, <laughs> go to dust falls, go to two tunnels, go to literally. Oh yeah, they sound so much better. There, there isn't a giant effigy causing you to claw out your own eyes at any of them that I know of. Yeah, that's true. It doesn't have that kind of tourist attraction that this that the underhive has yeah. there, but. Um... Yeah. So another thing is just that you've mentioned about like the minor gods and Malal and all that. Now this is this is a tangent. I apologize, people, but the idea that like there's all these hella gangs together and cults gathered together, and then there's people just going, "Oh yeah, I'm I'm a Malal worshiper," and you can just imagine like all the other four major gods, their gangs just just bullying them. Yeah. Just be like, yeah, right, oh, mate. Yeah, you you worship Malal, do you? Yeah, cool. There's like three of you. We're just gonna bully you. You you get the copies all the yeah. time. No, I like to think of them as basically apprentice chaos worshippers. It's <laughs> like, oh, I'll tell you, what, go to the uh, absolutely, go to the go to the cultist hardware store and grab me a uh, a long weight and some. Uh, black and white paint, but make sure it's in the same tin. <laughs> Stupid Malal <laughs> worshipper. <laughs> just sit there, just watching it, just like, I can't believe he's doing this. Oh, I, I hear, oh, go, go, I hear yeah. you clans didn't even get your own uh, traitor legion. Yeah, nice one. <laughs> Corn almost got two of them. <laughs> yeah. There was, there was five remaining, and you couldn't yeah, even get couldn't one. couldn't even get one. Well done. Nice one, clowns. <laughs> what? You yeah, couldn't yeah. even get the Night Lords, mate. Good one. <laughs> the angriest, the nastiest of the legions. And they were just like, nah, you guys are actually pretty dull. Yeah. Mal- Malal, is it? No. I'd much rather just scream into the void. Thank More you. like Malame. <laughs> Firstly, any any fans of Malal or Malice or um, anything like that, please don't take our words to heart. Uh it's just that your gods a joke, and no, yeah. not really. The Sons of Malice are probably the like the first fully painted Chaos Space Marine army I did. I then sprayed over them and turned them into Iron Warriors because I like good things. Yeah, and Malal couldn't even get the Iron Warriors no. either. All he had to do, all it had to do, was say, "I don't like Imperial Fists," so, and they would have been like, "We're yeah. on board." But oh yeah, boo! My you, apologies. You had me at tear the walls down. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's enough of my tangent. Circle, circling back. This is an information episode. That's right. we, we're not doing tangents. Um, we're not doing tangents. Information episode. Yes. So, working our way back to it. As the hive cities call, unseasonable storms ravage Necromunda. 
hundreds of these weather events combine to form a global storm, sweeping across the planet, burying it in ash and dust. Those outside the hives must survive as best they can, hunkering down in holsteads or behind settlement walls, while out in the gloom, the monsters and the raiders of the waste howl for their blood. What are the monsters, Sam? Well, I'm not allowed to talk about the, the C word, but we, <laughs> we don't know what lives in the waste. Like, take the ash waste nomads, for example. We know of two different types of uh, helamite. It mentions yep. multitudes of insects and creatures that, that the nomad managed to capture and domesticate. It Hell, it might be Sump Squatch or his Ash Waste's cousin, Ash Squatch. We, we, we don't know, but... The, <laughs> I just I realised what you did yeah. there. This is this is ridiculous. Like the Great Storm, I think is such a cool aspect of the entire yeah. succession because, firstly, it shows us that there is no respite out of the hives. No, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't matter where you are. You think, oh, it's getting really bad in the hives. What if I head out? What if we go to one of these other yeah. settlements? Nah, buddy. It's. I'm sorry. It's about to get a whole heap worse. Yeah, it's not even about the other settlement. It's your your journey to there, or lack of journey. What people weren't realizing is when you're traveling out there, all of a sudden your power cell in your vehicle or your Prometheum engine, it just dies, and you're now looking at this storm that is rolling towards you. Because, and this is this is a crazy thing. Because anyone who's listens to us knows. We are not scientists. I play with electricity and Nathan digs holes. But we <laughs> don't true. understand science. But we know little things like Somnus comes along. It's going to affect the undersea oceans. And, and you're going to get some sort of weird celestial Il Nino going on on Necromunda. And all of a sudden... It is. Yeah, it's not. It is an El Nino. You're going to get... Insane, like it's that I don't know, low, high pressure systems with northeast, southwesterly winds all coming together, and you're gonna have like you've seen videos of those fire tornadoes. Yes. Like, imagine a fire tornado, but instead of just fire, it's also razor sharp shards of silica that are also yeah. slashing you. So it's slashing you and burning you at the same time, and you're. You've filled up your uh, Ridge Runner with fresh Promethium because you know on three quarters of a tank you can get to that next settlement. Your engine died, and you're, all you can see is the settlement you're going to off in the distance, the place you just left mm. right behind you off in the distance, and that storm's coming at you damn quick. Yep. You're, you're not in a good way, and it's affecting... All the weather. So, from the cage towers of the Zalkra penal hive, prisoners and enforcers alike watch the toxic waters of the poison sea surge higher and higher until bubbling waves were breaking across the skin of the city. I don't know the difference. Rot yeah, rut roll. Um, yeah. I don't know the difference between like sea level and where the Zalkra penal hive sits, but. 
it's clearly a very big distance if they're all watching it. And even the enforcers are just like, um, do you guys want to go higher? No, like... Yeah, exactly. They're looking at their prisoners and going, how do we collectively survive yeah. this? You know, how do we get out of this? This, there we this is not uh, a party we wish to partake in anymore. But, yeah, I, I, I love what you say about the, the weather it's the whole weather system is is up the duff. Yeah. You know what I mean? So we, they they talk about the, a place called Scum Lake and anybody with a dirt bike or a dust runner just races, but the, the race is away from there, right? But what gets me is they leave the stragglers to be swept away by the rising acid tide. Mate, you're already in such a hostile, horrible environment out in the ashways and then... You're you're having to contend with acid, an acid tide, just dragging you down. And you know what it reminds out. me yeah. of? Do you remember when we were talking about ambles? And it's like I want you to know, talk about ambles. Yeah, someone trips, mm. and you're just like, "Listen, buddy, I I love you, but I ain't stopping to help yeah, you right yeah, now." Yeah, that's that's what this reminds me of. Where they're like, it doesn't matter if you've saved my life in a gang fight mm. or. Where siblings or best friends mm. or whatever, like if if I stop to try and save you, I'm going to die. Yeah, exactly. There is mm. there is no. We both might make it out mm. of this. It's not an eighties action film. Mm. All right. If I stop or I slow down to try and help you, we're both dead. So it's easier for me to just keep going and deal with that PTSD later on. <laughs> yeah, true. Just, I want to come back a little bit to what you said there about the ambles. Um, what, like, all of this that's going on, so the hives themselves, yes, we know, it's affecting the hive populace and so forth. But the, now we're in the ashways. It's affecting the creatures and, the, I guess, the monsters of of Necromunda and how is it affecting them? That, that, that is something that's certainly not touched on at all within within the books. Um, but it's an interesting concept. How would, like, a, a family of Ambles would be reacting to this because we know they have an, a semblance of um, sentience. So mm -hmm. they're, surely they'd be reacting. And so can they dig deeper? You know, would they just go deeper and down or would they... I don't know, would they flee somewhere? I don't know where, but yeah. I like to think they come together in almost like a parliament where they all get together and they all sit down and you've got the, you know, the dig deeper party and the dig up stupid party. But, you know, they, they, have, they offer their, their insights mm -hmm. and, you know, they consider the pros and cons of each side of the argument. And then they realise that they're like nine foot tall, razor-limbed, insectoid killing machines and just go, let's go eat someone. But no, I think they're probably doing amble things and are either reveling in the insanity because it's dark, they can see in the dark, That's and true. a bunch of scared yeah. people are running through the tunnels. Yes, right. They are... It's basically Meals on Wheels, <laughs> the Ample Edition. Right. That is, I, I forgot about that, the fact that they can see in the dark. Yeah. I, I genuinely don't think, don't get me wrong, I reckon some of them are in the ash wastes, mm. and that's what 
some of the stuff we're seeing because mm. remember they don't really mutate they maintain it's true because they're, they're resistant they to chaos yes yeah their minds are pretty pretty schmick when it comes to this stuff mm. so any of them in the in the ash waste i reckon are just like i'm just gonna burrow into this hole here mm. we're all gonna wait till this crap rolls over mm. and then actually hold hold my hiver, I'm going to go attack that guy real quick and we'll take him down the hole with yeah, us. Yeah, that's a um, snack for later. Yep. Yeah, but then the ones in the underhive, like in the tunnels or mm. whatever, are really just living their best lives. They would and, be, wouldn't they? Yeah. You know, yeah. Like, it, it sounds dumb, but I, that's genuinely what I reckon they're doing. Yeah. They're just like, yep, sweet. Yeah, why wouldn't they? Of course. Yeah, okay. You've answered my question. But I, what you mentioned about the, the tunnels and all that, they... There's another part here where they talk about the necromagnium underway and yeah. the the residents from Spoil Town fleeing, going into that underway and sealing it behind them as well. So this is one of the great tunnels and they're just like, yeah. no, nah, no more. We, we're completely yeah. locking off. But it, it's a question of survival again as well. So once they're sealed in, what's on the other side? And what but resources do they have? It's a community making that decision. They're coming together and going, all right, so we're going to give it, you know, we're going to give it an hour. Anyone who's inside by then, sweet, we close the doors, we can all survive. But if if they're still out there by that point, it doesn't matter who it is, we're closing the doors. And that that would be some harrowing, just heartbreaking stuff. Like, But that being said, you're closing it off. So you're closing off... An entry, but possibly also an exit, because yeah, that's what I mean. What, tunnels, what else is in yeah, there? Those tunnels go all through Necromunda. They they crisscross the entirety yeah, of the planet. Yeah. We know that. Mm, mm, 100%. And um, I yeah, I would be very wary of doing that. I think it is very short term gain, possibly long term pain. Yeah, true. I, I look. I mean, it's. Circling back to to and I keep using that phrase. Circling back, uh, circling back to the read itself. But um, yeah, I guess that's a good segue into the the hivers and uh, the fact that they're fleeing from the cities as well. Well, you actually mentioned it before. They were going to be running away from the cities to get a little bit safer, and hivers fleeing the chaos in the cities plunge into the wastes in great caravans and convoys seeking the dubious safety of the outland settlements. As the great storm descends, many become lost, while others are buried alive under waves of scalding ash. Those few who make it to the gates of places such as Cinderac City discover a new hell about to descend upon them. Cinderac City, I wonder if we'll hear about that a little bit later Mm, on. Kind of feels like we need to. It it (laughs) sounds cool. But, yeah, this is... This is that great mindset of, you know, the the ash waste is always greener on the other side, <laughs> where they know, they can see that the hive cities have, yeah, they've gone to hell. Uh, you've got cultists boiling up from the underhive. And enforcers keeping you pinned. Enforcers keeping you locked in a hab block and you don't even live there. Yeah. They have none of your favourite foods. <laughs> and you, a, lot of these, a lot of these poor bastards are just going... Nah, we I gotta get out. Yeah. We're we're out of here. Mm. Grab whatever you can. We're heading down to the wall and there'd just be, you know, friends and families and uh comrades, people working on the same shift as you, their next door neighbors, brothers, cousins, 
mate is a gang member and is just like, all right, yeah, cool, you can jump on, you can jump on our ride, let's go. Yeah. And they think it's going to be the easiest way to get away from all this. But, yeah, so many of them become lost while others are buried alive between waves yeah. of scolding. That's nasty. That's... But the lost is hope. The lost is hope. <laughs> <laughs> Just bear with me here. I'm trying to find the silver lining. Okay. The lost okay. is hope, and I, I can envisage gangs that are, are made from, from the lost elements of these hives. So once everything settles, surely there'd be enough survivors out in the out in the ashways who aren't nomads, who aren't affiliated with a singular gang either. And they would form their own communities out there. They would survive in some way, shape or form. Okay. Gang idea. Exactly. I'm sorry, but I have to do it. I have to do it. Uh, all those people who got lost got eaten by that family of Ambles before. That's the gang idea. <laughs> Or they're they're falling into crevices they didn't see. They're wandering off the roads which are the safest, and I use that term very liberally, they are the safest method of getting from one side of Necromunda to another. Just, just, they might have gotten lost, but... They're survivors, mate. mate. Apparently not. Have hope. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, honestly, if the if the wastes don't get them, the nomads are going to. They defend themselves against the nomads. They hold true. And we have survivors, and we have some hard nuts coming back into the hive after all this passes. We'll agree to disagree in that. You're, you're wrong. wrong. Uh, so, anyway, a dozen tribes gather, gather under the banner of the Grey Waste Walkers, with the mother of scavengers herself leading an assault on the major settlements of Cinderac City. Oh, there, there it is, mentioned. Yep. Palamite riders lead the charge, the storm offering cover from the guns on the walls, while raiders sneak into the city itself through hidden underways to sow havoc and murder amongst its inhabitants. This is the, uh, I guess this is the crux of it, isn't it? It is Cinderac burning. So this is, I guess, the, the beginning of it. The... The brutality starts with the grey waste walkers. Man, I really wish we'd done an episode on every house gang and every noble house and every faction, including like the the squats and the nomads and everyone before that, because there's so much stuff that just makes me want to talk about them so much, but I'm like, got to hold myself back a little bit. The grey waste walkers are insane. So we've mentioned them a few times already. The Grey Waste Walkers is really the imperial name for the group of nomads known as the Sungar. They are the greatest, and I'm guessing either largest or most powerful, we actually don't know, tribe of the equatorial wastes. And that means nothing good for the city of Cinderac. Now... They are led by the mother of scavengers, and she is actually a great spirit. She's effectively a nomad demigod, and she's worshipped by the Sungar. It's often said that she stalks the ash wastes surrounded by a flock of wild grapple hawks and has become a symbol for the horror the Sungar embody to the Imperials of Necromunda. 
Like. And the, yeah, okay. So, the big nasty. Yeah, she she ain't friendly, basically. <laughs> and she's currently at the head of a group of people, and this may colour you shocked, who ain't friendly to anyone who ain't one of them. Yeah, right. It's like they're, they're, they're out to destroy, oh, for use of a better term, out to destroy civilization, really. Yeah, you know, well... Not their civilization. Well, yeah, but their yeah, oh. what we would consider civilization. Exactly. What the sorry, what the Imperium would consider civilization. So yeah. they're they're going. This is our time to shine. And almost it almost beggars a question. Like, is there some sort of chaotic taint within them? Is there some sort of malign element that is guiding them? You know, sort of like our well, corpse guild. We, we don't know. Um, the the Ashwaste Nomads. Oh God, I wish we'd talked about them previously. Yeah, um, Yeah. <laughs> the you know what? Let's just cancel these three episodes. Let's just do let's just do an Ashwaste Nomads episode. All right. Hello and no. welcome to another. No, no. no. Um, <laughs> Could do a Vance Nomads. Not funny. <laughs> a little bit funny. That is, that is, not, that is not funny. Um, <laughs> the, what was I saying? <laughs> the Ashwaste Nomads. Yeah. The Ashwaste Nomads are something we genuinely don't know a lot about them. And whether they are tainted by chaos or not, whether they're even capable of being tainted by chaos, we don't know. Because the reality is we don't know if they are human. Yeah. They attack you. You might kill some of them. You will never find a body. You might find some dead bugs. You will never find the body of a nomad. Yeah, right. And they are in touch with the wastes in a way that your average Imperial will never be. That, you know, their their storm callers are a great example of that. But this is not an Ash Waste Nomads episode. (laughs) No, it is not. So I'm going to stop and move the conversation away from this and go back to the fact that they are, these nomads are attacking not just a minor settlement. They are attacking an enormous city. Yeah. Like they're they're almost sieging it really, aren't they? They are. Yeah. Right. So it's actually, there's a, there's a good little part from, from Cinderac burning, which mentions that it says in Cinderac city days of bitter siege had turned into a bloody stalemate between the Shungar and the clanners, the plan, the plains around the city's walls, guard by fire and littered with wrecks. So it, it's a colossal battle. This it is. Yeah. It is not just. Oh, do you know what? It makes a fair point here, though. What's the chances of finding an, an Ashway Snowman body now? Because there'd be lots of them. Sure, they'd be able yeah, to get but one. For how, but, but for how long? Like as soon as you as soon as you go out there to try and grab one of them. One of them's going to shoot you. Got to risk it for the biscuit, mate. Mate, that biscuit ain't worth <laughs> it. Um, you know, you, you cruise on out there on your ridge runner and next thing you know, they're firing a missile at you because they're not, they're not here to have fun, buddy. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'd, I'd still risk but it. <laughs> you wouldn't. They wouldn't let you outside. <laughs> but we talk about them, you know, effectively besieging this city. 
And, you know, you said it there, the Halamite Riders lead the charge, the storm offering cover from the guns on the walls while raiders sneak into the city itself through hidden underways. They're already in the city. They know these passages into Cinderac, which, by the way, is the largest settlement in the Ash Wastes. Mm. So this isn't even just a big one. This is the big one. Yeah. It's, you know... And they're still combating the storms as well at the same time. So this is, yeah. this is the Ash Wastes in there, the, the ideal environment, fighting in this. And the, the, all the outer, outer abs and outer surrounding sort of hives, oh, smaller hives or even just like settlements, are just getting completely overwhelmed and destroyed by the environment and the nomads, and then you're also, and this is the, the the sort of a carbon copy of what's happening them is happening to Cinderac City, except it's got the capacity and the infrastructure to, to hold off. But the, the not really the the Ashways nomads and the Sungar specifically have raided and sacked whole sections of Cinderac City multiple times previously. Oh righto. Okay, I was I was yeah, I was they, unaware of that. Yep. Yeah, they've they've done this multiple times, just never in these numbers. And they do this. They get in. They attack. They pillage. They loot. They murder. They kill. And they're gone before anyone can really get back to them. They disappear back into the wastes. No one knows where they go. So for them to be the ones attacking Cinderac right now, not shocking. Yeah, right. Okay, that that's I still I still believe there's like a a higher purpose to it rather than just destruction of of Cinderac City, you know, rather than just destruction of the populace. I, I feel like there's there's a guiding hand behind all this. Maybe it's Malal. <laughs> <laughs> the guy that couldn't even get the night lord right. Okay. Um <laughs> no, he's malice now, isn't he? He's malice. Yeah, malice. yeah, yeah. Focusing still on the ash waste, but moving just a little bit away from Cinderac temporarily. Miners from Svarthol defend Thermal Convergence Tower K19B Yarl from a horde of Urnhag nomads. Under the looming spectre of Hive Secundus on the horizon, the squats hold back a dozen attacks from the Dustwall Crawler tribes until their power packs, bullets, and grenades are spent. In a last act of defiance, Charter Master Horgum Cog triggers the tower's purge protocols, drowning the surrounding land in caustic fog and killing squats and nomads alike. And I say right here, right now, sounds like a win-win. <laughs> Who do you hate more, squats or all oh. I genuinely had someone tell me to make sure not to invite you on to do the Orlock episode because you were going to ruin it for me. Oh no, I wouldn't ruin it. I'd be asleep. But <laughs> I, you know what? Honestly, the squats. Because they're dwarves. I don't like dwarves. They're frustrating. They're annoying. And Steve plays them. I was going to say, doesn't Steve play them? Um, Okay, so you like the fact that uh, Hawkeye Cog has 
drowned the surrounding land in caustic fog and killed squats and nomads alike. I think that shows... Because you can't imagine squats giving up. Like, say what you will about them. They're tenacious. Mm-hmm. They're, they're going to stick it out. And for them to have these purge protocols, basically self-destruct weapons, um, that's mental. That's, that's, that's crazy. I, I love the fact that they're willing to just be like, well, we've got no bullets. We've got no power left in the last guns. We've got no grenades left. Um, you know, someone stole my hammer. So I'm just going to kill everyone. But do you know what? I agree with you. I, I, I really like that they did that. I'm, I'm agreeing. You say. <laughs> just, just, just go to the next one. Just go to the next one. You are depressing. Uh, I'm not depressing. I'm just showing you how to alienate part of our audience. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to, to all three people out there who play squats. Exactly. I'm sorry for his actions. Um, <laughs> For the rest of you who simply own iron head squats and bathe in your opponent's tears when those iron head bolt guns open fire and kill literally entire gangs, I'm less sorry, but I'm still sorry. <laughs> All right. Next point, because I'm happy to move on from that one. As the great storm plunges the Outlands into twilight, the Delacroix are seen moving among the wasteland settlements always at key battles or great disasters. Survivors claim to have seen the bald, cloaked clan agents watching from a distance, as if they were cataloging the misery of Necromunda, or perhaps bearing witness to its demise. Taking notes, in my opinion. Do you remember, was it Secundus we were talking about where... Everyone was just like, yeah, key people were just being snatched up by the Delark because they knew what was going to happen to Secundus. And You're right, it was Secundus, yes. Yeah. yeah, and then they're just like, these people, and you even made the remark of, yeah, but you know, they'll be taking that important doctor or that important noble, but their friends or family or retainers, you know, unfortunately didn't make it. Um, yeah. I imagine the Delark are possibly doing the same thing here, where they're taking notes, they're watching who's forming alliances with who, mm. who who's attacking who, and yeah, like you said, taking notes where it even says as if they were cataloging the misery of Necromunda. Yeah, and uh, and so I, I personally think they this was probably the greatest cataclysm that Necromunda's seen, and definitely the greatest cataclysm that the Delacroix would have seen as well, as once they become properly known as the House of Shadow. So, but I believe that they would understand that this is not the end. Like, the Imperium is too big a beast. Necromunda is too large an element to just simply be taken down by what's going on now. So I think probably with a bit of foreknowledge, they're sitting there going, well, let's take some notes exactly what you're saying. Who's allying with who? But more importantly, where are the weaknesses now? Who? Oh, yeah. yeah. Who? Who is vulnerable? What is vulnerable? What is valuable? What is profitable? And exactly how do we maintain dominance and control? I didn't even think about it like that. That's very yeah, because you're like playing squats. That's, that's some real deliquation thinking, right yeah. there. Welcome to the fold, brother. Well. <laughs> 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 well, 
moving from the baldest house to the best house, <laughs> the house Vansar Archaeotech, Sienna Argon, uses the great darkness as an excuse to trigger her electrotheric shield over Hive Primus. Tapping into tens of thousands of plasma generators and power junctions across the outskin of the hive, her techs run cables between darkened habs and domes before Sina flips the switch and then promptly vanishes in a blaze of light, leaving nothing but the faint smell of ozone. Now, a lot of you don't realize uh, I actually know what happened here. She transported herself to the nearest McDonald's. Uh, which just happened to be dead centre of where Katia used to be. <laughs> and unfortunately, she is not coming back. She definitely didn't carry the one somewhere. And instead of shielding the hive, she has just shot herself across dimensions or something. She shows up in the Marvel Universe just like, what <laughs> is this? Um, I just, I like the idea that somebody could spend, and what is she? She is... She's an architect, so she's she's very important. She's She's a clever little duck, isn't she? You spend your whole life practicing, working with all this stuff, and being a scientist, unlike us, you're so intelligent. A cough will put you down for about a week, but you're the smartest little cookie. And then when you go to flick your switch on on your life's work, your project, you end up on the uh, the footstool of Corn or Nurgle. Yeah, <laughs> you can just imagine she she pops up and she just turns around and Corn is literally sitting there on his throne, looking down at her like, um, I I do do I know you? <laughs> she just um, yes. It's like cool. All right. Blood for me, I guess. <laughs> Squish. Done. Yeah. Poke. She just explodes. But what if what if it was she'd never actually planned on doing the shield? What if she genuinely just built the largest teleporter possible and she wanted to send herself to I don't know, Terra? What if she just wanted to get off planet? That's true. That's true. It's but if she was going there, that sounds like a terrible idea. Anyway, uh, I'm not going to cut that because I want everyone else to suffer through that joke as well. Joke, you said it. Yes, it counts. Um, Anyway, I like the idea of the shields. I was going to mention it earlier, actually. You know, when Zeltra and so forth are just getting absolutely hammered. So why why are there no shields? You know, and obviously we know, like you know, shields are reserved for titans and for combat and all these other things that. Hive cities have shields. They do. A lot of hive cities. Oh, once again, turning this into a forty k podcast. If you look at the Gaunt's Ghost novels uh, during the Siege of Vervet. Oh right, yeah, uh, you're right. You remember yes. where they actually have those huge mm. shields there. Um, so shield technology is doable when it comes to hive cities. It obviously has to be much more powerful and much larger. Mm. Um, it's also usually only really focused on the buyers as opposed to the hive mm. vervin hive uh, what is a key a great example in regards to this because when the chaos forces and you know spoiler if you haven't read the gaunt ghost books ghostly i don't know what you're doing with your life get around them they're fantastic <laughs> but when the forces of chaos fire on vervin hive 
it's the outer habs, the manufactorium areas and that sort of thing. They just get torn apart because they don't have shields over them. They that's where the that's where the the cattle lives. Oh, like, we're not <laughs> we're not worried about protecting them, but we need to make sure our our our, our barbers and our you know bottle shops and that sort of stuff for where they serve our kind of people. We need to make sure they're they're protected. Yeah, right. But yeah, so there definitely would be shields. I think maybe that uh, the 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 electrotheric shield over Hive Primus was more to do with maybe the weather possibly blocking out the effects of the Cicatrix Maledictor. That makes this sense. Is, yeah. Is, that's where I'm yeah, okay. going with it. So it's almost like um, a, oh, I don't want to say it, but a psychic shield, but it's yeah. it, it's sort of like then do, can you create a technology without the aid of psychers to create Geller Shields. Yeah, but there's, there's uh, and this is showing my lack of knowledge about the, the Grey Knights, but surely the Gallifield is the Gallifield not also... No, man, Gallifield, Gallifield is from, is around ships, like warp ships. What you am put I the thinking? Gallifield on. Oh, uh, right. But uh, you're thinking of... Um, Aegis, Aegis suit. Uh, Aegis, yeah. yeah. But is, there not the, is not the Gallifield governed by a psyker or a choir of psychers? Nah, the the Gellerfield effectually effectively forms a bubble of reality again around itself. So as it's traveling through the warp, it basically wraps itself in a section of real space to travel through the warp because That's entities from within right. the warp can't get can't exist within true space, you know? Yeah, it's true. I so that's maybe that's what old uh Sina Argon was trying to make. So she's making like something a, that a, already exists. So yeah, yeah, but she was trying to do it on like a a massive scale, big enough to cover a hive. Like that's a big Geller field. Yeah, it's huge. That's monstrous. This is significantly bigger than uh one around the old Cobra Destroyer. Uh, yes, that's my thought on maybe what she was doing. Um. I, I like the idea that she was really just trying to transport herself away from Necromunda. I, I like to think she's just gone, well, I've got a bunch of, like, apprentices. I'm just going to make them plug into as many things as possible, and I'm going to zip myself to the other side of the galaxy. And, yeah, she accidentally winds up in Korn's throne room. Yeah, okay. I can, I can, I can go with that. That's cool. That's fun. Yeah. Or she ends up on, like, a real a feudal planet where... The most advanced technology is like the wheel, and because she's an archaeotech obsessed with technology, there's just there's just nothing. Oh, she just goes bonkers because she's bored. So she goes so bonkers because she's just like, oh, how's how check out this cool new rake I invented? And they're like, <laughs> it's got two extra teeth on it. I have a rock on a stick. Like, yeah. you can leave me alone, yeah. weirdo. <laughs> Just living on turnips. Oh, um, that's actually a better outcome for her. I like that. It's good. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. <laughs> next point. All across Necromunda, tribes of Ashwa. They're back. All across Necromunda, tribes of Ashwaste nomads emerge from the Outlands. Open fighting occurs in the shadows of Primus, Rothgall, Temenos, 
and hundreds of other hive cities as enforcers and their gang allies defend against the outland invasion. Boom. Finally, they're doing something again. What? What do you mean, finally doing? The enforcers. Oh, enforce- I thought you were talking like, about the nomads. <laughs> like, they've gone completely oh. off tap and you're like, oh, they're back yeah. at it again. Yeah. It's about time those, oh. those lazy nomads did something. Yeah. You know, but finally, the enforcers... I love this. The enforcers and their gang allies. The enforcers will literally only get involved because they've looked over and they're like, man, that's a lot of people riding bugs. Yeah. Uh, all right, grab your auto guns. Come on, lad. Okay, yep. Stop punching that guy in the face. He has to come help us kill these bug riders. Yeah, true. But like, the idea of the gang allies is what I really like, is that there, there's definitely going to be some shady, underhanded deals going on with that. It's some oh, promises, God. some promises that were never intended to be fulfilled. And Also, uh, hey, if you guys help us fight these, uh, these nomads, we're not going to arrest you. And the gangers are just looking at each other like, we're going to shoot these guys as soon as these nomads are gone. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah, we are. Yeah. All right, cool. 100%. <laughs> yeah, just be a case of like the enforcers would just be thinking the exact same thing as soon as these nomads are dealt with. Yeah. Just turn the bolters on them and just let loose, lads, because I can guarantee you we've given them an inch. They're going to take every mile they possibly can. But I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just a bit of a softie, but I absolutely love the idea of the unification of the gangs and the enforcers and so forth. Do you know what it sort of gives me the tingle of? Of this is like a a guard regiment with the enforcers as the officers and the and the stormtroopers and the the seniority and the gang members as their regiments. You mean that you're literally describing the Savlar Chemdogs? Yeah, they're, true. They're, yep. they're prisoners that are rounded up, and a bunch of arbites are like. All right, dickheads, here's some drugs. Yeah. Go fight them. Yeah. Keep whatever you can scavenge. And that, that's exactly what this would be like as well. It'd be like, yeah. damn it, neck idea. Neck idea. Yeah, Necromundan gang. Like a Necromundan, oh, is, it, is it a gang idea or is it an army idea? It's an army idea. Oh, it's an army idea. That's... Yeah. Scavenge. Wait. Scavengers, like proper scavengers. Like, but it only. It's, wait, no, it's just. It's... It's just the Savlar Chemdogs. Yeah, it is. I'm basic, you're basically saying, Spamuel, start a Savlar Chemdogs army. Well, I have a thing. huge pile. Yeah. Oh, I have so many. Oh, you know, it'd be a great... Co- and I'm sorry, listeners, you wanted a Ranthian succession. Um, you know, it'd be an absolutely great squad. Mm-hmm. Remember how I started those Sawtooth Harlots? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Boom. Do an entire squad of sawtooth harlots and then like different Escher that had been rounded up and sent to this particular like penal regiment and one of the leaders is a sawtooth harlot. So she she would run like the harlot squad. That's cool. And then you'd have like a squad of Orlocks yeah. who would be like your um you'd do them all on bikes and you'd do them as your rough riders yeah. Yeah. and your Goliath would be heavy weapons. Yeah, that'd be mad. No, no. Uh, We can start a 40K podcast later, Nathan. (laughs) Uh, We we need to finish our Necromunda episode. This particular episode, in in fact. But yeah, Uh, so the Ashway Snowmads are back, basically. 
kicking up the dirt, yeah. causing trouble. The fact that they're in the shadows of Primus, Rothkel and Temenos is just it, it's terrifying for all those. It just shows the, the presence and the capacity of the nomads. You know, the bit that they somehow still have communications. Oh, true. Didn't even think of that. How? They're attacking. They're attacking everywhere. And I think it's with those, the, the spirits that they have. I believe the spirits will be somehow communicating with each other, leading their respective tribes, leading their respective coalition of tribes against these hive cities. Because somehow, you actually said this earlier, they are less reliant mm. on technology and everything. And we said they have a deeper sense of connection with Necromunda as a planet. Yeah. They, they are getting out of this somehow. They are able to get around the great... They, they control the storms. They live within the storms. It doesn't affect them. Yes. Okay. I, mate, I still keep harping back. There is some sort of darker, higher purpose to them. It's not just... Absolutely there is. They're either chaos afflicted or the silent ones have found another way to affect... No. <laughs> No. I'm pretty I'm pretty sure the latest uh model released by Games Workshop that is an Ashwaste Nomad, I'm pretty sure she has hair. Oh right. Maybe it's just a different look they're going for. You don't know that. You don't know the the, the machinations of the silent ones. I've I've said that. I've said that I'm pretty sure she has hair. But then I'm looking at it I'm looking at the book here and I'm just like we can't see if she has hair. She's got a hood on. Yeah, same. She might She might be a Delark. I reckon they're all Delark. That would actually be... It would make sense in a way. But no. That, that, would, that would be the worst gotcha moment <laughs> if it turns out all the nomads were actually just Delark. Oh, my God. There'd be riots. There'd be riots everywhere over that. It would be so disappointing, all this history and this lore and this background. It's just like, oh, no, they're just all the mayonnaise boys. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. How would they get that much mayonnaise into the wastes? Where do they find the eggs? <laughs> no, you have that. Um... That's what I'm angry about. Yeah, well, Sam, if you're angry about that, then surely you'd be angry about the assassination or attempted assassination of Lord Helmore. I am not going to lie. I'm a little bit upset that you have dropped that bombshell on our audience <laughs> in such a nonchalant manner. Uh, I'm, I'm going to take a sip of my drink here. <laughs> <clears throat> Scummers, it is my solemn duty to inform you that there has been an attempt on the life of our noble and beloved planetary governor, Lord Gerontius Helmore, or as we like to call him, Ronti. Now, although no individual group has taken uh, ownership of this evil and horrific act, if you do have any information in regards to this attempted assassination, please report as soon as possible to your local enforcer precinct. That being yeah, said, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> someone knifed Ronty. Uh, someone knifed him. Good. <laughs> Wait, so you're upset that I sort of took away the gravity of the situation. You're like, oh, just somebody shanked old J-boy. 
I want Shanks, G-Boy. Yeah. Honestly, we should get that tattooed to ourselves. <laughs> no, I was upset that you were so nonchalant about it. When I did it, it sounded like almost like philosophy handed down from throughout the ages where I was imparting knowledge and wisdom as well as empathy to our audience. Maybe they're quite upset that Ronty just got shanked. Did you ever think nah, about bro. that? Yeah, he's, nah, he's, me either. He's the gang leader. <laughs> he's the gang leader of a gang he can't play. He he literally looked at one of his kids. Was it was it Ronty that looked at one of his kids? Was like, you look like that old painting of uh, Martek Hellmayer. Out to the wastes with you. Yeah, was yeah. him. He's <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. At this stage of the succession, everything that's going on so far. I like to think this is where the succession really starts. And although we've made light of the situation, it is actually insane how this occurs. Now, it's not like you can get up to a planetary governor being some, you know, everyday, you know, gun for hire. The situation that has pulled this assassination attempt into being is it it's it's ridiculous and it's just ridiculous in the truest of necromundan sense gerontius helmore was attacked by something that's known as a biomortic assassin now what's it really called sam it's a murder cyborg (laughs) (laughs) and I'm going to read a really quick little section here. There is an amazing write-up on pages 14 and 15 of the Arantian Succession book. And just this one little section here. To give you a little bit of a preface for this, the assassin has snuck into the, the Imperial House's personal spire where Gerontius is meeting with his advisors, his captains of his guard, nobles and all that, in a place of the Corpium Mundus. It is actually the war room of the Imperial House. To those who witnessed her, she must have seemed little more than an apparition as she leapt across the chamber. The gene-hanced guards, with their wired reflexes, moved as if in a daze, their bolters rising with painful lethargy. As she cleared the hololith, her slender booted feet crashing down through ghostly hives and armies, Helmore's eyes met hers. She could see no fear or hatred, only dumbfounded confusion as he tried to comprehend what was happening, or what was about to happen. With mere centimetres between her and her target, the power blade unfolded from her forearm and her internal static generator let loose a sudden burst killing the images over the hololith and popping Lord Helmore's conversion field in a brilliant explosion of light. Then, the power blade was biting through layers of ceramite and mesh until she felt it find the master of Necromunda's flesh. In a crimson spray, Helmore pitched back. The suspenses overloaded by the static generator failed and sent the massive man crashing to the floor. That is... a... a weapon in human form. She she is there prepared for any instance of self-defense where her internal static generator blows out his conversion field because 
obviously a planetary governor is going to have, you know, conversion field or, you know, and it's going to have ceramite armor with mesh underneath it. Like, he's, he's going to be the most protected man on the planet, but whoever has sent her here has already prepared for all this. 100%, 100%. And there's, a, there's another, <clears throat> I'll just read another little bit just from that to really emphasize what you're talking about <sighs> from the same read. Under, under stretched out sin skin, weapons are hidden in our arms and torso, ready at the flicker at a thought to kill. So this is an optimized, functional, like pure murder cyborg. It, it is designed just to hunt, kill, murder with a singular task. And in this particular time, place and time, it is to kill Gerontius. Now, something that we, we can't do the whole read of that little assassin assassination attempt or because we don't want to get sued yes exactly (laughs) is she when she approaches the door to the the war chamber is she there's two guards there she kills them really quickly melt charges the door and then he's in the room and when you read it the, the speed at which she moves is just phenomenal it's sort of like this belt charge goes off and she's already bounding across the table the, the hollow table to kill Gerontius. It's amazing. This, this like page and a half of text, mm. it all happens over like correct like you please if, if you've interpreted this in a different way, correct me, but this happens over seconds. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But like under a minute. I would say yeah. absolutely under a minute. Oh, including yeah, from, from the going to the door. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. And it just gives a sense of her, her speed and the type of technology that goes into it. So this is not just a, a mechanism that has been bolted together just to be able to get a kill in. But what I love in that as well is that they say that even without the, the great darkness that descends upon Necromunda during this time, she would still go ahead and still probably be able to attempt the assassination. Yeah. The darkness is just the trigger. It allows them to take advantage of not only the situation, but also the chaos that's erupting from it as well. So this destabilization, losing the head of the Imperial House is destabilization enough, but then losing the Imperial House when all the other houses are ready to go each other, when Necromunda's just in absolute strife. When almost wordlessly with this etheric command, the entire planet has fallen into rebellion. And, you know, it's, you know, through sheer luck, Kelmore is in the Corpium Mundus with his advisors, with his guard, with all these people, you know, trying to defend his planet from this unseen enemy. And it just happens that she's able to get there. That's a little lucky if... uh, it's all very contrived, isn't it? It all yeah. seems like there is a... And I mentioned this earlier, there's a grand plan. There's a master plan in place, but we're not privy to it. Definitely not at this stage anyway. No. Um, but it, this is... The, this, for me, is like the very beginnings of the dominoes falling. So everything else in place had had been setting up for this primary... For this first domino to go. Now, that yep. has gone and we begin to really see the effects of the great darkness of the Cicatrix Maledictum, of all the chaos that's erupting 
over Necromunda really begin to take a take hold once Elmore is assassinated or a, an assassination attempt is made upon him. Well, another thing that goes there, despite the fact he's just been stabbed once, twice, multiple times with this power blade, uh, it also mentions that Escher crafted biophasic toxins will soon prove fatal. And it says that her conditioning would not let her leave anything to chance. And she sweeps her hand back to land the killing blow. But what happens is, and in true Warhammer 40,000, just, you know, overgunned and underthought, from hidden recesses in the walls and ceiling, security turrets added their firepower to the torrent of death. Now, the poor girl has just taken a bolt around to the back, which stops her from killing Ronti. One, one and, second. The poor girl. The murder yeah, cyborg. The poor girl. Yes, yeah, continue. Yes, I, <laughs> and I'll give my opinion on her in a moment. Okay, go on. But these turrets that have popped out are just laying round after round after round into her. Now, there's already a bolt around, and we get it. Murder Cyborg, she's going to have a little bit of internal armor plating. These things blow her out of a window that is in the thin upper atmosphere mm. of Necromunda. Mm. And... She gets sucked out because of the yeah. atmosphere. When I first read it, I was like... Wait, how did why did she get sucked out of the window? And then I'm like, oh wait, of course, yeah, the spies in space. It's basically yeah. in space, <laughs> yeah. and you know she sees these guards rushing towards Helmore, and she just falls, and that's that's all we know about this mm. girl that she's falling. Now, I would love to see, I I would love to see her come back. I would love to find out who this character is uh, for a couple of reasons. And one is mentioned a little bit here. Yeah. A faint part of her mind still feared death. That part that retained a shadow of the person she had once been. It was, it was buried under years of mental conditioning. For the briefest moment, she had a memory the vision of a tall man with bare muscular arms and a wide grin. She sat upon his knee, her sisters playing at his feet. So... Who do you think that is, Seth? We are sticking entirely to fact here with no wild <laughs> theory. the lawkeeper's way. The lawkeeper's way. We, <laughs> stick, we stick to it. And I actually think this is... Timmy Helmore, come back from the sun. No. Uh, a lot of people in the community widely believe that this is one of the lost daughters of Slate Medina, obviously of House Orlock fame. Now, we know that one of his daughters, and if we'd thought about doing an Orlock episode, when we probably should have, we would have already talked about Slate Medina and the fact that his, his daughters are quite possibly the most dangerous collection of women outside of House Escher. But each of his daughters is just an absolute monster in their chosen 
profession or area of expertise, be it road boss or I believe was it was it was it Margot Medina we talked about in regards yeah, to the Great oh, yeah. Cycle? Yeah. 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 But one of his daughters was captured and effectively it's believed she was tortured into joining House de Lark. So is this her? Is this another right. of his daughters? Um, well, it, it, it sort of implies that it is. And as you say, they are experts in the field that they take on. So she's decided she wants to become a murder cyborg and has become an expert in that. Decided she's going to become a murder cyborg? <laughs> well, sometimes decisions... Sometimes a decision happens where you're like, well, I kind of have to go with it. It's either have a fake memory of my childhood or just be it a, sh- a shadow or a memory. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, you, you take your silver lining. <laughs> <laughs> well, well I, I, I do think it is it is probably one of his daughters, but I think the, the more pressing question is who exactly is sending the, the murder cyborg and who who is trying to affect that. Now, if we're saying it's the Delac or the Delacroix, there. Are we sticking to fact here, or are we going with the law keepers? Let's mindset go down a carrier tit hole, buddy. And go down a carrier tit hole. So if we go back to the Delacroix episode we did, and we talk about the fact that you think the Delacroix control Helmore, and I think the Imperial House controls the Delacroix, either way leads to a legitimate reason for assassination. So from my point of view, it makes sense that they are trying to get rid of Helmore so that they become more dominant. So once the house is in disruption, Delacroix can be more, become more powerful. The flip side of that is your theory of the, the Delacroix um, running Necromunda. If old Gerontius is starting to become a little bit more of an upstart, a little bit uppity, and going, actually, no, I'm the imperial governor. I'm going to wrestle that control. Then... That's why the Delacroix would be like, okay, time to get rid of you, buddy, and we're going to snuff you out. And the Great Darkness is a perfect time time to do that. But obviously this has been a plan that has been fueled and in motion for a very long time. This is not something that's just simply come about because of the Cicatrix. It's interesting that you go to that theory. That wasn't where Don't I was going it. to go. I, I mentioned earlier that it was very lucky, <laughs> given the circumstances, that the murder cyborg, who I'm going to call Cindy. It's weird <laughs> that Cindy, get it, Cindy, Cinderac? Yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> oh, could you make sure? uh, I found it lucky that Cindy got up there. And it was very <laughs> lucky that all of this had occurred. And who is it? that seems to affect luck, Nathan, who has been almost suspect in the fact that they haven't been mentioned in either the reads we've done so far from the book or the read I'm about to do after this. Who specifically hasn't been mentioned, Nathan? There's a lot that haven't been mentioned. There's all of uh, Gerontius Helmore's children, they haven't been mentioned. Uh, the Imperial Fists haven't been mentioned. Boo. No. Um, there's yeah, there's a lot of characters that have been mentioned. I can't I can't think of any specifics though. Okay. 
I never thought it might have been the fist. That's <laughs> that's a whole. Can you imagine? I'd actually find them so cool if they did that. <laughs> yeah. Just get get a little bit of Alpha Legion flavor sprinkled yeah. on you, and uh, become something other than fence builders. That'd be the great. Alpha, the Alpha Legion. You say no, no. Um, that will be on our new podcast, Alpha Legion Talk. With yeah. with Alpharius, no, <laughs> I'm not going to go into my theory yet. We'll wait. We'll we'll read a few more books and see how it comes out. Sure, but but it's blue and small and got wings. Yeah, I gotcha. That's right. Giant <laughs> rats. Yeah, it's always right. Now, crisis strikes the Imperial House with the attempted assassination of Lord Helmore. Gravely wounded, the Lord of Necromunda is placed in stasis creating a power vacuum for the control of the planet. Houses fight amongst themselves and old scores are settled, while the children of Lord Helmore bicker and scheme with each other as they seek to ascend to the throne once held by their father. And you thought the noble houses or gangs or even corpse grinder cultists were murderous? Wait until we start talking about Ronti's kids. Honest, this is like keeping up with the Helmores is a TV series I would watch because 100%. I just just in regard to old G Man's kids, like not to sound too crass, but he he was a busy lad. There's the legitimate and the illegitimate children, and there there's a lot. He was he was the Zeus of Necromunda, <laughs> come down from high just to uh, dabble. <laughs> well. Looking at it, uh, just his trueborn children. Yeah. Uh, Gerontius had seventeen hmm. trueborn sons and thirteen trueborn daughters. Yeah. Now, on top of that, he has a large number of illegitimate children. Uh, some very notable illegitimate children as well. Cal Jericho, everyone knows. Oh, if you don't. Yeah one of the most infamous underhive bounty hunters ever, one of the coolest series of books the Black Library ever released. Then, the v- yeah, Vorlis Kai, Makata Gelt, coin master of the Palatine. Uh, hey, it, if you're the coin master of Palatine, it helps to have an important dad. It does, and how do you probably get that position? By having an important By dad. By having a very important dad. Now, we also have Etheria Dune, Seeress of the Fires of Perdition. That just sounds rad. Uh, Dagos One-Eye, Commander of the Dustwall 88th Penal Battalion. Well, you know, shout out for the Dustwall, a little bit of Secundus, it always sneaks in there. Yeah, true. Not not a very, uh, uh, like, I don't know, a... A powerful position or established position, I guess. It's just, but it's we, better than being part of the penal legion, at least you're in charge of it. Yeah, at least you're in charge. He might be part of it, just in charge. <laughs> True. <laughs> and Gorst Ursa, Goliath Unborn, and Alpha of the Rothgal Galeforge. That is sick. Can you imagine being like Gerontius Helmore and finding out that your kid decided? I'm going to be a Goliath and just becomes a, just becomes an unborn 
yeah. and then becomes an alpha of, of if it's the Rothgall Gale Forge, not exactly a small hive. No, exactly. They they're pretty much the the dominant gang there as well, the dominant house really in Rothgall. Oh yeah. So he's like they're they're high up in the pecking order. They're not really being challenged for power in that within that hive. So very very powerful people. Well, powerful um, offspring that he has. But and that I guess that leads to exactly what they do after that. The shenanigans they get up to. Um, Yes. The, the ridiculous assassination attempts and the, the plottings. And there's, there's actually quite a fair bit of plotting with the other noble houses, which I find a little bit odd, um, thinking that, uh, you know, a fairly loose claim to the throne is uh, going to be backed by a noble house that could potentially become the imperial house as well. So it actually states that... The all the all the machinations and all that that the, the the children will call them the collective are trying to make happen could just all greatly be un, undermined anyway. So they they are dabbling and they're they're attempting to to claim their their seat. But as it states in the 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 Arantian Succession Syndrach Burning, it, it has always been written in the legal ledgers of Necromunda that the Imperial House rules by strength of support and wealth, not by birthright alone. So no matter what they're doing, they're not just going to simply supplant their father because they are what, in their mind, next in line or the ones who are due to be, uh, you know, the due to be the, the succeeder of the throne. But this is another interesting point about it as well. Helmore doesn't leave a succession plan. He doesn't have an heir, so and which he's say, done on purpose. Yeah, okay, yeah. There, there's a sort of a question around it whether or not he's done that. But when you've got six hundred kids, it's pretty hard to go. You, you're my number one. But this shows that the the imperial house is ripe for the picking right now with the with the in quotes uh, death of Helmore. So. What you've said raises a couple of really interesting points. Now, um, hitting on your first one there, the Imperial House only rules not via wealth, not via name, but via support of the noble houses. Now, what makes it easier to inherit a house? Wealth and a name. But yep. when the Imperial Houses, sorry, when the noble houses back you, it makes it a lot easier. So if you were a noble house, if you were, what did I say you were before? House Grime? Green? Yeah, House Grime. So you're from House Grime and you're the head of House Grime and you like, what was his name? Uh, Agriote Helmore. You really like him. So you say to your allies in House Ranlow or your allies in House Kauaian and you say, we're going to back Agriote. And they go, why would we do that? And you say, because he's weak, because he's malleable. And mm. we can have him as a figurehead and our houses can rise above everyone else. We will be the power behind the throne. And yeah, puppet masters. Yeah. You are the puppet masters of Necromunda. And if something goes wrong, Agriote is the one whose uh, head's on the chopping block. Yeah. But... 
in regards to your statement of Helmore not leaving a successor, was that a plan? Absolutely. Because if your children, each of whom, you know, each of the trueborn children at least, has never wanted for anything and who, let's be honest, are probably spoiled little turds and yeah. murderous spoiled little turds. Yep. Are they the type of people you want to have against you? Or do you want them all focusing on each other, trying to knock each other off? So when you do finally have to face that child, they're a little bit tired from all the fighting. Or you just turn around and say, well, you're the last one left. You're in charge. True, or they won't be able to make alliances. So if you want to get yeah. rid of them, they're, they're not going to be going out of their way to say, well, I'm going to make alliances with these four other brothers or, yep. you know, sisters, whatever they might be. Because at the end of the day, there can only be one standing. So by having them, I guess, disjointed and not unified or... Um, not in support, not like trying to claim, trying to car carry the favour of a a single son, then they're not going to be sort of, they're not going to have any form of unification. So you're right. It is, it is a good way to, to keep them, what is it, divided and conquered basically, and that's with his own children. Correct. So in the... In the, the aftermath of all the assassination of what we're talking about and the, the idea of a, a succession, we have assassins stalking the spire as the noble houses attempt to take advantage of the chaos. Powerful figures such as the matriarch of blood, Hestavay, and the lord of the seven spires, Romundus, are killed in their beds, while some nobles take to shooting their servants on sight in fear that they may be killers in disguise. Totally logical. Totally logical. I, I understand. <laughs> I feel sorry for your servants that you keep. Yeah. Honestly, it's, it's why I don't have a housekeeper anymore. <laughs> That's horrible. <laughs> uh, yeah, go on. This is, this is that Necromundan-style insanity where everyone oh. is going, oh, it is hitting the fan, and yeah. they're, they're hearing on you know, on Vox transmissions or their, their, their servants are gossiping that, oh, did you hear the matriarch of blood killed in her chambers? Esther Vey, oh, yeah, you know, um, found gutted in his dance hall at a discotheque. And the Lord of the Seven Spires, yep, stabbed seven times. Super <laughs> ironic. <laughs> or, you know, R.I.P. Hermundus. But, yeah. sorry, they're all, actually, they're all just killed in their beds. They are. You, you said that. I, just, like, I, I, I do, honestly, I prefer the dance hall. I yeah. just, it just, yeah. it strikes very much of something Timmy would do. Yeah. Um, but, Shout yeah. The, Timmy, two knives, wood. Yeah, <laughs> what up? Um, but this is, this is where Cinderac Burning really starts to go into overdrive. Um. We begin to, and as I mentioned it earlier, so you have these hordes of chaos cultists and all manner of other things coming up from the unhive attacking. You have the hives descending into chaos. But when the top of the snake begins to bite itself, that's when the problems start. So when the houses start going absolutely bonkers at each other, that is when we have some serious 
dark, dark issues arising of um, it, these houses that have incredible amounts of power and bending that to their to their will. And we we mentioned a little bit earlier how there's a little bit of infighting in the houses and the enforcers not getting involved. But now since um, Gerontius is gone, well, not gone, but, you know, since Gerontius gone is enough. gone. Gone enough, yeah, perfect, yeah. Since he's in a, in a less than stable condition, um, they are able to now go and almost, it's almost like a full-blown war with each other. Almost. Not quite there yet. That's that's such a fine line because we know what happens when the nobles start killing each other. That's rebellion and the Imperial Fists do not allow that. And this is something that hasn't really been mentioned until now. The Imperium and its sort of enclaves on Necromunda have been very quiet so far. The Imperial Fists that we know are in Primus have done mm-hmm. nothing. We know that, I believe, Hypertemenos, yeah, boo. The Adeptus Sororitas in Hypertemenos, I believe, so far, as, as far as we're aware, have done nothing. Yep. Uh, I can't imagine the Adeptus Terror are going to be doing much. They're going to throw ink pots at you. Maybe. Yeah, but the, 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 the thing is, is that if the Imperium itself is dealing with a massive problem, this is, this is yes, a microcosm on, on Necromunda. So they're, they're waiting for word from the Imperium to say, we've survived the, the Cicatrix Maledictum. Where the Imperium is still whole, oh, not whole, but still still functioning, still able to fight, and it, it's mentioned in the book. The success of the Imperium is heavily weighs upon how Necromunda functions as well. So when the when the Imperium is losing because of what has happened, this when you have this horrendous uprising, and the Chaos Cults are forming and so forth, and Although they're not a, a, an organised and effective um, army, they're still devastating just because of the volume of numbers. But once the, the populace of Necromunda begin to hear that the Imperium is stable and will hold, more importantly, um, they rally themselves and they turn the no. tide upon, upon all the, the vast hordes that are coming. So... And, and I love this little bit from the book where it says Necromunda, like the Imperium, was a monolithic beast of industry, order, and tradition, forever grinding forward despite unimaginable hardship and constant setbacks. When word arrived from the stars that the Imperium had endured and that, that war fleets were now approaching the hive world, the population rallied around its remaining leaders. So this is this just shows that Although they're so isolated and insular in the way that they function, they, they're still reliant on knowing that 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 mechanism that they're part of, the Greater Imperium, will survive. Because what's the point of surviving if your 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 civilization is gone? I disagree. What? I, dis- I disagree. Well, you're uh, wrong. They hear that the Imperium survives. And war fleets are now approaching the <laughs> I see what you're world. Say, yeah. <laughs> they look at that and are going, right, right. 
Yes. Yeah. Because they know what happened. Everyone knows. None of them were alive, but the stories endure. Everyone knows. If you screw around, you are going to find out. The Imperium will not stand nonsense. And I think those in charge that have maybe thriving a little bit with this chaos, they've said, okay, we've had our fun. We've got a good few licks in on everyone. We've got some, got some new territories, got some loot. Mm. It's, it's, it's time to put down the, the taint with, you know, these monsters and cultists and that that are rising up from underneath us. Put them back down because the last thing we want the Imperials to see when they get here is chaos. Yeah, righto. Yeah. You start sending down some inquisitorial strike Correct. teams and they're, they're killing everybody. But at the end of the day, all these orders are coming from people that next rung up on the ladder. And the Imperium, they're not going to kill everyone, but they're going to kill a bunch of people off the top. Yeah, because right. they're the ones mm. who are supposed to be maintaining control. Mm. And yeah. Yeah, it's, not, it's not your scummer. It's not your ganger. It's oh. your, your house sort of hierarchy. It's Nathan it... of House Orlock. Who See, is... this is where I disagree with you. Because if they find a particular smaller hive, right, say with only 10 million people in it, and they go, this one's too far gone. Oh, lock the doors and gas them. Yeah, the, the standard yeah. Necromundan way. Like, just yeah. close them up, nope. finish them off. Yep, so I, I, I think as much as what you're saying is, is true, they'll, they'll, be, they'll be wiping out the heads of houses and so forth and, and yeah. installing their own people. In some of the smaller loser hives, yeah. <laughs> loser but, hives. <laughs> yeah, not, not anywhere cool. Yeah, the, uh, all the all the owl classification hives. Yeah, they're just like yeah. let's make an example for at least three of them. Yeah, well that's the thing. Lock the doors and bury them. Yeah, you know, yeah, use, exactly. use that tech, and there definitely will be examples of that. I one hundred percent agree with you. But those people in charge of all this nonsense so far, the ones that have, are actually in charge of whatever small amount of nonsense they're causing, I mm. believe. I, I believe you're absolutely right in the fact that they are they are the ones handing down those orders. Hmm. And it, it, we sort of distracted our little selves a little bit from talking about the noble houses, but it, you bring us back. Thank you. So well, back. Um, the noble yeah. houses, uh, they get up to some shenanigans after they all start finding out what happened to Gerontius. In fact, one of my favourite things here is Mormaya, the Thane of Cordor, meeting with the High Lady Coian, has basically organised to spread the word throughout the faithful of the Imperial Creed that the God Emperor himself had allowed Lord Helmore to be struck down for failing the people during the Great Darkness. He seems to be of the mind that it was all a test that the Emperor has laid down in front of them, and Elmore has been found lacking. So the redemptionists, these firebrands, these, you know, those corner-side preachers screaming, you know, the end is nigh. They are 
they are out there telling everyone that what happened to Helmore happened because he was found wanting. And they immediately start, and this is once again pointing to the true bad guy of Necromunda. <laughs> the disruption to production was notable, though perhaps most importantly, those interests owned by House Kawaiian remained unmolested. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's they're, they're, they're in, in league with court. Yeah. You know, and Games so, and machinations, mate. Exactly. And, and it says that the, the, the noble houses and the clan houses before the assassination or well, before the absence of Lord Helmore would never have openly schemed, never have tried to expand their domain, domains like this because of the Iron Fist, that is the Imperium, which is represented by Helmore. But now it's it's on for young and old. So like uh, House Orlock and Ranlow just been, been crazy together. You've got Yolanti and Esher, which is just mad what, they, what they're planning on doing. Yeah, we... it is, and we will get into it. But it, it, it is, it's like where every other, and this is something that we mentioned in the Asher episode way back when, is that their thirst and desire for power is probably one of the greatest assets of that house. Yep. So when House Yulanti come to them with a an idea for where they want to see themselves. And it is the most devious of plans and the most most high-reaching of plans from all the the plans of the clan houses and the and the noble houses together. That's why I should jump on board with them and to to pull the rabbit out of the hat a little bit with it. They basically, you know, want to become the new noble house. Well, the thing that and you look at all the other noble and clan house alliances that go on, Catalyst and Vansar basically destroy a bunch of key high civ systems and mm. create just massive security issues through security networks throughout multiple hives. Yeah. Orlock and Ranlow uh, openly sabotage or detain the cargo of other clan houses. Kai and Delark uh, make and break alliances with other families and just openly cause chaos, you know, but on a, on a noble scale. But Escher and Yolanti, in my opinion, and I think you probably think the same thing, they're the only ones with a plan beyond right now. Yes, 100%. And it, it's the, it suits the Escher mindset perfectly of if we're going to do something, we're going to do it bigger and better than everybody else. You know? Yes. And, and the potential for failure is bigger than everybody else. <laughs> yes. But... They they're aiming big, and it open. It says in the book that open there is an open war. Well, this there all these actions that we're hearing about from the the houses will eventually lead. What could potentially lead to open war between all the noble houses? So, this is exactly what you were mentioning earlier. Tantamount to a rebellion, basically tantamount to something that has been quashed a hundred times before from by the Imperium, where they have said, understand you are a production world and all your little all your little plans and all your little ideas don't mean anything because you're a production world. So if Helmore is the principle of that production, you follow Helmore. But if it's Yulanti, you're going to follow Yulanti. We have gone on a hell of a tangent. 
Um, this is the most important stuff. <laughs> this is the most important stuff. Because I was, what I was going to say but, is you've actually tied it back so perfectly because you're absolutely right. At the end of the day, the Imperium does not care who is in charge. The Imperium does not care how they govern. They, it, is, it is a non-issue to them as long as you pay what's owed. Mm. If, mm-hmm. if you are a horrible, horrible democracy and we get what we want, <laughs> sweet, we don't care. If you are a communist utopia, we don't care as long as we get what we want. If you are a feudal fascist state with layer upon layer of soul-crushing prisoners with jobs, we don't care as long as we get what we want. That's all the Imperium cares about. The second thing they care about is do not interrupt the supply chain of us getting what we want. And that's why I think everyone is pulling their thumbs out and reining everything in under their control because the Imperium's coming. Yeah, right. And they, 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 their tires would have been slipping during this period of time as well. Like if, I, there's no, there is no way anything is leaving the planet. Yeah, exactly. There's no way anything's leaving the planet. There's no way. And, and it states that there's no way they're maintaining their, their production. There's no way they're able to meet their tithe. That being said, I think you've got an okay excuse right now. Like, we know the, the Imperium doesn't accept excuses. We know that. But I genuinely think that with the Cicatrice Maledictum, the fall of Cadia, all of that, I think this blip on the radar of your production schedule coming out for your tithe can almost be understood. So as long as, as, long as when the, the tax man shows up and says, yep, you have everything here, he's going to be a couple of days late, you know. Warp travel's just gotten a little bit kooky. But right. when so- those couple of days get there, he's not expecting everything that was owed up to January 1st. He gets there January 15th. He says... Okay, there's January 1st. Oh, and the January, everything up to January 15th is here too. As long as that's there, he doesn't care. Okay, I, I understand that theory. I thought you were saying they were going to give them a pass almost. Oh, hell no. No, okay. yeah, because no, it, They need tithe now more than ever. Exactly. There's, there's no passes to be had here, and the Imperium is not the, the flexible tool that can go, oh, okay, well, you've only given us... 100,000 last guns out of the 150 you're supposed to give us. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll make ends meet. We'll do something. No. We'll make They're ends going... meet by closing the doors and gassing your hive. Yeah, exactly, yeah. We will come and take 50,000 last guns off your standing militia or PDF. Mm. And we'll take 100,000 of your PDF as well. So yeah. stick that up say, in your pipe. And then we'll take them. And yeah. now you have no PDF. And, <laughs> oh. oh, look, your citizens are kicking down your door. I have a plane to catch. Yeah, yeah. See you later. Black ship's taking me somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Well, um... With all of this confusion, Vansar Archaeotechs infiltrate the servants of the Makeda Lux as it attempts to repair the damage done by the Great Darkness. 
In the depths of the hives, the Vamsar secretly bribe or murder guilders to gain access to the ancient workings of the great cities, making their own modifications to the machinery or plundering rare and powerful tech. See, this whole time, everyone else causing a kerfuffle. The Vansar, plotting, planning, getting what we need. Hey. Do what? I don't know, man. Yeah, they don't know either. They're stealing stuff. And they're like, oh, what's it do? The last, the last Vansar we spoke about teleported herself to Korn's <laughs> throne room. <laughs> that is true. That is very true. She's... Uh... She got herself into a bit of trouble. Again, it's just the Vans are not actually benefiting anybody, stealing tech that they don't know how to use and going, well, if I connect the positive to the positive, uh-oh, SpaghettiOs again. As an electrician, I can tell you, connect it as long as it's on the same circuit, you're absolutely fine. So positive and positive makes a positive. Yeah. Yeah. Double positive. Uh, for all of our listeners, do not do that. Do not do your own electrical work. Yes, like, please don't. Um, Hire a professional or, to get hurt. Yeah. yeah, or do it. Hey, I'm not your mum. <laughs> so in classic lawkeeper fashion, we are going on a tangent or a carry tit hole, Samuel. So let's rein it back into our talking points, and I will go first. So, and... I'm saying we're not going to go on tangents, but this little talking point, we are going to go on a little tangent. This is going to be cool. an awesome tangent. Too. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. It's actually awesome. So mass devotional flagellations take place throughout Hive City as the servants of Cordor claim the end of days has come. Such is the fear among the people of Necromunda that many Hivers cast off their obligations, abandon their factories, clans and families to take up with the redemptionists, whipping themselves as as they join the long winding columns of believers that march endlessly onwards across the hive world. And key point from there, abandoning their factories, exactly what we were just talking about, about mm. production going completely up the duff. But in relation to the corridor, it's just this brilliant bit that I read earlier, and I love this. And this, this is not even gang idea. This is just like cool fight idea. So... Where, where gangs are sort of, you know, taking control and doing, doing all these manner of things to, to, to destroy the chaos cults, the, the, the Cordal met ferocity and madness with a madness of their own, as in Hive Temnos, where the faithful marched down from the temple of the emperor deified, gathering an army of believers before smashing into the ranks of the insurrectionists. So what I love about the Cordor, the, the vast army of Cordor taking on these chaos cultists is you've got one lot of absolutely batshit crazy going up against another lot of batshit crazy and just flamers and warp fire and all these things going. It is, for me, in my mind, such a, um, an amazing-looking 40K battlefield just letting the imagination run wild with it. It'd just be absolutely bonkers, you know. There would be no ground given whatsoever. There would be no quarter given and no quarter absolutely. accepted. Yeah. Like, they're they a mirror image uh, when you look at quarter or the Redemptionists versus Hellet cults yeah. or just cultists in general, where it's, it's faith by a different name. 
You yeah. know, they, they, they pray to someone else. And Cordor, I'm really looking forward to doing a Cordor episode eventually because the... I, we talk about a lot of them in the same fashion, but the insanity of House Cordor is ridiculous. Mm. Where they they believe the imperial faith to such a point that the the concept of going against it to to fight sin, they commit such sin, and yeah. this is an amazing example where you can just imagine they're just. They, they walk out of the factories and they've got their wrenches and their hammers or chains or they've broken off a chair leg or mm. they've got a, a person's actual leg. And <laughs> on the other side, you have these chaos cultists who also happen to be in robes and they're all wearing masks. And they and have, all got their chair legs too. They have hammers and chains and chair legs. <laughs> and there's that one corpse grinder cultist who has a literal dude's leg. Yeah. And you can just... It's that... That staring into a dark mirror and seeing that at your core they are they are identical, yeah. but they just change one word. You know, praise the emperor. You know, praise corn. Praise yeah. gods. I love this, and you know what, gang idea. So five thousand points of just chaos. Numpties, no, no guns. Oh, maybe like five guns, but only three bullets for each of them. <laughs> and then just close combat, just charge and just meat grinder that whole thing. And, oh. and it would be too, because as you say, they're, they're entering, entering the factories. They're, 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 the regular civilians are giving up their their life, which is not much yep. of a life, but and joining the redemptionists. Right, so you're you're getting people just caught up in the um, the imperial cult, and uh, the concept of we need to the the only salvation we have is we need to go destroy the chaos cults that are against us, and I, I it's the motivation of the, the the regular people, and I don't know if that motivation is anything good for them, but the numbers you're talking about, and it's something we mentioned earlier as well. Oh. The numbers you start to talk about in imagine a redemptionist or corridor gang where it's it it's not just twenty thirty you know that's a big gang you're talking we're hundreds no talking of about thousands. thousands yes yeah. yes you yeah. said it before we're not talking about gangs we're mm. talking about armies mm. we're yeah. we're no longer talking about you know murder hobos fighting each other we're talking about this isn't a skirmish this is a war. Yeah. Where you've you have a hive emptying itself to go to 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 this opposing army and smashing itself into it where the thoughts going through those first, you know, ten, fifteen, twenty, a hundred ranks of civilians mm. of I'm not surviving this. Yeah, but it, I, but I have to do it. I have to do have it. Have to do it. Otherwise like the the, the Emperor will look poorly upon me and then I'm done. I'm cooked anyway. Yep. It's really cool. It's it's almost like a crusade in a way. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's never been a bad crusade. No, I don't think so. No, the Space are good ones all the time. The 13th crusade happened somewhere just recently. I can't remember. But <laughs> speaking of things that aren't necessarily good, 
chain lords of the Makeda Sanguis attempt to bolster their slave quotas by clearing out the vagrants and gangs within the Palatine Cluster. Many of those targeted are Orlock outlaws, who soon draw their former clan allies into a vicious counterattack against the Slavers Guild and their Goliath backers. The victorious Sump Dogs Orlock gang selling many of their own people back to the Guild, along with the captured Goliaths. <laughs> There's a couple of things that I find cool about this. Firstly, they are fighting guilders. That has always been a big no-no. And they are openly fighting guilders. <clears throat> Even looking at guilders the wrong way, doesn't matter who you are, is going to screw either. It's either going to kill you or you get thrown in prison with trumped up charges. Or they just turn around and go, well, your particular settlement or your particular dome or your particular clan house, you were, ju- you were on our shit list. You, yeah. just, you just don't get our services anymore. And they're doing it openly. Yeah. But I also love that Orlock mindset of, you know, my gang my, before my house, mm. my house before the rest. And... The Sump Dogs are selling these Orlock outlaws straight back to the Slavers Guild, as well as the Goliaths who were just working for the Slavers Guild. It's yeah, it's it's so <laughs> crap. I feel so bad for those Orlocks who are like, "Hey, can you come and help us out?" Absolutely, we'll help you out. Oh, we won the fight. We've captured territory. Stop, stop, stop. Did oh. you just say you felt bad for Orlocks? <laughs> felt bad for the Orlocks, who are no longer Orlocks. Okay, I'll allow it. Yeah, but the scummy, boring, useless Orlocks, they're the ones who, who not only help them out, but then sell them back. So they've, they've gone, oh, yeah, we'll help you out to defeat the Slavers Guild. Now that we've got, done that and captured... X amount of territory or whatever. Oh, we're going to take all the weapons off these former Orlocks and then sell them back to this. <laughs> it is garbage behavior. Absolute. Gar- Even for Necromunda, it's garbage behavior. Well, it's actually interesting because we haven't really heard much about the Gilders yet, have we? I know there's a couple of little mentions here and there. Uh, I believe there was a Mistress of Coin we mentioned earlier, kicking around with Balthazar Van Zepp. Yeah. But what are the guilds actually up to right now? Well, the, the guilds are actually in, in trouble um, across the board. As, as you mentioned, they, they're having to deal with the fact that they're no longer having the power that they used to have because the sense of law and the sense of structure in Necromunda is gone. So the, the respect and the protection that the guilds have is basically vanished as well. There are guilds that are, are in a way, thriving, but I'm not going to de- go into them too much. But the guild that suffers for me the most is the Guild of Coin. They're absolutely rubbished on here because the clans don't honour their oaths they don't pay their road tolls and they're openly attacking the convoys as well because that's where the money is because yep. the imperial house no longer is that shield 
for the Gilded Coin. So where you might have the Paladus of the Pyros, where they can gather up the dead or, you know, burn you, burn you whatever, whatever the case might be, they're, they're, they're not really a, a directly profitable guild. But when a gang sees the Gilded Coin rocking around, they're like, absolutely. And the only one that I feel bad for is the, the Air Guild because during the Ash Storms, their, their Zeppelins <laughs> would be in just so much trouble. I'm going to... I've got something to rub in your face later on. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, it's interesting we mentioned the Guild of Coin uh, because... Remember Dust Falls when uh, the Narco Lord Balthazar Van Zip and the Mistress of Coin Malerva teamed up to fight back everyone that was coming at them? Well, unfortunately, Mistress of Coin Malerva has gone missing during the battle. She definitely hasn't been shot multiple times by her, <laughs> I'm guessing, Balthazar Van Zip. And. Surprisingly, the settlement of Dust Falls actually ran more smoothly with the Narco Lord in charge. So, is it because the Guild of Coin were unable to govern properly, or was Balthazar Van Zep just causing enough trouble that it makes it, he makes it look like she was the one who couldn't do it? Oh, potentially, I like that. I feel like this section of the book, though, was written by a cartel lord deep in Colombia saying... My, my community works so much better when I'm the boss. Mm. Mm. Was his name Balthazar Van Zip? <laughs> yeah, probably. But I, I like your theory there that um, as soon as she's gone, it's like, well, everything's, obviously things are going to work better because she's no longer here yeah. to ups, upset my operation. I'm no longer fighting this shadow war and having to pay her all these bribes. Guys. <laughs> Send the ghast up hive. Let's do it. Let's kick it back into gear, mate. Come on. Let's hit that tithe. My tithe. Not the Imperial <laughs> one. My tithe. <laughs> Probably a good time to talk about enforcers, actually. So as the enforcers withdraw to the hives to protect the interests of the house Helmore, ancient trade re routes reopen. Among these is Brood Pass that bypasses the tolls of the Necromagnium underway by cutting through the Secundus exclusion zones. Despite the dangers that see only a handful of rigs survive the journey, it does not stop the countless others from attempting the run for the astounding profits on offer. No, no, no. I'm not going near anything called Brood Pass that just happens to cruise through the Hive Secundus exclusion zones. Exactly what I was thinking. Brew pass, Secundus, nah, I'm good. The hive mind can have somebody else. Every single one of those rigs that came through yep. is chock full of cultists. Guaranteed. Oh, yeah. Like, they've been waylaid. Everyone's gotten the kiss. They're part of the hive mind now. It's huh. like, oh, all right, open up the back. You're shipping some of the, some of the brethren into whatever hive you're going to. No, no. No, I, I totally agree with you. This is this is just a, another ploy for the gene stealer cults to spread their tendrils even more so. But I do love what you first said, that they've withdrawn back to the hives to protect the interests of House Helmore. Because at the end of the day, 
they are enforcers by name, and all they are doing is enforcing Lord Helmore's will. Yeah, exactly. I think it's even in the Nexus where their last, even though they survive, even though it's the survive yeah. against the cults, they actually don't reopen the spire because they're like, Lord Helmore has said, this closes, so we're closing it off. We talked about this earlier, remember, when yeah. we are saying, you know, people are getting these orders and because that's the last thing they heard, they're just like, nope, Ooh. situation yeah. may have changed, but my situation hasn't changed. And the enforcers are doing that. They are yeah, saying, exactly. no, the last thing we got told was keep this door closed. So until we yeah. hear from someone whose name rhymes with Gelmore what to do, <laughs> we, we ain't listening to anyone. Yeah, exactly. And so when we're talking about the, the enforcers withdrawing, this is a similar principle as well. They've been told you're withdrawing. And though, even though it'd be better to protect these areas against potential gene sealer infestation, they no, 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 no. Our interests are to protect this. And this, I guess, this shows very much upon the, the short-sightedness of um, a lot of the decisions that happen on Necromunda as well. Well, odd decisions and rampant assassinations lead to accusations of the faceless returned. Clan leaders, gang lords, and guilders alike believe the old agents of the Dalak have returned to take over Necromunda by assuming the identity of its masters. As if the gangs of the Underhive needed any more excuses, a hive-wide attack against the agents of the House of Shadows begins. It, it just seems very convenient, more so than anything mm. else. I will say, after doing the Delacroix episode, I have a very soft spot for my mayonnaise boys. But, um, I never trust anything. Nope, I don't trust it. <laughs> they, they've done, they're doing this to themselves. They're saying, hey, uh, we, like, we're doing some kooky stuff in the background. We need to look like this is affecting us as well. Contact so-and-so from so-and-so. Contact these gangs and have them hit this particular stronghold of ours. Brinkle around a few bodies and oh, it nice. looks like they're getting hit. In reality, no. No, they... This is them. This is the Delac. I didn't think of it like that, and that's beautiful. No. This is probably why I don't play Delacroix, because I don't have that kind of brain on me. But I love that. That's such an awesome idea as to what's actually happening to them. Yep. They're, yeah. they're, they've, they're watching. They know what's going on. Mm. And going by this, they're saying we need people to think that we're being affected by this as well. Yeah, true, true. Yeah, I, I'm... You've, you've sold me. That's in exactly what's happening. We've figured it out, Mr. Games Workshop. I think his name's James. It's James oh, Workshop. James, yeah, we got it. James, you're done. So anyway, <clears throat> noble houses and their clan house allies take Necromunda dangerously close to civil war, still reeling from the damage done by the Great Darkness. The people of the Hive world are ill-prepared for the increase in violence. Old Accords and Helmore's personal army, the Palanite and forces, can do little more to stem the conflict as ever more nobles and hivers are drawn into the fighting. So we, we've obviously hit on this a lot earlier yeah. uh, before, but it's exactly what we're talking about. The and, and they say it in the book, dangerously close to a civil war. So they're not quite there yet. Not we quite. are a hair's breadth away from it. Exactly. 
yeah, the the yellow boys are still going to stay up in their tower for the minute. Yeah, but they're, well, they're, I, they're thinking about it. They're, they're trying to reach out to anyone else. Is anyone else out there? Can anyone else hear us? Are we all that's left? You know, it's... They're, they're going to be wanting to reach their chapter master or reach their, you know, reach the the nearest fortress of the fist, boo, just to, just to try and make sure that they've got someone to reach out to. Yeah, uh, I guess so. They've, they've got bigger fish to fry, I guess, in the Imperium yeah. being toasted as well. So, um, but yeah, as I said, we've, we've mentioned a lot about this and... It, it just, it's interesting that it says the, the, the high world is ill-prepared for the increase in violence, which it, it's a funny statement for Necromunda, isn't it? Considering well, Necrom- they've... Necromunda's not really a violent place. It's a, um, it's a death pit with a production problem. <laughs> True. And then you add the chaos cults on top of that, yeah. and now you have the noble houses. Yeah. Well, honestly, I reckon it's going to be, there's, there's a bunch of, I'm just picturing, I don't know, you, me, Steve, Gumple, we're sitting there, polishing off a couple of cans, just watching those Cordor nut jobs attack all the cultist nut jobs, and you're just like, this place sucks. <laughs> yeah. Just like dawns in your, hang on. We could have, we could have been on Armageddon. This is so, it would have been so much better. I don't ever want to go on holiday with you guys ever again. <laughs> That'd be a great planet to do a podcast on as well, Armageddon. But anyway, for a different time. Wait. Sorry, okay. my brain, my brain just <laughs> went off. And off. Just mention Armageddon. I'm like, oh, the history of the lore of Armageddon would be sick. But yeah. Rain it back in, Samuel. Rain I'm sick in. of having right. you so right. circle you back around. I'm actually loving this next one. Uh, in contradiction to the laws of Necromunda, House Rand Low arms a fleet of strataplanes with ground attack weapons and uses them to target the trade routes of their rivals. This tactic quickly backfires on the ancient trade house, as, by consensus, the other noble houses approve the use of heavy anti-aircraft weapons to protect their caravans. Weapons that are astonishingly effective against other convoys and ash waste vehicles. <laughs> Stick that in your air guild pipe and smoke it. <laughs> so we talked about this back in A Brief 10,000 Year History. Uh, you are not allowed to fly planes, which once again, I have no idea why I thought they had Zeppelins. Uh, <laughs> so outside of transport directly to and from the Eye of Selene. Uh, do, do you remember, was it the Minerva famine where they were begging the Imperial House for supply via Stratoplane? And yeah. Lady Sintarak was basically just going, well, no, her, her descendants were going, nope, yeah. nope, got to come through the Eye of Selene. And then everyone was trying to go do it anyway. And they got shot down and wound up in the graveyard. But, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Good but work, it, ran it, low. It, <laughs> but it just shows. The, the disregard for imperial rule at, at the time or the laws of Necromunda in, in that they're just going, well, we're just going to do it anyway. But I love how there's a consensus with all the other noble houses. They're like, <laughs> we're just going to load up heavy anti-aircraft guns, but we're also going to use those heavy anti-aircraft guns against other each convoys other. as well. Yeah. yeah they're all you killing know, each other. Yeah. So, you know, 
this is all still going on as is an ash storm going. Yeah. Like yeah. <laughs> like what? just bonkers. I get I get upset when I'm in a normal plane here and there's a little bit of turbulence. These stratoplane pilots, I have no idea how they manage to get I don't know how big a stratoplane is, but I have no idea how they managed to get inside that plane with those enormous balls dragging behind <laughs> them. Because the the world storm that is occurring is still going on. Yeah. And yeah, you know, they're they're doing strafing runs on convoys. And then every other house is like, no, dummy. Yeah. And has just strapped, I'm picturing, uh, like the Hydra turrets from the Imperial yeah, Guard. Yeah, exactly what the, I'm thinking. And turned them into like technicals, like you see in... Uh, yeah, in like a Hilux. Yeah, basically strapped it onto the back of a Hilux yeah. and are shooting down these stratoplanes and everyone's like, oh, yeah, that looks pretty good. I wonder if I can take out that Ridge Runner. Boo, 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 boo. Oh, my God, Emperor. Yeah. <laughs> and they've all realised it's on. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're, it's, it's on for young and old. Much of that going on at Necromunda at this time. The House of Green, Krieg Lord Van Heusen, plays general and personally leads a battalion of his own house guard with attendant armoured vehicles and even artillery against the Ashway settlement of Gore Hollow to re-establish his house's southern trade ways. The soldiers of Green, not to mention the command abilities of Van Housen, proved woefully inadequate in the face of the hardened gangs of Gore Hollow. <laughs> that is a sick fight. That is a sick fight. That's a battalion of guard with vehicles and artillery, and they're basically just, you would say, probably 98%, 99% infantry of yeah. the gangs just going, yeah. come at us, boys. Think what you, you, you've been up in your spire, polishing your guns, and now come down here and see what I do with my reclaimed auto gun. Well, they're not even guard. They're house yeah. guard. Yeah. So they're... they're Maybe a little better than PDF. They're they're not they're not army. No, and exactly. he this you know the Krieg Lord von Hausen plays general, and he thinks he can take out this little settlement. And like you said, these absolute rock kickers with their reclaimed weapons have all turned around. And you can just imagine all these different gangs coming together and being like, oh god. Yeah, hold on. We'll shoot each other in a second. Who's coming at us? Is that... Ugh. All right, line them up, boys. Let's get yeah, this done. Yeah. And yeah. then they're obviously just looting the, uh, the house groom gear exactly. immediately so afterwards. They're, they're looting, right? <laughs> but it specifically says they're looting artillery pieces now. Uh, exactly. There's a gang in Gore Hollow with artillery pieces. I like to think that they've bought them all in and then like effectively created this little like gun fortress and all the gangs like each gang takes a gun around the walls and they're like okay this is cool this is my quadrant and then they're just they're just bombing pot shots onto like nomads that are going past <laughs> or you know there's a grox that walks down they're like all right a million points if you hit the grox yeah yeah but yeah no this gang now have whatever remaining armored vehicles and Ooh. artillery and yeah, yeah all House Green have done there is give an upgrade to all their gear. 
Yeah, they've gone and they've gone and resupplied the people who are shutting off their southern tradeways. Yeah. So they've gone. Well, next time we come here, it's going to be harder for us, and that's what we're aiming for—the challenge. So the next time <laughs> Green and Green get out there, they're like, "Okay, boys, we didn't do it this time, but we know they've got a little bit more. We actually know what technology they have, so we should be." We able know to exactly fun. what weapons they have. Yeah, exactly. Showing a little bit of more noble insanity, purely for their own amusement. The lords and ladies of House Catalyst unleash groups of mind freight into the halls and domes of the spire. Many nobles, driven mad by the terrors and the abominations spread, take their own lives or descend into homicidal rampages, weakening both the allies and enemies of Catalyst at the same time. <laughs> just. The nobles are just having dumb fun. Yeah, they're, they're off the chain. They're completely off off tap right now, and they're allowed to go and, as you say, just have a bit of fun, just do whatever they want to do, and whether it hurts them or hurts everybody else, I don't care. As long as they're uh, achieving the goal they're looking for, yeah, it's a it's a quick distraction. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like oh, we're sick of uh, having all that obscura or going off and <laughs> being in the roulette table. So what should we do? Well, let's get a couple of mind frayed. Sounds like yeah. fun to me. Let's watch people lose their minds as these uh, psychic abominations tear their souls apart. <laughs> exactly. It's a little bit of fun. Yeah. And after that, lunch. Yeah. All <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. So the, Imper- the the noble houses are just bonkers, but um, I guess they're probably the petitioners that we're going to talk about here. So <laughs> petitioners to the noble house find its great audience chambers sealed in the wake of Lord Helmore's mortal injury, causing a crowd of nobles and wealthy guilders to grow within the halls of the spire. The crowd becomes a tempting target for thieves and other criminals, the enforcers doing little to stop the noble brats and corrupted servants from shaking down the supplicants. Just sticking it to the man. It's (laughs) Robin Hood, baby. Steal from the rich, give to the me who is also rich. But it's the noble brats. Yeah. They're just being, they're being shites. They're being little shites. They have enough money. They're just, again, like uh, house catalysts, just bored. But yeah. rather than send out mind fray, they're like, oh, I'll just go pickpockets and hold up gangs of, uh, of nobles and other petitioners. I like to think of it as basically noble teenagers who are just out there and they're like, listen, bud, this is a bolt pistol and I really like your pantaloons. <laughs> and this poor guy's just like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm literally here. Like, I, I, I work for you. It's like, but I also really like your pantaloons, bud. So uh, I'm going to shoot you now and take your pantaloons. But you can have the pantaloons. It was never about the pantaloons. Uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's about me having just that little modicum of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love it. I love it. And I also love the fact the enforcers the whole time are just going, not our, does, not our, not our job. Our job well, is to stand and stop anyone getting through these doors. Yeah. Lord Helmore hasn't said, can you stop the pickpocketing and the, the, um, the assaults on the nobles and the, the guilders? He didn't say that. He said, guard the doors, don't let anybody in. He said, ah, oh, crap, she stabbed me. <laughs> True. You know what well, I mean. Well, showing more noble shenanigans, 
The noble masters of House Yolanti decide that it, if it is indeed the end of days to go out in grand style. A celebration begins that spills out into the streets of the spire, with drunken revellers invading the domains of other noble houses. What begins as a great party inevitably gets out of hand, with the young Yolantians dancing in the House Helmore Grand Fountains and using the statues of previous Lord Helmores as target practice. Good gracious. Remember I mentioned that one getting killed in the dance hall earlier? Yeah. Apparently the Yolanti are doing that in fountains. Exactly. But they're, 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 nobody's stopping them yet because no. as the structure and the, the, uh, the law is gone and the enforcers haven't been told, stop them from destroying the statues. No. Or stop them from dancing in the fountains. No, no, no. Protect the door. Protect, Protect the, the door. That's but all I, I do, boss. Yeah, I love it that they're just like, no, we're going into other house areas. We're going into their territories. We don't care. We're, we're convinced the whole world's about to end. We're drunk. We're on the uh, extracurricular activities. Uh, we're those, you know, my, my young cousins have just robbed a bunch of people hanging outside <laughs> the Imperial House doors. And later on, we're going to go to the Gore Hollow to see what's left of uh, the House of Green guys. <laughs> exactly. This, this is a genuine party for the youth of the noble houses in Necromunda. And speaking <laughs> of, an unusual alliance forms between the youth of the noble houses who view the actions of their elders as recklessly endangering their future. These are all little Greta Thunbergs by the sound of it. Mm. All goes well for the upstart brats until Ninas Catalyst realises she has the opportunity to rid her house of a generation of rivals and lures the other young nobles into a secret factory meeting before letting loose a gang of murder cyborgs upon them. Interestingly enough, exactly what Greta Thunberg did. <laughs> true, true. So yeah. as much as we're talking about, you know, there's sort of a little bit of um, levity and a little fun. bit of harmless fun. <laughs> Somebody, shock horror on Necromunda, has turned it into a murder fest. Nina's Catalyst. And I love the fact she has a gang of murder cyborgs. Yeah. Also, using murder cyborgs right now, too soon. Yeah, come on, buddy. Very, it's a massive uh, social faux, faux pas. Yeah, I mean, just blow up the factory. Come on. Yeah. The classic. Yeah, do it a classic way, mate. Come on. But to actually be better. <laughs> but that's hilarious. Just the, hey, guys, we, we're, the, we're the youth. We're the future of the planet. We're the future of the noble houses. We should all come together. Our parents are wrong. Also, okay, everyone meet me in here. All right, lock the doors. Murder cyborgs go. You just imagine them all jumping through the windows. And the, yeah. that moment when all those other nobles are just like, oh, uh, she got Yeah. You know, for all of her, all of her failings in one of them being getting us all killed, respect on the ploy. Well done. Well, we've talked about one group of kids uh, doing dumb things in a warehouse and, you know, getting massacred by murder cyborgs. So let's talk about another group of dumb kids getting into fights. Now, this is where the Arantian succession and Sidrak burning become... In my personal opinion, just an absolute massacre upon the senses. So, House Escher, in alliance with House Yolanti, make their play for power. 
arrayed against them are House Goliath and its allies. Notably, the Lord Helmore in waiting, Agriote? Agriote? That's a terrible name. Angry Goat. Yeah, Angry Goat Goat Helmore. (laughs) It is a clash centuries in the coming. The hatred between the two clan houses boiling over into dozens of hives in outland settlements across the planet. Esher and Goliath, possibly the most perfectly matched enemies on all of Necromunda, go to complete house war against each other. And this whole section of this book, oh man, literally every paragraph is just horrific. So, And just the- chock full of like horrendous battles. Oh man. Horrendous battles. Yeah. But one of the absolute, and this is great because we talk about so many of the cool Escher characters that we mentioned in our Escher episode. One of my absolute favorite parts about this, Nekrana, the horror of Hive Ceres, led a one-woman campaign of blood against the Goliaths of her hive. Such was the grisly trail of dismembered bodies and ruined flesh the deaf maiden left in her wake that many of House Esher's rivals offered to aid them against the House of Chains, if simply to avoid the same fate. Hefty bounties were placed on Necrana's head by the Goliaths, though the decaying Esher turned this to her advantage by spreading rumours about her location and luring hunters into deadly traps leaving their remains as a warning to others. I, I envisage that she's with <laughs> limbs. Yeah. She's, I like to think she's just, she's um, setting them up in, as like marionettes. Yeah. And it's just hanging them like, oh, look, it's Goliath having a tea party. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, I'm, I'm loving the idea that she's drawn in the hunters. And it, the hunters is so ambiguous in the sense that it doesn't say just Goliath. So there's anybody going for this contract, which I think is brilliant. Like, imagine that fight going down. You've got all these hunters rocking up. They're like, wait, well, okay. They might even start fighting each other. And yes. then she, yes. she shows up and she's like, I'm here. And then, okay, let's turn our attention onto her. But by that stage, she's, she's already 10 steps ahead of them. And it's just a butcher fest. I mean... She's um she's like four hundred and sixteen years old, and her <laughs> blood is acid, and she's she's literally like, I I think someone thought about her too hard, and the events of The Walking Dead occurred. But this yeah, <laughs> this is just one thing. Like it these these entries go in about all these different hives where if these hives or these particular underhives were very Goliath heavy or if that always remained in the control of House Goliath, House Goliath yeah. immediately took over and either yeah. butchered the Esher or kicked them out, where yeah. it was the opposite in other places, where if Esher were in control or if House Yolanti were in control, yeah. where this actually happens in Hive Yolantia, House Yolanti literally just kick all of the Goliath out. They just say to them, yeah. like, Pack up your toys and leave. Get out of my house. Yeah, you're no longer welcome here. And it's, it's, I mean, it's clearly, it's an obvious link to House Escher, but it's a noble house coming to a clan house going, no, no, no. Pack up, as you say, pack up your toys, get out. Unwanted, unloved, 
be gone. Go go embrace the ash storm. Yeah. <laughs> We're locking our doors. Get out. Yeah. <laughs> um it, it is interesting though because you the the ability of House Goliath to just stomp out the Escher in these areas, it's it's like they flick a switch and they just show so much dominance and power in just a very short like burn of time. Yeah. Whereas I, I guess more the Escher way of doing it is you know, probably a little bit more subtle, but the Goliath, it just shows the strength of, the, of House Goliath wherever it is. It has the opportunity to just absolutely, like, flex, for use of a term, flex its muscle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and just and drive them out. So this, I guess what we're looking at here is it's a global conflict now between Escher and House Goliath. So we have the, the perfect... I guess perfect opponents in in both their ideology and methodology of fighting between House Estra and House Goliath, but now it's taken to a grand scale. And obviously, the links that they have with each other are important. The, the the trade links they have, but the links that they have with the noble houses become really, really important in this because although they are mighty clan houses, they still need backing as well. Mm. But yeah, I'll, I'll go into our next point because it's sort of relevant to what I was saying. But the the Goliath gangs, the bloody the bloody nails, and kings of iron attacked the Escher drug factories at Cam Falls. Outnumbered and outgunned, the Escher workers overload themselves on their own supply. The resulting raging mob of drugged up killers tear the Goliath Goliath fighters to pieces before rampaging off into the depths of the underhive. Yes, that is awesome. <laughs> It is. It's, it's it's really cool, and it's a. It, it, I love the idea. I, I always, every time we get to read them, and GW does it a lot. Every time we get to read about um, something just vanishing off into the underhive, I love it. It's just like yeah, yeah, yeah. like hot a killer that's bounced off into nowhere. It's the perfect little uh, sort of get out of jail free card for. We might want to talk about this later. Yeah. You know, so and so does this, and then they just. Rampage off into the depths of the Underhive. They slink off into the depths of the Underhive. But I love the fact that, you know, people are like, oh, these Escher must have realised they needed the boost of the cams and that sort of thing. No, no, these workers were just like, listen, either we're going to die, at which point I'm going to do a whole mess of, like, slort and gust, yeah, or... Yeah. Uh, we're about to win, and I want to win while on a whole mess of slaught and gas. <laughs> and they've just so either way, it's an excuse. Yeah, either way, it's an excuse to do a bunch of drugs and then punch on with some meat necks. And like, oh, it's it's just great. It's it's perfect. Mm. Escher sort of being like, well. We, we like making drugs and taking drugs. You also like taking drugs. So we're going to out-drug you. Yeah, I've, and, and, and we see it later on. It becomes important. But the Goliath taking on Escher, the, the gang that supplies them. So dumb. It, so it, dumb. It, it is like getting one of their, oh, what do they call their stud gun things that they've got? And the rivet gun or whatever they have. Yeah. <laughs> and just shooting yourself in both feet and then you junk. Yeah. Wow. And then going, why am I in pain? Who did this to me? I'll find yeah. them. 
It's not. It's not. It's not me who did this. It's the man who made the rivets. I'm yeah. going to go kill him. Yeah. I'm, I'm going yeah. to kill him. Good. Yeah. But uh, we need to remember this is an uprising, and people's tempers, and uh, they're going to get the best of them. Uh, a great example of this is in the closing minutes of the Battle of Haters Hole. Escher Gang Queen Zorsha and Yolanti Sion Prasina come to blows over the right to kill the Goliath tyrant Girk. What starts as harsh language and hurled rubbish quickly escalates to blades and fists. As the two women duel, the wounded Girk wisely crawls away to safety. This is one of the few instances I'm convinced that this Goliath is actually an unborn because no <laughs> natborn or vatborn is smart enough to crawl away. Yeah. He, if he was a natborn or a vatborn, he's crawling towards them saying, come here so I can bite you. Yeah, uh, oh, I've still got both legs. I like <laughs> this starts showing us where these tiny cracks are beginning to form inside the alliance between the Escher and the Yolanti where something as simple as who gets the permission or, sorry, who has the, the trophy kill, I guess, of old Girk. Authority, who's, who's, because if they get the kill, that's the person who's showing that they're the dominant yes. within that scenario. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah, th this is a great sort of tie-in to what's going to come later on. Yeah, there's some proper scheming, like some Dalekwetian-level scheming that goes on between... Escher, Credo, and Yolanti. So, um, Credo. Yeah, I know. I'd, we, we, we've dabbled in her a little bit, but my God, what a character. And oh. what an important character to have. Yes. <laughs> so, like, what we're seeing in this period of time is just a, quite a lot of turmoil for, for Necromunda. And it, it's just, it's the most. I guess probably direct and open warfare between the clan houses. Uh, well, not houses, but just the two clan houses of um, <laughs> two particular clan houses. Particular, like everybody's getting their 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 hands dirty, but these two are going out of their way to do something extra big, extra special, yeah. and yeah, it, it's just it's it's cool because as you said and as we mentioned earlier, they're two very iconic gangs within within Necromunda. I just quickly love how so nonchalant you are about that. Yeah, they're, they're causing each other a lot of damage. It's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> they're up to no, naughty no goodness. But, yeah, the open warfare between the clan houses leads to numerous excesses on the part of House Escher. Psychopathic fighters such as Raylan Razors, Zeela the Bloody, and the Queen of Swords all make their mark on the Underhive and also on the poor souls they encounter as they leave a trail of victims from Dust Falls to some city. So this is the, the brutality of them, but we're also talking about survivors from Dust Falls. So still getting embroiled in all of this, which is, as much as I love Esha, that's, it seems a little bit low for those survivors. Dust Falls basically just getting shit on this yeah. whole book so far. Yeah. Also, I want, to, I want it to be really ironic. Uh, the Queen of Swords doesn't actually use a sword. She, she loves axes. Yeah. No, no, that's just the whole thing. I want her to oh. hate using swords. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I thought, I thought 
You're being for real there. <laughs> no, no, I want her to just be like, swords. Nah, they're crap. This club, though, this club is great. So are you the queen of clubs? No, idiot. No, queen, queen of swords. <laughs> it's like how she falls everybody. They're like, oh, my God, the sweet queen of swords is coming. Oh, no, 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 no. That girl, she's rocking up with a club and a power mall, whatever. Bam, 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 bam. Strike again for the queen of swords. <laughs> <laughs> they sneak up on her and they're like, ah, excellent. Her swords are all the way over there. Sweet. <laughs> oh, she's only got, for some reason, a man's leg. Whatever. <laughs> oh, no. she She's one of those queen of swords. Um, okay, so apparently I'm going insane. But at this point, I love this next entry here because it shows that when you have an opportunity to cause a little havoc... You don't have to be part of the active gang houses. So, under the sign of the seven-pointed star, outland gangs and rebels from clan houses launch attacks across Necromunda. In the depths of the Quinspire, the slave houses of the Makeda Sanguis are destroyed in flame, while in Hive Trazia, a dozen gangs destroy the precinct fortress of the Shivna's Way, putting out the eyes of the Imperial House in the Hive. It is a grim warning of things to come. That seven-pointed star is going to show up later on. Just about to say. Do you want to to explain to people what the seven-pointed star is just yet? No, no, not yet. Not yet. Uh, It is probably my absolute favourite thing to come out of this modern era of Necromunda, and I don't want to ruin it just yet. Oh, get on to the next point before I start talking about it. (laughs) So after a brutal series of battles, Ferelda Claus stands alone as the last Escher in Hive Omnios. Far from admitting defeat, the surviving gang queen calls out her enemies in the great plaza of bones, inviting them to face her if they think they can. As such, a a dozen Goliath-forged tyrants arrive to claim the glory of killing the Escher. Ferelda welcoming them with her crackling shock whip and dripping venom blade. I mean, she's dead. Nah. 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 <laughs> nah. What was I, it? Um, uh, rampages off into the underhive. Yeah, she rampages <laughs> off into the underhive. <laughs> but just, this is, this is probably something, I'm going to keep saying all these things are my favourite. This is one of my absolute favourite things about Escher. We mentioned this in our Escher episode. That cocksure just self-imposed ideology of I am better than you. Yeah, yep. She's she's the last Escher. And see, I read this differently when I first read it. Ferelda Claus stands alone as the last Escher in Hive Omnios. Firstly, great hive name. And yeah, Ferelda, like Ferelda Claws. Oh, that's sick. I, I don't like that name. No, Bit doesn't use claws, uses a shock whip and a venom blade. Um, but. She just, just calls a shock whip the claw. Yeah, perfect. Just to fool everybody. To fool everyone. Why make you hit you with the claw? You're like five meters off. Bam! Gotcha. Oh, uh, <laughs> like an Amazon Indiana Jones. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But she's. See, I read this as she was the last Escher, as in she was the the supreme Escher. Now that you've read it that way, by the sounds of it, she's the only Escher left in the hive. 
And yeah. instead of basically going, well, you know, I'm done here, she's walked out in the open. And the way I picture this is there's Goliath gangs and their allies and scum and slavers and all that watching her as she walks out there. And I can just imagine she's wearing these like stiletto boots and she just drags her foot and makes a line in like the mm. dirt of the plaza. Yeah, and it's just yeah. sort of goes, who wants some? And you see these, you see these uh, Goliath forged tyrants in that walk down and she's just, she's just smiling. She's just like, yeah, let's do this. I guess this case shows that the, the power of Goliath it, it really lies within just their martial prowess. They're an yep. incredibly combative and incredibly deadly foe when driven and focused in the right direction, almost like a, a sledgehammer, for use of a better term. Like when they hit, they're going to hit hard. And they, they exact a, an untold amount of casualties across uh, the Escher gangs, across the Hive, across just in, in total for the clan house. Yeah. And one of the one of the plans that Varen decides he wants to enact is to actually destroy the Council of Crones, but more importantly, kill Adina, so the head of House Escher. So he basically orders all of his firstborn, his vatborns. Well, he orders all of his alphas to gather up all of the first vats and so forth, and they're going to launch an assault on the Council of Crones, and. I guess his thinking must be that if I do this, I crush the head of the snake completely and all that is Escher becomes mine. So all their industry, all their territories, basically any of their, their mandants, which is not great, um, and any, anything you'd, in servitude. You'd look, good, you'd look good in like a spiked collar with a mohawk. Oh, thank you. A little bit of extra hair on top would be great. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, that's, that's Varen's plan. And what, what the Escher, and particularly Adina, is going through is trying to work out a way to end this conflict with, obviously, Escher on top, but in a more, I guess, subtle manner. And what she does, which I think is crazy. But what she does is great. It's great, but it's crazy. And, and the reason why I think it's crazy is, remember this word, industry, and remember this other word, tithe. Mm. Okay. So she holds back the hems that are needed for the Goliath to make their warriors, to make their vapor. Make their workers. Their, their workers, yeah. Yeah. Make their workers? Yeah. All the Goliath are workers. Okay. Yes, to make their yeah yeah okay to make their workers. You threw me for a second there. Yeah. Um, so, but it specifically says in the book they endanger meeting their imperial tithe because it's the forged alloys that they need to produce their last guns and whatever that they no longer get from House Goliath. Well, that's that's the thing people seem to forget. Every house is involved in a symbiotic relationship with every other house. Mm. They they all need what each other is providing. No one gets no one gets medals unless the Orlock go out and get them. You know, the the majority of medals and that come from Orlock scavengers. And then the Goliath need those medals 
to turn them into ingots and alloys for everyone to make everything. But to yeah. get more Goliath, they need Escher chems. And, yeah. you know, to get Escher chems, sometimes they need off-world products, which are bought to them by Delark. And they need technology to make those chems, which they get from Vansar, who get chems from Escher, who sell the chems to the Dalark to make more spikers that they sell to the Imperial House of Spies. And everyone is feeding the industries of everyone else. House Cordor. Um, robes. <laughs> robes and masks. You need... Everyone needs... That everybody yeah. says, as long as we're doing this, we're not going to behave like them. No, man. The Cordor are going through the rubbish that no one else wants to go there. I like to think that the Cordor are the bin men of <laughs> Necromunda. They're the and, sorry, Bin men and bin women. Oh, they do recycling. and They do a lot of recycling. They, oh, yeah, they're the recyclers, yeah. And in uh, fact, just quickly... Business idea, I guess. Uh, terrain idea. Make some dumpsters and yeah. paint them up as the business core door to door, where it's literally we will take your rubbish from you because we will turn your trash into our treasure. Yes. Oh my perfect. god! Did I just become a marketing genius? Yes. That. That. Yeah. For Cordor. For House Cordor. House Cordor. Damn it. <laughs> oh, I'm just going to join the cult of the bolt. Anyway, go back. Let's go back to the the topic we were talking about. Yeah, yeah. So, Adina, Adina, Adina. So she Adina. um she withholds the the chems, which is just great. Like I think it is it is such a clever and effective ploy, but it's probably something that hasn't been done before because of exactly what you're talking about that synergy that's required the fact that they still need to trade they still need to meet their tithe they still need to be responsible to the imperial house and their noble house so it it's it's kind of like going okay well you expect us to bend this is what we're going to do we're going to break you instead and the last line of this is that had adina been born in the underhive she might have reconsidered her plan. For as all hunt underhivers know, you never force a rat into a corner. No one puts rat in a corner. <laughs> you well, sound like a corridor now. <laughs> no one puts rat in a corner. You strap a bomb to him and make him attack those guys. Yeah. <laughs> Adina, Adina makes a big mistake here. I think this is probably the first mistake she might have ever made. By cutting the Goliath off what they need to literally, in most cases, make more of them, she corners them like yeah. a rat. And without the chems necessary to... Now, once again, I wish we'd done our Goliath episode before this. But no, we had to do Hive Life. <laughs> oh. Everybody hates the Hive Life episode. Everybody, everybody loved live life. <laughs> oh, they did. Yeah. But if we'd gone into the Goliath episode, we will, I promise, get that as soon as possible. We would have talked about how essential these camps are to the effective growth, creation and growth of the Goliath mm. 
as not only a workforce, but as a species. They are in many cases recognized as a brand new strain of abhuman. And without the chems, they are basically getting to like 75% complete and going, we got to do something with this. And this brings up quite possibly one of the kookiest things House Goliath could do in this situation. To make up for losses suffered against the Escher, Goliath clan masters decant hundreds of Vatborn before their gestation is complete. Gangs of hulking, drooling simpletons are driven into battle by forge tyrants. The Vatborn's terror at the world they find themselves in quickly turning to rage against their Escher enemies. If you don't have a gang idea from that, you are listening to the wrong podcast, guys. <laughs> oh, my God. So very true. I love the idea that they're like, okay, well, we know Goliath are massive, big, ultimate things. But this time, we're going to take away any semblance of normality and just replace all that with drooling mass. Charge like thump. That's all they do. Yep. Just... I, my mind immediately goes to this concept of uh, uh, just a bunch of, and you just Gene Smith them, and I should not be going into this without saying the words necessary, gang idea. Yes, gang idea, go ahead. I just, do you remember the Age of Sigma starter set with the guy with the huge whip? Um, no, I do not. It was the uh, the blood stoker. He had like this whip and he had this like trident and he was this huge hulking fella with like this almost ogre-like gut plate. Honestly, you slap a pistol on his hip and give him a head change so he's got a nice mohawk and it is a perfect Goliath in this respect where you've got your early decanted Vatborn ahead of him, and he's whipping them into combat. Oh, that's cool. Just head in that direction and get to, you know, get to your enemy. And you model your Goliath as, you know, I don't want to say mutated, but you want them to be uh, a little less defined. Maybe, Maybe one of them's got a bad leg, or you know, oh, they've, right they've got um, yeah, they maybe they have even less of a neck, and you equip them real simple clubs, pistols, get them into close combat, just drown the enemy in bodies. But on top of that, fill them with drugs, <laughs> so many drugs because you don't have the growth drugs necessary. Fill them with just friends on and. Gassed and ah, uh-huh, like, so you played that way. Yeah, like just run them as basically corpse grinder cultists without the love of corn. Oh, right. Oh, that's cool. That's really sick. Actually, you got me thinking of a miniature you could use for it. And it's from. Oh, where are they? Yes, here they are. I think it's the accursed cultists. They they would. Oh, yeah, they, they would fit quite well because they're like a little bit like, I don't know, misshapen. You could use that to your advantage by, you know, a massive fist or, you know. A, oh, a, man, 
Yes, yes, yes. As almost like mutated because they haven't gotten the right chems. Exactly. They're, yeah. They're blown out of proportion. Oh man, aberrants. Aberrants. That's the one I was thinking. Aberrants. Yes, they would be great too. They would be absolutely brilliant because you want that sort of misformed but still deadly look to them, sort of yeah. um, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde sort of thing. Uh, I think, I don't know if Island, you of, Island of Dr. Moreau. Remember the, yeah. where he, the almost like um, animal people? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. beastly and misshapen. Ooh, yes. That's yeah. an idea. What if your gang was led by a rogue doc who had gone to experimenting with replacing the necessary genetic material with that of scavies or beastmen? Or... Oh, what a cool beastman idea that would be. Dude, imagine using the Felgor Ravages from Kill Team, that beastman kill team. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, no. Stop. Stop. I, I'm, 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 remo- I'm removing my hand from the mouse and I'm stepping away from the Games Workshop online store because I can't be starting a Goliath Beastman gang right now. So let right. me just ask you one question, though, right? They would be called the Goliaths. How could you not start that? That's brilliant. Goliaths. I've definitely stolen that from someone. There's no way I came up with that. That's no, it. no, you're definitely you're not that um, creative. Yeah, definitely no. not. Yeah. Uh, you're like, I like dancer. Beep, bop, beep, bop. Ooh, beep, bop, beep, bop. Let me tell you about it again. No, no. <laughs> okay, last thing I'm going to say about it. You get a miniature that is sort of running on all fours. You know what I mean? I, I can't even think I can't even think of the miniature that you could use and then you turn that into one of your vac vatborn. So it's it's given up, you know, or the doc has been like, we're gonna make this better and it's given up on actually being able to fire a gun or whatever and it runs around on like all fours. But not like a dog, but like a, a human like, that's like a gorilla. Like a gorilla, like, yeah. Is, is it is it bounding that they do? Yes, they... bounding. Yeah, so it bounds along. You know what I mean? And uh, you just have yeah. like a a collar with a chain that's been snapped off from it, and it's still got a Goliath head, but it's all like either manked up. Either the um those the awful hounds from that new Royal Beast Flayers. Uh, you from, reckon from Warcry? They're they're basically like dog things. You could go the, uh, what is it? The Hound of Wrath from oh, the Claws yes, yes. of Paranak. That corn hound thing. It's all, It's basically, it's very man-shaped. In fact, I believe it is likely a man. Yeah, it's a man wearing a, um, a bloodhound, like a helmet. Oh, man, that is perfect. Oh, okay. that's exactly what I'm talking about. Yes, yes exactly. The how the Karanak, Warcry, Age of Sigma, Chaos Core. I'm just reading all the words so that people can find it. <laughs> but the um, the Hound of Wrath is exactly what I'm talking about. Dude, that whole uh, warband, every single one of them is basically a feral Goliath. Every single one of those models is a feral Goliath. Oh, that's exactly it. That would look the, so cool. 
go to the champion, check out the second picture where he's got the non-helmeted head. You slap a mohawk on that. You tell me that is not yes. a Goliath. Oh my god, yes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, they I'm look so cool. Away. I'm stepping away. Mm. I'm I'm just lost with the 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 hand of wrath. That's is exactly what I'm that talking is, about. Just exactly bound what you forward. Were yeah. yeah. That is exactly what you were describing. That'd be so cool. Anyway, what were we talking about? Cinderac burning. Yes. <laughs> Circle back. <laughs> well, let's get away from the horrible mistake Adina has just gone and done. And we are about to start talking about... I still think it's a great move, by the way. I, I love it. It's, it. I think it's great. But she... She done made a kerfuffle. But, but it, 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 everybody, everybody does these little things to each other, and she just goes and, and breaks the back. But anyway, she's, continue, she's continue. dialing it up to 11. She's yeah, exactly. dialing it up to 11. Yes, and exactly. So we've been itching to get to this part all night. Why don't you jump on that next point? House Escher is betrayed. From within, while their new ally, the rebel lord Lady Credo, makes her own plans to assert the power of the Helmore line, House Goliath is likewise riven by internal conflict as an old adversary returns to challenge the reigning overtyrant Baron. In the shadow of the two warring clan houses, other houses and organisations are caught up in the fighting as they make their own plays for power. Oh, yeah. there is so much to unpack. I was just about to say, this is a small little read, but this has many, many tendrils attached to it. So I guess, firstly, the, the, the main person we need to talk about is the, the split from the clan chemists, which is, is phenomenal for House Escher because they're, they're normally so unified, so driven by... I guess, singular focus, and I've, I've mentioned that before about them, is it's very difficult to see them branching out and doing their own thing just for their own benefit of their own gang. And this is in particular with the clan, with the clan cameras breaking away. But it, the reason they do it is they see that their power is waning, it's weakening, because Escher is no longer supplying those cams to Goliath, which reduces the impact and power of Sinus, and who is the mother of poisons, and her ability and influence on the Council of Crones. But it's not only that, she was literally the head of the chemist covens, and because of how powerful those covens were, she is quite literally described here as the richest and most powerful member of the Matriarch's Council. Her entire position is built on the chem wealth of the house. Mm. And yep. they, her, her, her whole coven is now effectively rendered useless. Like, don't get me wrong, they'd still be selling stuff, but the Goliaths would have to be their biggest customer. You take away any trade from any element on Necromunda and they're going to be, you know, pissed right off with you. But to take away probably their biggest customer, I would say, and to take away, as I said to you earlier, their influence within the Council of Crones. They've, they've lost that, that, 
superiority and power that the Escher crave, and we know that about them. That this this unit unity that we that they normally would would have is only there because they're all trying to make their clan house the most powerful. Now, if you strip away that power, they're going to react so poorly, which they do by basically yes. going to war. But I guess the the, the the brutality of the betrayal is what Sinus actually does. And I'll read that here. In secret, Sinus and her allies reached out to Varangor and his supporters among the claimants of House Helmor, promising to restore the chem trade in exchange for recognition as new matriarch Primus. Varan, ever the cunning brute, agreed, provided Sinus first removed her competition. That is perfect. That it's, is that is Varen saying, if you want to be the leader of Esher, you've got to act like a Goliath. Yes, I was just about to say that. It's like <laughs> they say the ever cunning, right? It's not really a cunning ploy. It's more, it's like cunning for like uh, an Esher toddler or a Delark fetus. Or a rock. Or a rock, <laughs> exactly. Cunning for a rock. Yeah, he's like, you go kill her. Oh, okay, cool. Thanks. And what's step two? No, no, no two-step. No two-step. <laughs> no, two no, no two-step. No tango here. Yeah. Yeah. I um, love that. Yeah, oh, it's, it's absolutely... I, I think it's heart-wrenching for Escher. Do you know what I mean? And because... It, and we'll discover later, they're, they're on the precipice of something amazing here. Something that's truly, truly devastating to the world of Necromunda um, in terms of the hierarchy. But that that betrayal from within, and then obviously Sinus would have her own um, gang queens who would be allied to her and so forth. And they actually, they, I, I believe they enter the, the, the throne, the throne room of um, Adina, and they attack her there. And it's just so heartbreaking that they, they they were driven to that point because they could see the the loss of their power and their status going. It kills me. It kills me to hear about a gang that I love so much behaving wow. so crap. Like a bunch of meatnecks. Well Yeah. You got you you do have to feel bad for Sinus, like this whole war is bad for everyone involved. We all agree. But to witness everything you have stripped away from you mm. by the leader of your house must be, must just be a killer. Yeah, but if it's... she bided her time, Sam, if she just bided her time, that power would have returned. It no. was, yes. She, she can't, she can't think that way. She needs to think about the here and now. That's not the Escher way. They're big yeah, pictures. They're, they're not. They're they a are. bunch of, Yeah, that's that's why they drugged their genetic material so badly they can't have boy children anymore. No, but that was for the bigger picture. That was like for the end goal. We'll have some <laughs> really, really awesome fighters. And then they just didn't see that coming. Yeah, no, it, it does it it rankles me what Sinus does. But I guess the the next part is, oh. is important as as a why why this all happened is because of the big cheese herself the no, numero uno the naughtiest of the naughties old oh. lady credo oh man 
I hope you can all hear this. I have a grin on my face. That is. <laughs> oh. So, Lady Credo. Now, this glorious fallen noble uh, was originally introduced to us, I believe, in the Book of the Outcast. And she, the first picture we see of her is on page five, where she's on this throne and she's just got that veil over her eyes. Oh, yeah. By the gods, she is magnificent. And the write-up about her here is, it just opens so many questions. Yes, definitely creates more questions than answers. And then creates a few theories in a certain spaniel. But for those who move among the shadows of Necromunda, the name Lady Credo is a familiar one. Countless threads of sedition against the Imperial House weave their way back to the enigmatic matriarch of House Credo, and she is a master of pulling the strings of others to do her bidding. In fact, it was her husband, Constantine Credo, the last patriarch who succumbed to her wiles and gave over control of the remnants of his house to her, becoming another general in her rebel armies. Since appearing from the wastes only a few years ago, Lady Credo has been massing the fallen houses and been spreading dissension against Lord Helmore. Clearly of noble birth and bearing, some say she is one of Helmore's children, returned to usurp him, while others claim she is descended from a far older and more powerful bloodline. Whatever the truth, Lady Credo is a power to be reckoned with, and under her tutelage, the outcasts of Necromunda are growing in strength. Far from a cowering noble conducting war from the shadows, Lady Credo is a formidable warrior in her own right. Her skill with a power saber has cut down countless challenges to her cause, while her speed and biomechanical implants or genhancement of the highest order. She is also seldom seen without a pair of custom servo skulls hovering over her shoulders. The two constructs, dubbed Tenestus and Dexterous by the lady, give her an exceptional view of the battlefield and help her find her foes, wherever they might hide. So, a few tiny little things I want to touch on here before I go on a rant to rival even the deepest of Caryatid holds. Uh, her husband, Lord Constantine Credo, is yes. actually on page 85 of the House of Iron when we discover the entry for Rebel Lords. He is an absolute badass-looking brother. He has this insane sort of, like, two-fingered power claw and this enormous lion-like head on his shoulder pad he's got this awesome sort of looking flintlock pistol down the front of him the man is battered and bruised he's got a bandage over one of his eyes and he's got this just glorious i'm thinking power hammer or thunder hammer and it's list he actually is listed here as lord credo last patriarch of house credo rebel lord now why are we talking so much about Lady Credo? Some of you may be wondering. And why are we linking her with House Escher? So, 
she is introduced in Cinderac Burning under the title A Meeting Seven Millennia Late. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, I, I want to read all of this, but I, I also I, don't want to get sued. <laughs> I was sort of contemplating as well, and it's, it's not necessarily about the ancient oaths fulfilled part where it does talk about her or even the seven millennia, a meeting seven millennia in the making. Um, there are some key parts that we should read from it, though. Go. Take it. Take it. Okay. So I guess we've got to set the scene of the introduction to Credo and, less sorry, my apologies, Lady Credo. <clears throat> Show some respect. My apologies again. I do. I beg your forgiveness. So the scene is set in the throne room of the Council of Crones. And we have Adina who, and I love I love the bit where it talks that she sort of looks at the throne and it doesn't really have any love for it. And it's always cold when she sits upon it and it just doesn't feel like it's quite hers, which I, I really love that. But anyway, back to the scene setting. Enter, <laughs> enter Athera and her little friend. What's a little no, friend's name? <laughs> friend's name is Sticks, and yeah. I'm not too sad. And she introduces Adina to Lady Credo, and that introduction alone is is crazy because it is effectively a champion of Adina. Bringing, a pop, bringing one of their friends into the chamber and saying, here you go, I'd like you to meet this person. So there's no, there's, it's very informal meet and it's very, um, I guess, I guess it's not something common that would happen. Well, Adina go, and we will talk about um, Athera later on, the champion of uh, Adina Sabine. But we, I love this because Athera goes to, introduce Lady Credo and Adina cuts her off basically saying yeah I know who you are mm. only by reputation as if she's just I, I know enough about who this woman is you don't need to tell me what are you doing here exactly yeah it's just what are you doing here and I love that bit where Credo basically walks up to the throne and then nicks her finger Oh, do you know what? I'm just going to read this little bit and then the other little yeah, bit. Like, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm here because I made a promise to Verdicia. Credo's hand moved over the triple bladed icon on the back of the throne. One of the daggers catching her fingers and drawing forth a single drop of blood. Now, from this. The symbolism. The symbolism. Cuts her blood. And this drop of blood drips onto the throne. And from here, the house, the symbol and seal of House Escher sank into the stone and the arm of the throne folded open, revealing a gene-locked canister. This woman's important to House so, Escher. Especially when Adina's is like, uh, I did not know that was in my chair. Yeah, exactly. So what exactly, what exactly is she? And as we'll find out later, who the hell are you? 
is I have so many theories. <laughs> I have one theory, and it's just it's just so big. But how did she make a promise to Vidicia? And for those of you who remember our Escher episode, Vidicia was the first true mother of House Escher when the Ashaki flesh curse finally took control, and there were only women left on the ruling council. Vidicia was the first matriarch primus. And our lovely Adina and Athera, mind you, are in fact clones of this woman several thousand years after her death. So how did Lady Credo make a promise to her? That's an interesting, very interesting question. She's not time trouble, we know that. But anyway, the last bit of this read... (laughs) <laughs> the last bit of this read is what I really wanted to get to. So Credo held out the canisters to the matriarch Primus, Adina, her mind still grappling with what must surely be some lie or trick. Looking down from the rebel lord to the canister being prophet, the end before her bore the ancient symbol of the House of Blades, while the other end, held by Credo, and a seven-pointed star. There it is. There it is. A symbol she had never seen before. This is Adina. Almost without thinking, Adina reached out and gripped the end of the canister. The device responded to the combined genetic imprint of her and Credo, triggering its gene lock and popping open. Inside was revealed a roll of parchment, and though she could not read its contents, she took in the three seals holding it shut. House Escher, House Helmore, and that that's and that same seven-pointed star. This is big. This is the biggest like flashpoint news. What is going on here? Escher, Helmore, and the seven-pointed star. What does it mean? And mate, when we're talking about multi-pointed stars, the Warhammer Forty Thousand Galaxy has one very key one, and it's. This seven-point star is dangerously close to it. It is. It is very dangerously close. But a seven-pointed star is known as a heptagram, something we will be mentioning later on. But I want to know who this woman is. I have a feeling I know who she is, given the things she's been saying, the way she's been acting. But for this woman to walk into the central chamber of one of the, I'm going to go ahead and say seven most powerful people in the entirety of the world of Necromunda. Yes, your noble houses are very powerful, but they're not exactly as militant as the clan houses. And especially the way Adina is being at the moment uh, with her ability to, you know, just cut off the cam access of an entire house, for example. But for Lady Credo to be able to just walk in and go, hey, I've got some stuff we need to talk about. And, oh, by the way, I am currently at your chair bleeding on your symbol. This is... This is big. This is dangerous. And the fact she 
seems to know things she shouldn't. Mm. Intrigues me. Interesting side note. If you look at the picture of Lady Credo in Cinderac Burning there next to that reading, you'll notice that her right arm is robotic. Yes. Uh, in the Book of the Outcast, it's actually her left arm that is a that is robotic. It looks like the image is just flipped, and in fact, it is her left arm in the on the model as well. Are you serious? I think, I think it's just I think it's just flipped flip back to front. <laughs> uh, well, I've literally only just noticed that. Uh, that that's that. all right. Gets up my nose. <laughs> That's all right. So, is it? We've gone on that. We've gone on that. So let's I'll rewind. Just, just, just say one last thing about that. That we didn't mention about Credo is that Adina just instantly like shows deference to her. It, it's just something that it, this is the talking about the the matriarch Primus, and she would not normally have people walking around her throne room, but it's yeah. just. Instantly going, no, no, I need to, I need to recognise your authority here. So somehow Credo has that over them as well, which oh, is it's, it's absolutely insane that this woman who is a known criminal, a known rebel against the Imperial House, is just walking in and going, we need to talk. Yeah, and Adina's gone from, what do you want to? Yeah, apparently we do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like she's she's switched fully on to, okay, I know who you are and what you what you're about to. Okay, sit me down and tell me your story. Yeah, hmm. yeah. Now, let's go back to that scene with Sinus and her allies in the throne room with Matriarch Primus Adina. Lady Credo to her left, and her house champion, Athera, at her right. This is where the Escher Civil War really kicks into gear, because there is an attempt at assassination, something we seem to be seeing a fair bit in this book, (laughs) on Adina at the hands of Sinus. Now... Sinus stands from her seat and fires a bio-explosive toxic dart into the matriarch Primus. At the last second, one of her gang queens sees what's happening to matriarch. The dart catches her in the throat and a second later destroyed the bond between her cells, causing her body to first melt and then explode. Firstly, that is a party trick and a half. <laughs> you only do it once, though. <laughs> I usually just get drunk and get told that I have to go to bed early because I'm ruining Christmas. <laughs> but this is where everything goes insane because Sinus has gone to this event where Adina is effectively saying to her house and all of her allies, hey, we're going to honour a dozen of these gang queens who have excelled in this war against House Goliath. None of them are allowed to bring weapons. Sinus and all of her coven 
are chock full of combat drugs and have just toxic weapons strapped all over them. Yeah, right. These queens are armed only with ceremonial blades. Guns are forbidden in the council chambers. Now, these gang queens hold off. Like, they, they do well. Adina herself, basically a stiletto knife in each hand, fights back nice and strong with Lady Credo at her side the whole time. And Athera actually lunges for Sinus, the mother of poison, unleashing a torrent of darts at the champion. And fortunately for Athera, or perhaps blessed by her caryatid's luck, <laughs> all of them are turned aside by her armor. Now, Athera goes to charge to stab Sinus. And a dozen of a dozen hands drag her back, and the chemist coven give their mistress a chance to escape. And even as Sinus fled the chamber, Adina's personal guard flooded in. The matriarch Primus might have survived, but the true test of House Escher has only just begun. Now, this kicks off the Escher Civil War full scale. Chemist covens under the direction of Sinus have been passing out hidden orders and, you know, secret instructions to the gangs that are loyal to them, as well as calling in favours and alliances from both within and without the house. And they literally just go to war with House Escher. And... Yeah, but more importantly, they ally themselves with House Goliath. Don't you think that's... Oh, I, this is why I don't like Sinus. This is what absolutely irritates me. They actually well, ally themselves with House Goliath in this. And they decide, oh. yes, we're going to we're, we're going to throw our lot in with here because, because of trade, but because I think they're going to become the new... And they, they, they declare themselves that. They declare themselves as the, the actual House Escher. Well, House, yeah. But it's because they now have two matriarch primuses. You have Adina mm. and Sinus. Um, I do not I, recognize Sinus, by the way. But just... I definitely do. And I'm going to tell you why. Go on. Sinus's own coven, the Primari Witches, struck at the lower levels of Hive Primus and the other cities in the Palatine Cluster. Strap yourself in. This was done with gangs made entirely of no. <laughs> I was trying to work out why you're allying yourself with her camp, and that's obviously I, it. Gangs entirely made of death maidens. That's insane. But <laughs> this this sort of just crazy stuff is happening all through these hives hmm. that are have you know House Escher ascendant. In Rossell, yes. the Indigum Magistari unleash a pathogen toxic to all Escher save those gifted with their home-brewed antidote. While in Mortis, the Mortari Regia lured gang queens loyal to Adina into nests of plague zombies before sealing the doors behind them. That is the classic Necromunda. Lock the doors, let them have it. <laughs> like, oh, man. A tried and tested tactic, yeah. Yeah, but... After all of this, after the assassination attempt, anyone loyal to Sinus basically just said, we don't have pretend anymore. 
we're not yeah. loyal to Adina. Yeah. We yeah. are loyal to Sinus and the the new matriarch Primus. But as you said, a bunch of them also sided immediately with Varen and swore oaths to Varen's pet Helmore Agria sorry, angry goat. And uh <laughs> basically said he's gonna be our new Imperial he, 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 yeah, he'll be our new noble house representative. Oh, Imperial Governor, yes, I guess yeah. so. But it is definitely pronounced Angry Goat Helmore. Um, yeah. This is this is where I have the issue with it. And like, you can have your um, gangs of death maidens, but they're showing betrayal, total and utter betrayal. And I still think it stems from the fact that they lost power. That's all it was. Absolutely. That's all it was. Absolutely. <sighs> and they're taking <sighs> it back and gaining a house. Yeah. Well. Uh, I I can't I can't abide by it because the the house Escher, Lady Credo, Asilante are looking for a bigger overall outcome. And that is well, I guess Credo's the, the rebel lord, right? And yeah. so we know she's a rebel lord because she's rebelling against Helmore. Yeah. So the the eventual end goal is to destabilize, dethrone Helmore, the house, and Gerontius, and take over. Now, who they install in that position? Angry Goat. Angry Goat. No, angry that's goat. the Goliaths want to install yeah, the Angry Goat. Angry goat. Everyone <laughs> wants Angry Goat. But, well, now that his name's pronounced like that. Yeah, but Sinus also does something incredibly smart. And the Goliath moved to take control of House Escher chem foundries. And Sinus immediately restores the supply of stims and chems to their workers. Mm. She, she immediately makes herself the more attractive replacement as matriarch Primus. And you, and you see that, actually. Like I mentioned before, the, the unity of the three, Yulanti, um, Credo and Escher, true Escher. But all of this, everything that you talked about and Sinus making herself the more, I guess, tastier option, especially for people looking for trade, but also for the Goliaths. So Yolante actually withdraw their support. So worse, the faith of House Yolante had been shaken and they, they were already placing the blame for the instability at the head of Adina claiming that they had never been anything but a loyal servant of House Helmore. Mm. So they've already scuttled backwards. They're just like, whoa, 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 whoa. We're not getting involved now because we can see that our greatest, I guess, military aspect, which would, would, would their, their fighting arm, which is House Escher, has Absolutely. been split in two. And they, they, don't, they no longer have that control to go into battle with with great numbers and even if they do go into battle they're going to be potentially fighting against their own as well and it's just a weak act by house yulanti however the these these setbacks don't stop lady credo's rebellion which Ooh, is it's almost like setting back everyone else gives her an advantage are you saying that she is the reason that the house is split? I mean, I'm not saying 
she's not cunning enough to see. Apparently, she's been around for 7,000 years. She's probably learned patterns, or she can fake emails. Like, <laughs> you know, who You're knows? talking some very Zinchian nonsense right now. And we don't talk that on Underhive Lawkeepers. We talk about that on Zinch Talk chat. with Nathan and Spam. Uh, <laughs> coming out on the 29th of February. <laughs> Wait, is oh, there a 29th of February next year? I think there is. I think there is, actually. The, the, 20, the 30th of February. Oh, so fix that. No, 29th. Screw it. We'll start a new podcast. <laughs> 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 also, that the star only has seven points. It's definitely not chaos related. It, it, it's very close. It is you know, very close. A pati- any particular inquisitor could just see that and just go, "Hang on, what's is it seven or eight? I don't know. Let's just get them. Just burn them. Just burn them. Better safe than sorry. <laughs> I, I mean, why would you pick seven? It's it just it's dabbling right on the edge of some serious trouble. Yeah. Why would you do that to yourself? But edgy, anyway. edgy. Yes, edgy emo kid. Edgy. <laughs> just yeah. look how look how dangerous I am. Oh, I'm late at credo. Um, <laughs> but what happens next? What happens next is the death of a meathead. A oh. meatneck, sorry. Well, there's there's been a few dead meatnecks recently. I mean, is is one more dead meatneck really going to affect anyone? Um, I think this one does. Oh, this this one's a a bit of a a big lad. Tickle me intrigued. Let's hear about it. So this is the death of Varen Gore. That's big. I mean, That's massive. it's not often we get the uh, the immediate death of the head of one of the clan houses. I mean, they all we almost lost one, but. That's, that's what I'm saying. Like, that's how big this is. Like, uh, the, the assassination attempt on Adina, the assassination attempt on Helmore, they're all massive things. But this is just, this is a straight-up murder. And it is, it is a very Goliath way of doing it as well. Well, we've talked about it in the past. The uh, only way for promotion in House Goliath is you've got to kill your boss. And we've all thought about it. We've all, we've all thought about it. But... The Goliath actually do it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and this is the sort of round two reunion match between, like you said, Baron Gore, the current overtyrant of House Goliath, and Jangar Gunfist, the former over-tyrant of House Goliath, one of the few, if not only, situations where an over-tyrant has been succeeded, has been thrown out of a window, basically, to fall down the side of a hive, and the dude survived. (laughs) And then he made friends with someone. Who was it he made friends with again, Nathan? Was it our friend, Lady Credo? Absolutely. He actually <laughs> met Lady Credo uh, during an Ash Waste Nomad ambush north of Cinderac City, and she actually saved his life. Basically says, hey, 
I've helped you. If, uh, if at some point I need help, maybe you can pay back the favour. And she actually sought him out during the Great Darkness when Jangar was just having a casual Sunday fighting corpse grinder cultists in the ruins of Skullrift. And these cultists have just spilled out of a, the gutted remains of Hive Uthos. And Jangar's basically just having an absolute time, I'm assuming, gun-fisting these poor corpse grinder cultists to death. <laughs> As you do. <laughs> so... Basically, during this war between House Esher and House Goliath, Credo has effectively then smuggled Jangar into the fist. And he stalks his way through the foundries and smelting plants. And when other Goliaths see him, they know what's going on and they just basically do their best mayonnaise boy impression and slink <laughs> off into the shadows. They have other really important places to be that it basically involved them staying away from Jenga. Now, he gets into the Arena of Pain, which is basically like a Goliath nightclub where you get to do cool things like beat people to death and friends on. I don't know. Goliath, <laughs> Goliaths just seem like a kooky bunch. They now, are. Yeah. Gore and Agriote, sorry, Angry Goat, are <laughs> uh, effectively hanging out, having a war council, surrounded by not only Goliath soldiers, but also elite Helmoran forces. And they're effectively going over this recent victory where there's been a slave uprising. Varen's effectively quelled that and is talking about how he can do the exact same thing to House Escher. Now, we find out here that Varen is effectively looking at Angry Goat and going, I hate you. You are a weak, pathetic example of humanity. He's not actually saying that because he's also in smart enough. Remember, he's got that uh, rock cunning. He does too, yeah. Where he knows that if he puts Angry Goat into the number one seat of the entire planet, guaranteed he's going to have a few favours owed his way. When Jangar walks in, he charges Varen, and if the two of them just throw down. Now, in classic Goliath fashion, Varen knew he would take this challenger by himself. He didn't want to be seen as weak by those below him and having someone else get involved in the fight. So Goliath, Forge Tyrants, Champions, anything like that, they know unless we're told we don't get involved, we stand back. Angry Goat was not an intelligent man in this regards and thought that he would be able to uh, really just use his words against Jenga and maybe put <laughs> yeah. in this silly, yeah. silly little man who's probably like nine feet tall. Uh, well, I, just, I love <laughs> ang like what they say about Angry Goat here is that he just considered this strange, unwashed newcomer as little more than a nuisance. And just like, I'm going to go put him in his place. 
And just the way he dispatches him is so great. <laughs> so he took three steps toward the, the old overtyrant, opened his mouth to give him a stern dressing down, a stern dressing down to a Goliath. Yep. Listen really here, old <laughs> chap. Yep. Just before Jenga shot him in the face, never once breaking his gaze from Varen. <laughs> just that's the, that's the ultimate. Just like, like yeah. this is how focused I am. I'm gonna keep my eyes locked on you. Hmm. Kill this dude. Yeah. I'm assuming holster my weapon, relight my cigar, <laughs> and then we's gonna tussle. Yeah, exactly. And it, it, it's so amazing because so much of what's driven from House Goliath comes from Angry Goat. You know, they, they, they need him. And he's just gone, you're nothing. The whole nexus of what's happening with House Goliath and Farron is basically falling apart right here, right now, because of that one shot that was not even, like, aimed. It wasn't an assassin. It was just a, don't bother me, I have bigger things to do. Here, eat this bullet round. But as soon as he's popped Angry Goat, mm. so his personal guards immediately level their weapons at Jenga, and they're about to kill this guy. But the Goliaths in the War Council see that these enforcers are about to interfere with a Goliath challenge. So they just dominate these enforcers <laughs> and kill every single one of them. And while that occurs, Jangar and Varen Gore fight to the death. And it is not a repeat of their previous interaction. Jangar and I'm not going to ruin anything. I want you all to read this. Also, we're a G plus rating, so we can't <laughs> read a lot of the words uh, that happen here. But basically, Jenga is victorious. And though the just... sounds of battle had died now, save the occasional scream as a Goliath finished off a wounded enforcer, effectively all of the alphas of the fist so ready to obey Varen and his every command, have immediately turned to their new overtyrant and are all now 100% as close to 100% as Goliath can get. Yeah. Loyal to Jangar Gunfist, the new overtyrant of House Goliath. The allegiance just switches like that, just straight away. It's gone. They know Very. the system. Very orcish. It manner. is very orcish, yeah. yeah. But so, they know the system. You want to yeah. get promoted, kill yeah. your boss. And we've all thought about it. We've all thought about it. Jangar <laughs> just did it. Yeah, runs in, stomps him out, and also eliminates the link with the noble house as well. I think I think that's a massive and an important element to this. By getting rid of that, it sort of frees up the Goliath as well. Well, it's interesting because Varen had a plan coming up and Jangar, who's obviously, because we've got to remember, this was a war council. Yep. Jangar has looked down and has seen 
in my mind, either a hololith or a map or a crude drawing, maybe on a wall with some chalk and crayon, <laughs> and has seen what this plan was. And that plan is to capture Cinderac City. But thankfully, we're not going to worry about that just yet, because in the wake of the Great Darkness, thousands of cults, mutants, and outcast gangs continue to plague the hives of Necromunda. Travel within the Underhive and across the wastes becomes even more dangerous, as helot cults such as the Order of the Broken Cog and corpse grinder cults from the Primari Meatworks lay claim to vast territory. Also, they spelt Meatworks wrong. Um, it's spelt <laughs> M-E-A-T-W-E-R-K-S. That is the Primari Meatworks. That's exactly what I read it as. <laughs> it's not Meatworks. It's me a twerk. <laughs> and firstly, I'm in. Like this you want is, to make yeah. This is a corpse grinder cult that I'm I'm down to join. Like instead of instead of chain axes, they've just got like boom boxes with just like just hard bass. It's like <laughs> Your gang's just there. It's like, what's happening? You just see these corpse grinders all twerking, moving backwards, coming into your, <laughs> coming into your base. It's just like, oh my god, this is, this is so enthralling. And then how do we fight this? <laughs> and then someone sneaks up behind you and just bonks you on the back of the head. Just like, ah, oh, they got me. Uh, they got me yeah. good. And so that's oh. like, they continue to use this tactic, and that's the fourth time yeah. this week we've lost gang members. They've but, conquered the vast majority of this hive by, honestly... Me twerking. They're, they're me a twerking. They're fiery Latin sexuality. That's a good idea. It's are okay. We, I take are it we saying it's, the, it's salsa music. Are we saying that the, I don't know, corpse grinders are Latin? Yeah. Yeah. They're, <laughs> Oh my god, they're all literally just dudes from um you remember that TV show Dexter? Yeah, and they had all yeah. like the like the Latin clubs, like the with the yeah, real, yeah. like that Cuba American feel. Yeah. Um all the music they play in the background there, that awesome like salsa, like modern stuff. That's what I've now got in my mind. There you are. You know, you know these cults are coming for you. There's, everything's dark and you and your gangmates and the scummers that have been press-ganged into it, you're manning the walls. You're choking up on that combat shotgun because you know you've got to keep it close. You've got to get ready. And all of a sudden, it's just like... And then there's some guy... Exactly. <laughs> then the primary Mia twerks come in and everyone's just like... Oh God, we're all gonna die. We don't all, stand a chance. It's like that scene in um the mask. The mask. Yeah. Where... <laughs> My name is Cuba Pete. I'm the king of the rubber, and then just gets all the cops involved. Yeah. <laughs> and the chain axe goes chicky boom, chick chick chicky boom, chick chicky boom. And by the end of it, there's just this one butcher standing there, and he's got the hat with the. Yeah. And, oh my God. Gang idea. Gang idea. Because <laughs> they wear the masks, too. Because they wear the masks. 
That's so perfect. Also, that scene in the mask was fantastic. We should watch it after recording tonight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's seriously one of my favourite scenes from that movie. But anyway, (laughs) what I'm getting from that little point there is that although the the chaos cultists and the hallet cults and all the other scummers that are being destroyed and scabbies and whatever, that in their last vast numbers, they've been destroyed. But as a, a persistent threat, they're still there. They will never and go that, away. Yeah, but like before before the Great Darkness, they are, they are a persistent threat, right? Absolutely. But now they're a more, I guess, immediate threat. And they're oh, starting yeah. to gain, and as, as you say, they gain control of vast territories as well. So I, I wonder what this will do for the um, the landscape of Necromunda after the Aranthian succession, where where we will see like sort of off off limit areas and areas where you just go, well, that now belongs to this particular Hallet cult or this particular. Yeah. Um, corpse grinder cult, and we just don't go. Like you just can't go there anymore. You know, it's 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 beyond our, our reach because I imagine, and as we mentioned before, there is a rebellion going on. The strength of the noble house won't be enough to reclaim these territories without the aid of the gang houses, but they can't be unified until there is a singular imperial house that is also backed by the noble houses as well. So there's there's a lot of there's a lot of components that need to fit together yeah. to be able to shift to be able to shift these these unwanteds you'd say. Oh, I th- I think that uh, in future books and future settings within Necromunda, it would be absolutely foolish to not have a bigger focus on cults, be it helots. Corpse grinder or gene stealer, yeah, like true. where there's the environment just from just from this first book, just from this first section of this first book is now so different that the the fallout from this and we obviously we've read the other two books we know what's coming and a lot of it, but this can be said incredibly broad, broadly and still be very very true. The fallout that is coming from this that has already come from this. You're 100% correct. There will be entire sections of hives where it's just, nah, man, you cannot go lower than level 151 because everything below that belongs to cultists. Or you can't travel these roads to these settlements because there's, there's just cultists and mutants waiting to get you. Like, it's, it's making Necromunda somehow a harder place to live. And that's awesome. But that's that's exactly what I'm saying. It, it it is harder to live, but we're now starting to see not just the the Credo Rebellion, but the the not now, but across Necromunda, this rebellion has shown its face. Basically, all the all the nefarious elements of of house cults and genius cults and all the other cults that you mentioned yep. before are starting to be more present. So. It, they're basically throwing the world into into chaos, so that goes beyond the reach of even the um, the imperial house. And now we start to talk about what would the imperium do here? Yeah, the imperium of man once it deals with 
the issues that it's had with the cicatrix maledictum. Where, <clears throat> how exactly does it stop its foot down on Necromunda? And this is where we, the question, and we mentioned them earlier, the question has to be asked about the, the Yellow Boys, the Imperial Feast. Who? Do they take any sort of role in trying to establish some order and destroying those cults? Or do they wait for, you know, another 50, 60, 100 years or whatever it might be for an inquisitor to take some sort of interest and then consequently some sort of action in destroying one of these cults? Because that's probably how long it would take. But by then, that stage, it's already festering and and openly festering, whereas before it was behind closed doors. So there's almost a, an acceptance of it then. I love the fact that you've just been like, no, it's just this this rebellion and this rebellion. There's like 97 different rebellions going on. And each of those rebellions is also rebelling against another rebellion. (laughs) But no, you're absolutely right. Like when the Imperium finally does return sort of en masse, because you've got to remember just earlier when you said um, that the the army was coming, that Necromunda had been told, hey, The Militarum is coming, the PDF is coming, yeah. whatever. Uh, that's when things started to really get pulled back in. Yeah. But no, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that the environment will be forced to change once yeah. they get back. And Necromunda is too important to fail. It's kind of like banks. Uh, <laughs> doesn't matter how badly you screw up, there's always someone willing to be like, oh, but you're trying hard, so it's okay. Yeah, yeah. Necromunda is too big to fail in a lot of respects. And especially when it comes to something like this, you got to remember, technically we haven't breached into the... We're rebelling against the Imperium right now. We're just fighting amongst ourselves and stopping, you know, mutants and cultists and people who ride giant crickets from taking over. Yeah. Technically there is nothing... Against the Imperium yet. And we mentioned it earlier, it's not unified in in yeah. the way that um, it is driven by a single leader or driven by a single purpose. It's just all these, as you say, all these rebellions popping up, creating this havoc and chaos on the planet. If there's any form of unification to it, then I guess you'd see the Imperium react even more harshly. I guess the other thing about what you're saying as well is that it was the gang houses that basically stopped these rebellions. Yeah. It was it it wasn't it wasn't the noble houses, it was the clan houses who who took over and said, We are gonna defend our cities, we're gonna make the, the cities the way they should be or the way that they, they were previously. So in that in that sense, the in the Imperium has basically had a cop out from gangs, you know. Yeah. Which is just it is just crazy to think about this vast, huge mechanism of the Imperium, Imperium basically unable to to affect the outcome on Necromunda without the aid of the gang gang houses. Because this goes back to what you said earlier, the nobles and everyone above that societal point were so busy screwing around yeah. that. You know, doing their little attacks on each other and fights and all that sort of stuff. It was the regular people coming together and going, nah, enough's enough. 
we are going to put down the rebellions. We are going to start taking out these cultists. It was criminal bosses and guilders and just your regular everyday people that were were putting these things down. And yes, a lot of them were coming from the gang houses. There's no denying that. But the, the average man was stopping the rebellion while the nobleman was shooting at, the, at each other. Well, they were having what those, those, the kids having were having galas. parties, yeah. galas with murder cyborgs. So, yeah. this, and this is, this is very interesting because it's probably not something that'll get explored, I don't believe, the, the sort of the separation between the noble houses and the clan houses. Yeah. Um, but it, it does show that the, the the Imperium and the Noble Houses are so far gone from reality that they just live in this this world that doesn't actually represent their planet and where they've yeah. come from and what, what they're actually relying on and their foundations being rotted from underneath them. So, but anyway, moving on. It's, yeah. it's quite oh, some heavy... To- <laughs> lots of cultists. Lots um, of cultists. Got some heavy talk just from... Um, Firstly, talking about meat twerkers. So, the meat twerkers. Meat uh, twerkers. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I guess um, the next point House Goliath turns to the advanced industries of the Van Saar to meet the needs of their growing conflict with House Escher. Included among the weapons crafted for the Goliaths, a massive cybernetic power fist able to dish out prodigious amounts of damage for the minimal cost of drastically reduced lifespans for their users. Fair. It's a very, it's fair. Fair. It's a very Van Saar type of tech, isn't it? We don't care, buddy. We're chock full of tumours. Yeah. Like, uh, we've, we're only... Like, you thought the... Like, the Manvins obviously have the shortest life around. Second is a Van Saar. I Like, without the... Without Escher anti-rad medications, I think we last about 16 minutes. <laughs> I like how the Vans uh, regard the technology as, I don't know, it's okay if it kills you quicker. It doesn't matter. The tech's awesome. That's all that matters here. But it's also very Goliath, and it's just like, oh, yeah, listen, you're going to kill them real good. You're going to smash them just to bits and pieces. Yeah. Was that going to maybe cause you to die a little faster? And the Goliath's like, bits and pieces. No, not just bits. Yeah, just like cocking his monocle down to the side. And like, I'm, I'm sorry, good fellow. Did you say bit and pieces? Like, uh, my, my compatriots and myself shan't be leaving this fine establishment without a moderate array of your most delicious of kill fists. Um, I I want to meet these particular Goliath you're portraying. <laughs> hocking, oh. hocking the monocle of the Goliath. That is, oh, if you're out there, listeners, make a Goliath with a monocle, please. That is brilliant. Gang <laughs> idea. He's looking like real pot Goliaths. Real, real posh Goliaths with like Everybody has top hats. Top hats, <laughs> monocles. No, stop. No, stop. 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 Yeah, so I, I'm not 100% sure 
I think these are the kill fists. I mean, in Vault of Tem- Temenos, uh, we see Durgan kill fist, the Goliath character. Yep. And he's got that huge fist oh, yes. basically like the... Um, it's, it's, like, it's like a circle with just a bunch of spikes on it. Yeah, I, yeah. I think that's what this is. It, it doesn't really describe much more. That's the only sort of giant fist I can think of. Yeah, I know, I know that what you're talking about, the miniature, it, ma- it makes sense, but, I mean, they're not, not again, it's the classic GW stuff of we don't necessarily have to explore the idea. We leave that for you, the populace, to uh, jump on and just come up with your crazy theories for, so. Yeah, because then you've got, like, Gorshiv Hammerfist, the Goliath character who we'll talk about later on. He has a hammer and he has a fist, but he has no, mm. like, Bits and pieces, power fist. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, we actually he actually has two hammers. Um, but yeah, so he doesn't even have fist. He just has hammer hammer. It should just be Gorshiv hammer hammer. <laughs> Somehow that just doesn't um, roll off the tongue quite nicely. Gorshiv well, hammer hammer. Hammer hammer. My, I say, good fellow. <laughs> no, <laughs> well. <laughs> Moving from the meat next and back to a little bit of Escher. In desperation, Escher leaders in Hive Primus and the Greater Palatine Cluster make alliances with the Delark to remove the threat posed by their traitorous chemist covens. True to their word, the Delark wage a war of assassination and sabotage, though in the process plunder the secrets of the House of Blades for future use. Why would you let them in? Yeah, I know. Why? Why let them? What is it? You you need to invite a vampire in. Um, That's basically what they've done. Yeah. (laughs) Just like, go and and kill our former sisters. Don't you steal any of our important information. Uh, We we definitely won't. We definitely are right now. I mean, won't. We definitely, we've already done it. Have you already stolen our information? (laughs) No more stealing from now. Starting, starting as he's jamming things into his overcoat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> starting from three, two, one and a half, one. Now, no more stealing. And she's like, okay. She turns around and he just shoots her and steals more. <laughs> but I guess this shows the mindset of, for me, what is the 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 true Escher? Because I don't consider the the chemist covens and their breakaway Escher as what they define as the true Escher. Um, it shows that the, how desperate House Escher is, that they have basically opened the door to the most untrusted, underhanded and scheming gang to say, we need your assistance in getting rid of these other Escher. Mm. Because I can only assume that the tactics they would use would be matched by other Escher. They're processes and their methodology for warfare would be matched with the same methodology that the other Escher would be using. So you step outside of that process of thinking and you get the worst of the worst in terms of a completely shady nonsense characters. You get the Delacroix in to completely ruin the the, the chemist covens. And lose a bunch of your own <laughs> crap at the same time. You can imagine they've walked off with chem recipes mm. or 
research on the flesh curse. Yeah, um, right. Just all sorts of stuff like that. That's what I imagine the Delac could be going for. But also like um, weapon designs and that because the, the Delac just doesn't matter if it's useful information. It's information and they want it. Yeah, right. Yeah, that is very true. They'll just be just gathering. That's all. Yeah. So the, the, I guess the, the crux of what we're talking about here is that the war between the Escher and the Goliath is still raging, you know, oh, right yeah. across right across Necromunda. And um, Forge Tyrant Ergan Brokebone refuses to acknowledge the orders of Varen, claiming his right of challenge against his master. Varen is long dead before word of Ergon's disobedience travels up Hive, though by this time the Forge Tyrant has broken a dozen alphas sent to put him in his place. <laughs> so you, you have this war that's raging between Goliath and Esher, and yet you still have Goliath nonsense going. Goliath being yeah, Goliath. It's like peanut <laughs> brain behaviour, but it also shows that um, lack of communication that... Yes. It's like a constant across the Warhammer 40,000 galaxy, I guess, or or across the IP where that, you know, information just gets lost because of warp travel. But in this particular case, I don't know, somebody ate all the writing crayons for the Goliath so they couldn't quite explain that Baron is dead. So (laughs) they've only got, like, food crayons left. But you're absolutely right. I love this. It's just like... I'm not listening to Varen Gore. Varen Gore's an yeah. idiot. He's telling me to do things that are going to cost me my gang or my territory or it's going to be a bad fight. He's just like, no, screw that guy. And like we know in House Goliath, if you want a promotion, you've got to kill your boss. Yeah. We've all thought about it. <laughs> We've all thought about it. And he's, he's made it quite clear to everyone. He's like, nah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go kill Varen. I'm going to make my way to Primus, or once I've done here, once this is over, I'm going to go find Varen, I'm going to kill him, and I'm going to be the, you know, the leader of House Goliath. And so a dozen alphas who have been sent by... That's the question. So is he's making a threat to Varen's And Varen doesn't know about it. Yeah, so it's the alphas reacting. But you don't really see this a lot in Necromunda, the loss of, like, communication. I I can't remember another time where it's been so blatant that it's sort of like warp travel where you go, oh, we, we called for help um, and it came a thousand years later or a hundred years later, whatever the case might be. We don't really get a lot of that in Necromunda where it's like, well, this particular action took place or this particular, you know, ganger did X, Y, and Z and upset the noble house or upset the... The, the a clan oh, why house. Why don't you call me? And it like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it, it. You don't really you rarely see this where it takes twenty, thirty years, or even even a couple of years to to react, or even a couple of weeks to react. Yeah, so it's an interesting. You know, you're one. absolutely right. We're getting weeks between things occurring and people reacting. Mm. It could this be because of the. Sigatrix, Maleficent. You, you, you mentioned uh, that earlier yeah. on, remember? The Sigatrix is also somehow screwing with communications. But mm, with these mm. alphas, I think other Forge tyrants who are loyal to Varen, or at least loyal enough in that they know they can't beat him, they may be the ones sending these alphas to fight and kill 
Ergen Brokebone. Or Right. You know, because Varen's dead long before word of Ergen's disobedience travels up Hive. So this is this is still that's, on the ground level. Then. That, so yeah. I think you're right what you say. Yeah. And so whoever's doing this is taking advantage of the situation. And I guess we're going to see that a lot across the Aranthian succession, people taking advantage of the situation. And we already are, most notably and Lady Credo. Advantage of no one being able to effectively call for help. Well, which yeah, like you've true. just said. It's not like the Imperium where you're communicating planet to planet. Oh. We're on one planet. We're communicating oh. hive to hive, settlement yeah. to settlement. And right now we oh. cannot. Oh. The nomads can, and none of us know how that's oh. happening. But none oh. of us can call each other from hive to hive. And this this confusion is leading to a, a lot of bad stuff. Yeah, but people just trying to take advantage, I guess, of it and trying to take advantage of that weakness. And the Goliaths would be principles in that. They would see a weakness and they try and crush it. For me, whoever's sending the Alphas wants to kill the Tyrants and use just the Alpha like as a proxy. Just Baron hmm. was trying to do with Angry Goat. Yes, exactly. Oh, the Goliaths, little, little bit of spark of smartness in that. Like yeah. that rock kind of... yeah. <laughs> all all five people who play Goliath are really pissed off at us right now. Uh... <laughs> now, speaking of confusion and it being taken advantage of, it's not just the Goliath doing it. Confusion and rumor crippled the Escher of hives across Necromunda. In the Minerva cluster, rival gang queens turn on one another with each claiming their loyalty to the matriarch Primus. While in Hive Rothgol, the clan chemists poison whole covens of workers for fear they might turn on their masters. It makes me sad. It does, because these queens, they're claiming their loyalty to the matriarch Primus. Mm. Are they saying, I'm loyal to the matriarch? And they're both actually loyal to the same matriarch because we have two right now remember oh yeah and true they're killing each other pointlessly or are they loyal one's loyal to adina and one's loyal to sinus and it's that's the best thing about a civil war uh for every person on the other side you kill you're still killing one of your own that's our quote from the episode folks that's the best thing about a civil war yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, <laughs> I've never thought I'd be pro-Civil War yeah. uh, But no, in my mind when you're talking about the confusion You could have two people claiming to be fighting for Adina And the confusion is that they go Well, you're fighting for the Matriarch Primus Yes, blah, 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 blah And I'm fighting for the Matriarch Primus But because of that confusion they, And the lack of communication that's happening they're killing each other for the same, for the same, I guess, primus. And it, it's just, as I said, this this particular part makes me very sad because the the house that is so fixated on overall presence and power is just absolutely ripping itself asunder internally, which is classic. Almost I guess, by design. Almost it's by almost, design. Almost yeah. like someone wanted it that way. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it, it's. It, it, it has a lot of hallmarks of Escher as well, where they 
the the failings when they happen don't come externally they come from internal and they are the worst failings for for esho it's not it's not some greater presence or some um militaristic or militant force that cripples them it's themselves so sad and, and then yeah. and obviously yeah the much lesser uh evil here is just clan chemists poisoning whole covens of workers because they fear they might turn on their masters it's, these poor workers just going in you know they're, they're working hard down at the local drug making factory yeah. uh you know just good honest drug manufacturers yeah. doing their part for society and they go in and the local clan chemist is like hey everyone you're working hard we've got some definitely not poisoned water for you and because <laughs> it's you know it's because it's like 45 degrees uh that's in celsius i don't know the conversion into freedom units uh <laughs> you know they all guzzle down on that water and like Jokes on you! It's actually that weird poison from before that causes you to melt and explode, and all because they're just like, yeah. Someone on the work crew looked at me for about half a second too long. They were obviously plotting my death. The poor bastard that was like trying to put his contact lens back into place. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just staring off into oblivion. It's like, yeah. and they just <laughs> happened to be staring at one of the chemists who's just. Just got the jitters from it. Just like, yeah, no, nah, not, not they know the something. Chemist. Near <laughs> the chemist. <laughs> <laughs> the key thing from this, Sam, is for fear they might turn on their masters. And that is the theme for Cinderac Burning, isn't it? It really is. Fear of turning on your masters. And that's exactly what's happened across the entire planet. It's a, and this is just a microcosm of it here with the clan chemists where they've just gone... Well, we've got uprisings, we've got, you know, open rebellion. All it takes is for a handful of our workers to be inspired by this, and then we're dethroned. We are no All longer it takes is for a handful of our workers to do the exact thing we have just done. And, <laughs> uh, but no, you actually, something you said before uh, was fantastic for this one here. When it comes to the Escher, if anyone is Escher's biggest enemy, it is the Escher. Yeah. No one, no one damages the Escher like the Escher. Yeah. And yeah. I can't imagine that killing off your own workers on mass is a good idea. No, it's not. But the, they do it because they, again, they, they try to protect their power. You know, they more than any other gang, their presence and power and reputation, I think, are, are more prevalent and more potent for them than the numbers of people they can control or, yeah. you know, the, the the bodies they can bring to a battlefield because they know the right can in the right um, water system and they're going to win anyway. So, but, yeah, again, makes me sad that it's happening from the inside. Kind of weird, you know. I know how I'll win this war. I'll kill my method of creating my own wealth. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's silly ladies. Silly gals. Silly gals. Anyway, in Hive Temenos, outlaw corridor gangs tear down icons of the Imperial Creed. This doesn't make me sad. This makes me scared for the poor corridor. Oh. <laughs> no, no, I'm going to wait till you finish this read and yeah. then I'm going to tell you how you are wrong. Okay, cool. I'll, I'll 
I'll go back a little bit. Cordor gangs tear down the icons of the Imperial Creed, claiming the false emperor has forsaken their world. Good Lord, lads, what are you doing? While some law-abiding clanners hunt them down for their blasphemy, many more join their ranks, stoking the fires of redemptionist, most radical elements into action against their own masters. Mm. Silly. Very silly, boys. Silly. As soon as you start talking about that quote-unquote false emperor, yeah. you're bringing those uh, very friendly folks from the Inquisition down on mm-hmm. you. Now, claiming the false emperor has forsaken their world, that's a good thing. The false emperor shouldn't be there. The god emperor, the one you're supposed to be praying should definitely still be in there. But this is great because it's also like the corridor are finally involved. Awesome. <laughs> uh, and you've just gone and gotten yourself involved in just the worst way. Absolutely. Um, also, especially in Hive Temenos, where it's just like this is the religious hive. I'm pretty sure Hive Temenos is where the Adeptus Sororitas. Yes, it is. Believe, like. Yep. That's not a group of gals you want to be annoying. But it's it's also, it's very nuanced what you're saying. Like, you have to particularly pick up on the fact that it's their turning against the false emperor. Not the god emperor, the false emperor. So somebody really has to be listening to you to go, oh, you're against the emperor. No, 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 the false emperor, not the god emperor. Mm, those lines are a little bit too blurry. Let's just sort them out with a bolt round. Yeah. I'm going to shoot you in the face now, uh, just to be sure. But I also love how, once again, some law-abiding clanners hunt them down for their blasphemy. Many more are just like, I like the cut of your jib. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come in with you. And then that stokes the fires of the redemptionist's most radical elements into action against their own masters. Yeah. So you now have factions of the Red Redemption yeah. going against House Cordor mm-hmm. by saying that House Cordor... Well, is, please tell me if you read this differently. I'm almost saying that they're, these Redemptionists are saying that House Cordor and the rest of the Redemption, except for them, worship chaos or worship a false emperor as opposed to their real emperor. Yes, I, I agree with 99% of what you're saying, but I'm saying, well, I think the, the point of difference is, is that they're, they're saying the emperor has failed. It, not necessarily that they're worshipping something else, but the emperor has failed, and you can't do that. Yeah. The emperor doesn't fail. Yes, the emperor cannot fail. He is infallible. Yes. And uh, you've just earned yourself a rather delicious bolt to the face. Exactly. So what I like from this, though, is the law-abiding clanners hunting them down for their blasphemy. You can have some really religious-themed gangers or all gangs, per se, that are just, you know, all the elements, the core elements that would define a corridor gang, but in the in the guise of, say, Vansar or Goliath. Gang idea? <laughs> Not yet, because <laughs> have you read Vaults of Temenos yet? 
I have not. No, not yet. We're going to put a pin in everything you've just said. That's cool. So just an offshoot, and I know this has been going for hours, but I, I like to talk. Um, my favourite part of Warhammer 40,000 lore, Necromunda and all that, is the, the absolute batshit bonkers religious creed that some space marines abide by, some Imperial Guard regiments, but across the whole Imperium. My favourite armies are the, the armies that build themselves around the guise of we fight for the Imperial Creed as much as we fight for the Emperor. Um, and I'm, I'm not, but I'm not down for like a Sisters of Battle army where it's that, you know, it's their sole focus. I like it when it's a, as an additional part. So you might have an Imperial Guard regiment that is just swarming with uh, Ministorum priests. I, I love that. I think it's cool. Yes. So the idea of a gang that is just covered in imperial iconography and um, superstitions and and other things that go against the everyday day-to-day, and especially somebody like Vansar, where technology is their god. Being Just having icons and books and banners and standards that they believe protect them because it's the, the blessings of the emperor alongside their you know, their shields and their armour. I love that. Uh, I'm going to stop you. I'm going to... We're going to continue on with our reads, but I'm going to give you two words that once we've finished this record tonight, uh, just start reading Vaults of Temnos because the two words I'm going to tell you are crusading gangs. Brilliant. For those listeners out there, if you ever remember them, probably early 2000s, maybe, yeah, I think early 2000s, Space Marine Crusade Armies are the absolute best. If you've got that in Necromunda, <laughs> Do you remember the Frateris Militia? Absolutely. Like, oh, my God, Emperor. <laughs> okay, so... I can talk you... about these guys for a while, but yeah. I want you to—I want you to yeah. say what you're going to say about them. Yeah, I'm—I'm I'm not going to say anything about them because we are not talking about Vaults of Temenos. We are talking about Cinderac burning, and yeah, I think we should do a bunch of Crusader gangs. Ah, uh, but after we read Vaults of Temenos, <laughs> yeah, uh, because I was digging through my bits box the other day and I found a bunch of the Frateris militia. Did you really? Yeah. They, yeah. They were literally just imperial citizens that had picked up pistols and blades and whatever, and they just yeah, got like, together. Yeah, they just got together to to move alongside these Sisters of Battle Army. This is this cult do- devotion and cult mm. drive that's happening. And if this is going to happen in Temenos, mate, all I can say is we are going to get constantly paused by gang ideas. Buy yeah. from me. Yeah. Oh, God. I'm, no. Stop. Stop. Okay. <laughs> no, I can't do this. I can't do this. My my jackals and my Escher are right there. I literally yeah. have... Oh, man. What's up, you, Scott? Just... Just don't. <laughs> I, I could make a squat redemptionist. It would be... I have squat redemptionist. He's right here. 
goddamnationist. It's actually not a good good place you're in. I think to create a miniature like that. I, yeah. I think just for people, just <laughs> even though it looks like not great, please put that up on the Instagram so people can see Scott Dempsey's. Yeah. I'll put that up with, when I release the episode. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, next one. Back to the episode. Yeah. The war between the two clan houses comes to a bloody conclusion in the wastes of Necromunda. Others have now chosen sides and stand with or against each other as determined by the greatest gains they think they can secure. The balances of power on Necromunda are shifting, and the wise and powerful know all too well this is but the beginning of the strife to come. So, this seems like a bit of an empty read, but it really is talking about what's coming up for the Battle of Cinderac City. And we're not going to touch on that just yet. We're going to give a little bit of a further conversation later on with that. But... I do like the fact that it specifically mentioned the balances of power on Necromunda are shifting. And it's the wise and powerful that can look into the future and sort of go, oh no, this isn't going to end up well for everyone. Mm. Almost mm. like they're the ones who caused all of this. <laughs> the ones oh no, the, the consequences to my actions. Yeah. They destroy and kick over everything and they're like, this is going to cause problems. Yeah, this is going to cost us a lot. Yeah, and but I think also it's a there's a bloody conclusion in the wastes of Necromunda. So we're sort of we're sort of saying that there is an element of I guess cessation of of hostilities for Orlok and Esher, but only in some parts of the planet. You know, it's sort of okay. With these elements, we're going to stop fighting in, and and it shows in in the the next read as well because rail bridges and tubeways are detonated by Orlok and Escher gangs as Goliath assault convoys make their attack against High Primus. Though the efforts save the Hive from the House of Chains, the lasting damage to the Hive infrastructure will take years, if not decades, to repair. So this is this is showing that the. The, the focus of the of the the conflict between the gangs is now becoming more driven to certain target points and strategic points. So the House of Chains going after High Primus. They're seeing a weakness within there and they're seeing the opportunity obviously to go after the the, the head of the snake within Esher. But Esher being who they are, have that tasty alliance with Orlock, which is interesting because they're allying themselves with the Delacroix Orlock. They're starting to rack up the debts, in my opinion. Well, yes and no. So we've already mentioned in our Escher episode that the traditionally the Escher and Orlok are very closely aligned, uh, not only due to territory, the Orlok, as we mentioned, being very central in their location, but the Escher do respect the Orlocks for the fact that so many people in power within the house are women. And people are often awarded leadership due to their skill and ability, not their gender. Yeah. But when it comes to the Battle of Cinderac City, the two main factions inside defending it were the Escher and the Orlok. Oh, so right. yep. there's there's actually several very high profile members of House Orlok, or more specifically House Medina inside Cinderac City during the siege. And 
uh, some of the efforts that they put through definitely do a lot to solidify or further solidify the alliances between Escher and Orlok. But what right. you say about Delac is 100% on the money. Oh. Like, you, you are writing checks that I'm not sure you're going to want to get cashed. Exactly, yeah. And that's, a, that's why I look at it even with the Orlok, is that they are still just a rival gang. I know there's an alliance between them, and there is, and I know there's this sort of working partnership with them. But when you begin to expose your gang to rely on others, I think that that sense of weakness becomes something that other gangs, no matter how well allied, allied they are to you, will begin to look at and say, how can we take advantage of that situation? But mm. furthermore to what we can pick out from that particular part of the read, it, they're talking about the, the lasting damage to the hive infrastructure will take years, if not decades, to repair. <laughs> for here, for this part, we... It really, and we've mentioned it multiple times, really exemplifies the absolute, the absolute weakness and inability of the Imperial House to govern its own hive. Correct. So because the enforcers are basically put on one order at a time, you know, don't think, just do this, they're not able to, they don't have that flexibility to react to do things differently. And then they're also at a weakened state as well because if they're being controlled by or have loyalty to a certain noble house, once again, they're, again, more and more ineffective, which is, the as I said, mentioned earlier, it's the theme. We're starting to see an incredibly ineffective noble house, sorry, ineffective imperial house, coupled with gangs basically running the show. Well, if we want to talk about ineffective and, let's be honest, silly decision-making moves, Destroying your hive infrastructure, yeah. probably one of them. Yes, the braille bridges and tubeways being destroyed by the Orlocks and Eshes, they're, they're not exactly well-thought-out plans, but I think it's more acts of desperation. Now, when that's occurring, I can't imagine the Orlocks are like, hey, if we destroy this rail bridge, it's going to be a little bit harder for us to get or this way in the future. Um, maybe we should set up a roadblock or something. No, it's going, hey, you know what's going to really screw up their ability to drive uh, those 400 maulers up this road? Let's blow up the road. <laughs> but, I mean, that must be the threat. If the threat is that vast, they're like, we need to destroy these, these, these key elements of hive infrastructure because those, and what do they call them? The... the rail bridges and tubeways. No, the Goliath assault convoys. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like I would love, love to see what a Goliath assault convoy looks like. I think it'll look cool. You ever see those? Um... Oh, what is it when you see you go to like a zoo and you see like a gorilla riding a motorcycle? <laughs> yeah, it's that, but with more body piercings. Um... And a top hat and a monocle. And, and a top hat and a monocle. And they're calling each other old chap. <laughs> That's brilliant. Uh, I make fun of the Goliath because they're a joke. No. No, it's no, love. Make, it's all I, love. It's love. It's love. We talk about them a lot because they come to us first. They're, you know, one of the first real great gangs that we got to see in Necromunda. And 
There's just so much respect and love for them. Next read. <laughs> <laughs> well, this one here actually harkens back to something you said just earlier. As the showdown between the House of Chains and House of Blades unfolds, the Dalak are making their own war against their enemies in Hive Privus. Dozens of gang informants and agents of the Goliath and Escher turn up dead as the House of Shadow cuts the eyes from its rivals while their attentions are focused elsewhere. Oh my god. Curse your immediate and inevitable betrayal. Uh, <laughs> like, yeah. We all should have seen it coming. The Dalak are just going, yeah, hey man, we're going to help you. You're like, yeah, do you want to do you want a little bit of mayo on that sandwich? No problem. <laughs> Next thing you know, they're stealing your secrets and killing your informants. Man, just why would just why would you ally with them at all? I know, I know. They're the, the naughtiest of the naughties. Um, yeah, but they they are fighting the war that they particularly want to fight. They're not going after the yeah. gangs. They're not going after people in power. They don't want your territory. No, they just want to kill off all your informants. Anybody who can talk about what they're doing, no, 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 no. Yep. You will not. You will no longer talk about it. You will. The Delacroix will be the the preeminent um, informants within the city. So whatever information they feed, you have to rely on, and they'll tell you whatever they need to tell you. So you could almost supplant those informants with Delacroix informants. You know what I mean? So you have like these double agents, which I think would be cool. Yeah. It's I just think it's interesting that their their first real big move has been to just to clear groups out of like I said, their eyes. They're the ones watching the watches. Just let's just get rid of them mm. real mm. quick. I I'd love to know what their what they're up to. Yeah. Oh, dear. Naughty, naughty, no good stuff. Yeah. Anyway, great convoys ply the north and south highway between the Minerva and Palatine clusters. Countless running battles erupt for control of the roadway. Goliath, Maulers, and Escher cutters striking like wolves against guilders, clanners, and outland rigs alike, until every other kilometre is choked with burning wrecks and the corpses of fallen gangers. This is total chaos. Is <laughs> it's like a bloody highway now. Yeah, but it's it's great that it's just going. It's Goliath attacking Escher and Gilders and Clanners and Outland Rigs, and the Escher are attacking Goliath and Gilders and Clanners and Outland Rigs. Oh. And it's to the point of you can just imagine it. You're a a lookout or a gunner on one of these one of these convoys, and all you can see for kilometers and kilometers and kilometers is just smoke coming from these burning vehicles and you're just sitting there going are we going to be next or are we going to be the lucky ones that get through yeah true it it just shows the persistent nature of necromunda though that the the planet is still functioning still moving forward with its industry and its tithing and so forth. So all of this still happens, even though there's this huge war going on between two massive houses, um, a, a worldwide rebellion, chaos cults going absolutely off chop, and the the industry still functions. The 
It's trying to. It's trying to, yeah. But you, that, and this is where both the Escher and Goliath take advantage of their, I guess, dominant position within these areas. Is that yeah. they go, okay. Firstly, we were fighting each other, but now we can take the opportunity to raid against uh, rigs and guilders and whatever to to generate more income, some more loot for themselves. So I think it's probably not a a directive from the the up high but it was most certainly being taken advantage of. i got to disagree. I don't even think this is about loot. I think this is just about saying you don't travel here. Right. Yeah, I didn't think of it like that. Like, it's interesting. Right, it will be loot eventually. It mm. will be commerce eventually. But mm. right now, it sounds like they are, they're going in hard. They're going in fast. They're, you, you've seen maulers and cutters. Like... They're not, they're not armed with equipment that says, hey, strap some loot to me afterwards. No, That's they true. go in, you destroy, and you keep moving. Yeah. Like, oh. yeah, I think this is, this road belongs to us. Mm. You don't travel it until we say you can travel it. Yeah, true, true. Now, we have finally gotten to it. The... The big one. The reason for this book, well, the reason for the title of this book anyway, we are talking about the actual battle for Cinderac City. Hundreds of gangs brawl in the heart of Cinderac City, turning the Outland City into a war zone. Fires from the fighting engulf the settlement and can be seen staining the sky for hundreds of kilometres in all directions, drawing in even more gangs outlanders and nomads to the growing battle but this read here in my opinion truly doesn't touch on just how big this fight is i mean we've talked about it a lot so far that this book is taking necromunda from what we're used to being gang fights being you know up to about 20 murder hobos fighting over scraps of food and old machinery and, you know, the barest of resources. This is the first... We had a couple of smaller instances of it earlier where those cultist armies were attacking settlements and that. But they were cultists. They were rabble. They were mutants with stolen and reclaimed weapons and, you know rusty sporks to fight each other with. <laughs> yeah. The assault on Cinderac City is is ridiculous. It is it is it is a it's no longer a gang fight. This is a war between us Goliath and anyone who is willing to face them. Yes. And anybody who wants to defend Cinderac City basically. So and this is like the next level of engagement so when i talked earlier about hitting key tactical targets so they were hitting some areas of high primus but this is the whole city now they have stepped out of i guess the guise of a gang war and turned it as you say into a mobilization of a full goliath army well this is written in beautiful black and white here in the book and 
So the assault on Cinderaxetti is led by a fella by the name of Gorshiv Hammerfist. He is the man in charge of Shiv's crushes alongside someone by the name of Doc Shiv. And we'll talk a lot about the two of them later on. But this reading here, this just paragraph, in my opinion, truly outlines how terrifying this... And I'm just going to go ahead and say, I'm not going to say it to gang. It is an army of Goliath. This is a group of creatures who are the closest to Astartes an average human could ever truly expect to become without being an actual Astartes. I mean, Goliaths, they're almost a recognised abhuman race. They are... True. Yeah, they are. They are effectively genetically altered super warriors where they've been put onto enough chems and enough growth hormone that they're no longer really baseline humans. So keep that idea in mind as I read this. Gorshiv Hammerfist looked out across the blasted ash plains and smiled. Hundreds of growling Goliath maulers, dozens of rigs, runners and crawlers of all shapes and sizes, and thousands of burly fighters greeted his gaze. Gathering this many gangs into one place had taken some doing and more than a few cracked skulls. He saw iron lords, bone crackers, forge kings, iron tree reavers, knuckle boys and dog soldiers to name but a few and of course his own shiv's crushes doc shiv was even now tinkering with his chemrig her servo harness hissing as she moved now it's interesting you see remember the iron tree reavers they were uh they were defending the city alongside other gangs earlier yeah there was dust falls was it dust falls uh, was it Dust Falls? I don't know. I... No, some city. <laughs> some city. Some city. Um, I'm sh- I don't know. Uh, they were def- yeah. <laughs> they, all I know is earlier, they were fighting alongside Escher and Orlok and Cordor and Vansar, fighting against what was below them. Yeah. yeah. That fight's done now, and they're going mm-hmm. back to what they're good at, which is killing other clanners. Killing other gangers. Yeah, but it's at a scale that I'm going to say they're not experts at. Do you know? They're not. They're, they're, the gangs aren't renowned for fighting at this this level. These numbers. So in these numbers, Goliath gangs yeah. don't fight; they destroy. Yeah, right. Yeah. You point them in a direction. It's like that. What I said earlier. Remember, you get the uh, you get those early decanted. Goliath Vatborn, you get a, a man yeah. with a poking stick and a whip, mm. point them in that direction, and they'll just kill anything they come across. These Goliaths yeah. don't even need the bloke with the stick and the whip. Right. Yeah, they just set themselves out just to destroy. And we, um, it's even mentioned in in particular what they do in Cinderac City with regard to that as well. Whenever they're attacked, and I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to remember the exact phrase, but whenever they're attacked, they just turn their attention on whatever attacked them. It's like 
you're the number one focus now, and they just level whatever come what they're whatever they're coming up against, which is just craziness. And I think this oh, there's this great little bit there. Was it is an environment that favoured the Goliaths, their strength and resilience allowing them to shrug off otherwise fatal wounds as they tore their opponents apart, sometimes with their bare hands. Now, I'm not giving the context for that, but the idea of what the Goliath are, exactly what we're talking about, shrugging off those wounds and just, I don't need to bring a weapon. I am I am the weapon. I am, I am the oh danger. Oh, my God. I am the weapon. I am the danger. Uh, that's the title of our Goliath episode. Um, <laughs> but that's, that's it. You have these living weapons. They, they are genetically Ooh. engineered monstrosities designed to survive the harshest environments Necromunda can throw at them. And Ooh. there is thousands of them. Standing yeah, it's there, crazy, isn't it? looking up at your city's walls, which are already weakened by... Months of fighting against nomads and raiders and gangs and whatever else there is. And they're now standing there going, yeah, you're next. You're next. <laughs> um, but I would guess for whatever Escher and whatever gangs are arrayed up against them, and I know I know within Cinderac City there's, they particularly mention that there's Lone Corridor gangs or Delacroix or Bansar gangs. Yeah that try to hold their own but end up just fleeing um, off into the waste. But it's obviously the Escher and... Um, Escher and the Orlok. What about Escher and the Orlok? Yeah, they're the primary right. defenders here, uh, as well as, let's be honest, whoever whoever is there. <laughs> uh, it gets It's getting to a point where a lot of the... a lot of the people left inside Cinderac City are basically just told, listen, you can either fight with us or inevitably they're gonna they're gonna get in here and mm. you're next. Like all of these attacks we've talked about previously, the blowing up of the roads and the railways and all that sort of stuff. This has been everyone's attempt at cutting the numbers of the Goliaths getting to, to these strongholds, to these points, yeah. to Cinderac City. Uh, so this makes sense as to why Adina wanted to cull the numbers of the Vatborn, but there's that great bit at the end of that where they said this is what happens when you corner a rat. Nobody puts rat in the corner. Uh, exactly. So the Goliaths have gone absolutely cocoa bananas. Mm and they're smashing everybody. But I know Adina is not at Cinderac City. So it's Athera, am I right? Insane? Yeah, buddy. It is Athera, the champion of House Escher, who is in charge of the defense of Cinderac City. And Gorshiv knows this. Gorshiv knows she's there and specifically states that he wants her uh, he's he's identified her as the big threat within the city, and he specifically says, "We see her; she's mine." And this fella by the name of uh, Drogo Coldforged, who's one of the alphas in charge of 
Gorshiv's army is just like, sure. And you can just, just imagine him backing away like, oh, God. You know, yeah. heaven forbid someone makes a move on of a, on a theory because if whether they win or lose, at the end of the day, she's just getting smashed to bits. But it's interesting that with um, Drogo called Cold Forge, because I, from what I read, he was he was located within Cinderac City, and he quits the city to join up with with Gorshiv as well. Everyone, everyone yeah. who is non aligned to this either stay mm. or left but all the goliaths just went we, we gotta, we're joining gorship we're, we're gonna <laughs> go like, sorry yeah they leave the city to join up with the the army yeah the use of a better term so you've got a theory there obviously you've got uh her little blue friend sticks but there's a an awesome part where they talk about some other, I guess, notable members who were in the city. Yes. And it's the uh, <laughs> the all up drinking hole, the lucky six, and there you have the four. What is it? No fewer than four of Slate Medina's daughters defending the bar. Yeah. So you have Margot, Vesper, Vivian, and Mindy. There's some great names, by the way. You're absolutely right. Slate Medina has just. Some of the best daughters' names, like <laughs> yeah, you've got uh, Margot, Vivian, uh, Mindy, and then you've got Sabrina. Oh, uh, that's a lovely she, name. She became an enforcer. All oh, right, okay. Then Not Sabrina. Alice Shiver, that psycho we mentioned earlier. She's yeah, demon yeah. possessed, but she's also one of Slate's daughters. Uh, then you've got uh, Lillian Medina. Uh, she's the one that got kidnapped and joined House Delark. And oh, and then now, what became? Now there's she a bald assassin clad in a long yeah. flowing coat with her eyes replaced by augmetics. Uh, so that's just some of the daughters we know of and then obviously we've got uh the others that were mentioned just then but yeah you've you've got a couple of the medina daughters there and i i almost feel sorry for goliath because i don't know if they know these daughters are there and if <laughs> i knew the medina girls were in town I'm not going to be there, especially Vespa, because Vespa is just so ridiculous. Vespa Minx Medina is one of the special characters that came out with this book. You must have seen it. She's the yeah. gal on yeah, the back yeah. of the quad with the belt-fed rocket launcher. Um, yeah. She's someone I want to annoy. You know? <laughs> with her belt fed rocket yeah. launcher and she, she, yeah. you got to you got to remember she's she is the equal youngest of slate's 12 daughters but she's also described as a literal loose cannon um but yeah, <laughs> she also she also, yeah we're, we're going to get to that part <laughs> so when we go back to it a large number of the orlock and 
Escher inside the city immediately met Athira as she arrived with her gang. It was literal hours before Gorshiv and the rest of the sort of the army had arrived. And you're absolutely right. By this point, Coldforged has left the city with all his fighters. They've basically said, we are throwing our lot in with Gorshiv and that's it. We're we're siding with our house. Though it specifically mentions uh, Keeper Morgeth and his corridor plaguing the streets, preaching about the end of days. So you've also got this this horde of corridor just wandering around screaming like the end is nigh. <laughs> it's actually happening this time. Yeah. Like most of the times we just, you know, we say it and just to get people G'd up, but it's like legit. This is for realsy this time. Yeah, it's this is this is the really reals. The end of days, guys. It's like oh. <laughs> like we're scared too. Yeah, sure, <laughs> sure it is, bud. Sure it is. No, we. It definitely is. You just imagine the Escher and Orlocks. Someone goes out to the Goliath and is like, "Can you guys take the corridor seriously? Yeah, <laughs> can they join your army? We don't it's... want them anymore." And the Goliath are like. We actually have these quarter. We were going to gift them to you. <laughs> They're saying end of days too. Yeah. <laughs> They're claiming something about a false emperor. Oh, what if we get them together? They'll kill each other. Let's <laughs> <laughs> get their own little arena in Cinderac City. They're just told, just go at it, and please do not bother anybody. Everyone just gets hammered watching this. <laughs> like, weren't we? Weren't we invading your city? <laughs> nah, man. We were watching the quarter fight. Nice. Yeah. But, oh yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. But obviously. <laughs> Everyone is doing their part in regards to the defense of Cinderac City. Uh, the Merchants Guild, for example, uh, they just retreated back to their compounds with their bodyguards and told everyone to leave them alone. So right. everyone's really pulling their weight. <laughs> but, I mean, why would you? The Goliath is still going to need a Merchant Guild. So nah, they're just like. Do they? Well, if you're a Gilder, you would think we're a necessity. They, the gangs will keep us around. No matter who's in charge of the hive, they need us. And a Goliath says, that target has a fancy coat. <laughs> I'm going to smash him with my hammer. I, I need me a fancy coat. <laughs> I, need yes. me, I need me a fancy coat for wiping. <laughs> so when it all is said and done, I think uh, we know what really happens here. When the hammer fell, it fell with crushing brutality. That's the opening line to the actual attack. And hundreds of Goliaths smash into the city, punching through weakened sections of the walls with their maulers and ashrigs. The vehicles ploughing great furrows through the streets as they ran through people and buildings with equal disregard. The Goliath are not here to capture... They are here to destroy and then hold on to the the mindset of, hey, that's the direction you need to fight at, is mm. is how the Goliath are running this battle. It's almost like a lightning war sort of process or a mobile war. Yep. And you see that because Athera and her fighters wage a war through the streets often on the back of their own vehicles, it says. So they're, they're not trying to stick in any sort of prolonged fight with the Goliath. They're saying we, we need to get a, like have distance between them 
and just keep the fire off, which is interesting. It's a very interesting methodology of, of fighting within a hive of Necromunda. Out in the ash waste, you sort of understand that. Lots of mobility, and lots of movement. But within a hive, you're going, okay, these are more sort of protracted. Uh, sorry, not not hive, I mean city. But it, it it's normally within the cities or hives, whatever you want to call them, um, it, they are protracted fights, you know, pitch battles um, or, or gang, gang fights. So tearing through the streets with vehicles and having these running battles is, is terrifying. You can just imagine the populace. They'd just be trying to get out of the way. And I, <laughs> I, do, I, I do actually feel sorry for the populace of Cinderac City, having been battered by months of ash waste nomad raids, yeah. and then they cop this. <laughs> like, you're just like, well, I don't know which one you'd pick. You'd be like, oh, bring back the nomads, or you, know, you just go, oh, yeah, the lights are here. But it's just, it's so brutal on that population. And the, again, a hallmark of Necromunda, brutal on the poor on the population. What the Escher and the Allies are doing really shows how smart the Escher, and I'm going to say Athera, really are. They are playing to their strengths. You are not going to win as a regular, unaugmented human a stand-up fight against a normal Goliath, let alone an Alpha or a Stimmer or someone better than average. They are utilizing hit and run tactics they're on the back of vehicles they are you know you can just imagine orlock wreckers jumping from building to building with with grenades and firebombs and you know they are using their strengths against the weaknesses of the goliath they are slow they are super deadly up close but you know what if you can stay just away from them hit 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 run hit 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 run and yeah Athera is actually using her own plan here. She's drawing all of the Goliaths towards the city centre and actually pulling them all closer and closer to the Great Market Square in the centre of the city. And as it describes, the yawning portal that lay beneath its its grated foundations, leading down into the ruins of Hive Meridian. Because as a lot of people may remember... Cinderac City is built upon the ruins of a destroyed hive inside the Cinderac Crater. So, if you're drawing an army towards a grated foundation, maybe you're going to blow the grate and a bunch of uh, meatnecks going to fall in a hole. Yeah, true. It's a good plan. Mm. Are they going to pull it off, Manvin? No. No. Absolutely not. not. <laughs> no. Why would that? <laughs> and we see some absolutely amazing events here. Some of these are obviously in this book. For example, yeah. <laughs> uh, Gang Queen Yorshi Blood Lotus, amazing name, took yeah. on a dozen Goliaths armed only with a pair of stiletto knives for 17 savage minutes. She danced between the brutes, landing fatal blows, until Gorship himself heaved her off the ground and hurled her into the burning ruin of a nearby building. That was cool for 17 minutes. For 17 minutes, she was the the number one Escher fighter in all of Cinderac City. She really burned out at the end there, though. Hey! (laughs) Speaking of burning, uh, there was at least one Cordor who actually did something. 
the Redemptor Priest Ergorn Pyre, great name, incinerated the leader of the Iron Forged, transforming the Goliath leader into a pillar of screaming fire. When the rest of the gang charged Pyre, the Mad Priest set himself alight, running into their mist, babbling prayers until his flamer tank cooked off, turning the whole street into an inferno. Cordor are just ridiculous. <laughs> well, somebody's got to do but it. I don't think you can tell. You you well, can tell he was the whole time just like they'll never suspect it. Yeah, <laughs> I've got them now. I've got, <laughs> I've got them, them now, right where I want them. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's kicking off all over the city, and this this brings you back to going back to a the little light. bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just just a touch. Just I mean, we've we've obviously highlighted, but uh, it brings me back to the Lucky Six, where uh, Medina's what's his first name again? Um, Slate. Slate. I always think that's a weird name, by the way. I'm, I don't. I know it. a guy in real life, life named Slate. Really? Yeah. He must be like a real rock for people. Anyway, um, you are hurting the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah the the Goliaths continue attack attacking Lucky Six, the bar, and uh, I love it here that uh they rethink their plans as they saw their leader propelled out into the street by a missile impact before it exploded, spraying them all with shrapnel. So they're just like, ah, you know what? We'll let the Orlocks have this. But you've missed out on some of the best parts there. It was three separate gangs of Goliaths, and it was four Medina girls. That's, yeah, right. that's it. Three gangs of Goliath versus four of the Medina girls. And it's, you know, Mindy stands on the bar with a custom stub gun in each hand, just snapping off rounds. Vivian is laying out bursts of fire from her double-barreled iron head auto gun, which that's amazing. Someone else has one of the goddamn squat guns. Vespa is throwing grenades at people, and Margot is leaping from table to table on bionic legs. And then that Goliath leader that ran in with a bolter in each hand. Yeah. Not bolt pistol, bolter, and he's just ripping through this bar. Vespa literally pops up, winks at him, and then fires her missile launcher at him. Honestly, even being around these Medina girls seems to be an extreme sport. <laughs> an extreme sport, I like that. They sound as cool as the Escher right now, which is cool. It's good for them. I think there are Escher that lay there in their little beds at night wishing they could be Medina girls. No, uh, it's a very boring dream to have, to think that you want to become an Orlock. I love our Orlock fans. You're hurting the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that, these are just the small, I guess, subsidiary fights that are going on within... Uh, Cinderac City. The, the main uh, fight, is, as what we mentioned, is what's gathering around the Great Market Square. So 
the Escher and Orlock gangs have managed to to reach there, and this is where they're having a major engagement with the the Goliaths. And at, it's at this point where I think Athera is hoping to break open the seals for for the Hive ruins below. And so where we mentioned before that she's potentially going to get them to fall through, I think it's more just an escape route. Actually, she's just like we we need a boot now. We're not going to yeah. get out of this. It, I, it, oh. I had actually missed that part there. I was like, that they must be getting them towards the center, and they open up the grates, and the Goliaths all fall in, fall in, and you go, aha, you dummies. Nope, nope. They're just trying to lure them all into the city, hopefully into some killing fields, and then, yeah, escape, mm. escape through the bottom there. Mm. But I don't think it's working out for them. No, it doesn't. Much. Does not go to plan at all, and. Like it, it is so going so poorly at this stage that uh, old Sticks, the her character friend, has decided. What happens there, Nathan? Oh, he's just he's just flying off to get a better vantage point. I think. You know the little. He abandons her in her moment of need. No. Abandons her. He's saying to her, you don't need to worry about me. I'm going to go speak to either Gork or Mork and <laughs> see what I can do for you. Now, she no longer has to worry about him, so she can recklessly throw herself at the Goliaths, as she does. So Athera readied her blade, let loose a scream, and charged out of cover to meet her fate fighting. How great does that sound? And do you know who managed to provide her that inspiration? Sticks. So I'm going to forgive your little brain fart moment there. Okay. Well, we've all heard Spamuel ranting about caryatids, and we're not going to re-experience that now. We all know that when a caryatid leaves you, it's a sign of very bad luck. And... Young Athera is about to have some very bad luck. When Gorshev actually sees Athera break cover and charge at the encircling Goliaths, he literally punches his way to the front of this circle, like the world's just scariest mosh pit, just so he can get right up there and actually fight her one-on-one. -on -one. Because he remember, remember back when they first started the fight, he turned to everyone and said, she's mine. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's almost like a personal vendetta, but I guess it's, it's more about the glory rather than personal vendetta. 100%. And what we probably haven't touched on it yet. Gorshiv isn't just, you know, a forge tyrant. Gorshiv isn't just a notable Goliath of any description. He's a freaking stimmer and... He's he's the biggest stimmer. He's the he's he's the bee's knees of stimmers. I, from the way it, I interpret it, I believe he's possibly the first stimmer. Oh really? And, yeah, right. Yeah, like we'll talk about it when we touch on him later on. The way it's written, oh. I read it as yeah, Doc Shiv literally created him as the first stimmer. Right. All other stimmers are modelled on him. So just imagine how big this guy is. Mm, mm. And his stimmer rig as he's getting in there just to hype himself up, that that 
rig turns on and just pumps chems and stems and I'm guessing friends on and monster energy drink and <laughs> uh, like eucalyptus oil just straight into his veins. <laughs> so undiluted the, coffee. Yeah, yeah. Just undiluted coffee. But <laughs> he hefts up these two power hammers of his and just charges. Like picture a silverback like swinging sledgehammers and you've, <laughs> you're getting it. Also fill it with cocaine. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a freaking <laughs> terrifying image, a silverback with two sledgehammers and just an incredibly obtuse attitude. Yeah. Well, Athera manages to let off a blast from her plasma pistol. Gorshiv straight up ignores it. It just gorches him on the arm and he's swinging. She's got, a, she's got that beautiful big chain of axe of hers. And she manages to hold off his attacks little bit by little bit. But unfortunately, when she raises up her plasma pistol for a second shot, that thing gets smashed straight out of her hand. And she manages to get him a little bit, but one of those just enormous power hammers catches her straight in the chest with enough force to actually crack her carapace armor. The poor woman is thrown back several meters, and she's looking up in the sky. She knows she's done. And then what does she see, Samuel? She sees a bright light and the god empress reaching down to her, saying, close your eyes, my daughter. Close your eyes. It's all over now. And that's the end of Cinderac burning. <laughs> Nothing else occurred. Uh, He's no. a liar, everybody. <laughs> the champion's little champion returns. Who is it, Dix, Sam? Dix the Carrioted came soaring out of the gloom, and in its wake, a tall figure in gleaming white armor, armed with a long-bladed polearm. On the figure's cloak was stitched a seven-pointed star in gold. Their eyes glowed with power. Even looking at the figure, Athera felt her pain ebb away and despair turned to hope. She could not say how, but she knew the figure was an ally. What is that? Who is that? It is not told to us, but... This, and I'm just going to use this word here, this angelic creature has come in following sticks and immediately heads up into combat with Gorshiv, who is basically just slapped around like an untutored child. (laughs) Gorshiv's attacks were just deflected knocked back, fed through, and the polearm is just smashed into the stimmer, sending him staggering backward. That's some great strength there, isn't it? Like, to be able to stagger him. Yeah, exactly. But it also says how graceful this person is. Mm, mm. Like... But then there's the next bit. 
that I love. Oh. I like. I, I, I know we're going to talk about them a little bit more, but it's this next bit that I love. It's this is not a single entity because more figures emerge wearing gleaming helmets and wielding archeo pistols and rifles in their hands. They came from the depths of the old hive city to push the Goliaths back. So you've got this one appearing from the sky and then the rest emerging from the base. Wait a minute. So you think the first figure has what, like come from the sky with sticks? Ah, the, the way I read that, yeah, absolutely. Like a, they either jumped from a very tall building or they are somehow flying, sometime, somehow anti-grav. I don't care what explanation we get from this. This person has done the superhero landing. Yes. Has jumped off a building because mm. they've just been like, I'm Batman watching this fight. Mm. Has just dive down because it's like now is the perfect time to strike and this is actually the introduction of the phoenix lord Janzer into the uh, <laughs> <laughs> succession um made her way no, from the uh hive of strangers did she yeah oh, sorry no, the strangers hive <laughs> i love that i love that idea that this this figure has just jumped down from this building and done the interception, just like pure fantasy, sci-fi nonsense move. Yeah. It's, that's awesome. But hmm. there's more of them coming from underneath the city. Mm. Like, and With Arceo pistols and Arceo yes, rifles. Yes. Ooh, scary like, weapons. Gleaming white helmets. And I'm guessing the same sort of cloaks or yeah, yeah. armor and that sort of thing. Who but are it, these people? Who are they? Yeah, exactly. But it just says straight away that Lady Credo's forces retook the market square. So they're yep. fighting for Lady Credo, but there's no like definitive link. There's nothing that says, oh, these are 100% of Lady Credo's. Um, Soldiers or gangers or whatever you what do you want to call them? It said you're absolutely right. It says it here. As Lady Credo's forces retook the market square, similar scenes were playing out across Cinderax City. And then it goes further on here. When Credo's soldiers formed into tightly organized units and led by disciplined commanders came upon the Goliaths. They pushed them to the edge of breaking. Attacked from all sides by an unknown and skilled foe, the Goliaths began to run. And it even mentions that Gorshiv was terribly wounded in his exchange with Kratos' general. So that's Kratos' general, that, 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 that superhero landing, polearm-wielding character. Yeah. Okay. This... This is adding another level to Lady Credo's because I'm I'm just going to go ahead and call this Lady Credo's insurrection. Where yeah. has this army come from? Yeah, an army of tightly organized units led by disciplined commanders with obviously far better than average equipment with archeo weapons Ooh. and led by this person who seems to be able to, and this is going to come out a little bit crude, but slap the absolute shit 
<laughs> of Gorshiv Hammerfist, who, yeah. from everything we've read so far, is a almost the personification of Goliath, fury, and terror. Yeah. So with stims. With yeah, <laughs> with stim. Uh, what did I say? The the cocaine gorilla with sledgehammers. Yeah, exactly. Um, this is this is insane, mm. and the Goliath fall back and run and effectively flee back towards their leadership. And mm. the only real command left in Cinderac City are Lady Credo and her Escher allies. Yeah. So they've, they've, they've managed to hold off the assault and regain control of the city. But the, I guess the, the critical critical thing to come out of this is Credo's army, um, which I sort of get the vibe that she probably didn't want to reveal it just yet. You know, it feels like she sort of played her hand a little bit earlier than probably what she'd anticipated. I'm because, yeah, because the, the attack on Cinderac City in her playbook wasn't supposed to happen. You know, it was... Um, only Jenga deciding, yep, um, this, is, this is where I'm going to take it. Well, an interesting thing that actually came from this victory in Cinderac City, Sinus goes into hiding and several of the chemist covens return to the fold. So that's some good news for you. <laughs> yes. You know, your, your girls are sort of starting to pull it back, you know? Yeah. Sisterhood and all that. <laughs> but unfortunately for Lady Credo and Adina, they also learn that Agriote, or as his friends call him, Angry Goat, Helmore, was dead. The most likely successor to the Imperial House is gone. And they mourned this because they knew he was young, dumb, and very easily intimidated into control so they're gonna have to make some new plans there mm, that's true and then i guess there's a fallout for the goliath as well um because they see that their attack has faltered and failed mm. they've lost angry goat um they've pretty much lost whatever semblance of control that they had over themselves and also their, their influence because they've they've lost their their war against the Escher from yeah. on this, and it's even written that before before the news of the disastrous assault reached the the fist, Varin's alphas were challenging Jangar's right to rule the house of chain the house of chains. So yeah, they're basically infighting now. They're in fighting straight away. Yeah, so I think I think the Goliaths are probably going to take a uh, a seat on the bench for the majority of this insurrection. Then I guess. Well, I think they'd be too busy trying to keep each other from killing each other. Yeah, yeah. and you know, you've also we've sort of ignored the fact that it's not just the Asher in Cinderac City with um, with Credo. There's obviously those Orlock gangs. And, you know, those five very lost corridor that are still there. You have to think that 
they will be having a lot of loyalty towards Lady Credo right now. Yeah, absolutely. They really would. They'd just be sort of seeing as not only as a saviour, but the next best option to the to the Imperial House. So I guess that wraps up the the assault on Cinderac City and sort of I guess the 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 falling out from it as well. Um, from their ladies, Lady Credo's rebels consolidate their power across Necromunda, from the forges of Hive Rothgall to the peaks of the Quinspire. The symbol of the seven-pointed star can be seen scrawled on walls and doors. Only Hive Primus and the Palanite cluster resist the influence of the rebels. Lord Helmore's enforcers brutally suppressing any hint of Credo's followers. That heptagon, it's showing up everywhere. But that, it, it's really cementing the rebellion now, where it was on the fringe and it was, mm. um, I guess, a hidden away thing. Now it's in the open. And it, again, harps back to what I was talking about with uh, the Imperials or the, the Imperium coming along and stomping out rebellions and whether or not they will have any sort of reaction or take any action to Lady Credo. Well, I'm intrigued by this because, you know, we've seen examples of insurrection and revolution that have taken over, uh, you know, countries in our own real life or planets within Warhammer 40,000. And as long as they can be seen as being legitimate, where it's a viable uprising against perhaps a corrupt planetary governor or hive leader, mm. as long as it is then in effect really ratified by the Adeptus Terra or the Inquisition or whatever. If Lady Credo takes control of Necromunda and pays the tithe and pays with flesh and weapons and curtsies when, you know, the Inquisition <laughs> come to knock on her door. I reckon she'll be allowed to do as she wants, you know. The... Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. It's, it's just a case of um, whether or not the Imperium and the supporters of the Imperial House would give up the power of that Imperial House so quickly, not because, not because of any sort of absolute loyalty to it, but because it's been around for so long. I don't think the other noble houses are exactly in a position to challenge Lady Credo right now. The nobles are either dead, dying, or making other nobles dead or dying. I'm not Every... talking about the noble houses. I'm talking about the imperial house and the support that it would have on a galaxy-wide. So... <clears throat> What support would they have? They they exist on Necromunda. Dynasties come and go. They've been around for thousands of years. Yeah, they may they may have some sort of trade partners or allies and that sort of thing here and there. But uh, would you really want to tie yourself to a possibly sinking ship? If <laughs> someone's saying, "Hey, Lord Helmore is getting overthrown by." some other noble family, you're sitting there going, hey, I don't have to pay him for that shipment of uh, last guns from last quarter. Yes, <laughs> screw him. 
Okay. The Nazi capitalism. Yeah, well, that's, that's exactly it. The real bad guy in Necromunda. And <laughs> as we're looking at it, you were the one who brought it up. Imperial, the Imperial House isn't decided by name. It's That's decided true. by wealth and support of the other houses. Hmm. Whoever is producing the tithe rules the planet. And if Lady Credo can worm her way into second or third or fourth born heirs for a couple of houses and then just bump off whoever's on top of them, hmm. all of a sudden the heads of houses are backing her. And I said, I think I called it a heptagon before. It's a heptagram. And you're going to start seeing that heptagram showing up on other hives, you know, in other doors. And... That'd just be confusing for the populace, though. You've got the Chaos Hallot cults painting eight-pointed stars everywhere. And then you've got these guys pointing seven-pointed stars everywhere. You'd be a real rebel and just point, like, just draw a triangle. Be like, <laughs> ah... Three-pointed star. Three-pointed star arrested by the enforcers. <laughs> <laughs> Sent to the Zaltra penal hive for drawing a star with an insufficient number of points. Yeah. <laughs> arrested well, for being a dummy dum dum dum. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <sighs> Lady Credo could consolidate her power very, very easily and in many different ways. But... If you want to talk about consolidating your power in a very interesting way, we have a new contender. Lady Hera Helmore consolidates her power by murdering a dozen of her siblings, with no rivals to question her methods and her father sealed in a medical stasis casket. The Imperial household falls into line behind her. Fearful of what Hera might do to them. Right. So now we're starting to see an establishment of potentially a strong character to resist Credo. Strong is one way to well, describe Hera. Um, I would describe her as like all the worst parts of psychotic mixed with a noble and limitless upbringing and a, you know, the unswerving loyalty of literally every enforcer on the planet. Oh, and also she has a spear that when she throws it at you, it boomerangs back to her. Right, so strong. She She ain't. Not strong. <laughs> <laughs> but before we touch on the sort of dramatic personae that have been introduced with this book, Nath, I want you to close off the conversation in regards to the actual events so far with that little read you've got there. Yeah, it's it's so beautifully summed up in the um, in the end of the book, uh, well, the end of the law section. It's literally better than the last like seven hours we've been talking. Yeah. <laughs> we should have just read this; it would have been a really short episode. Yeah, and I don't know if people would have enjoyed it, but you know, it would have probably been a lot more succinct and a lot less carriage hit holes. There um, would have been no Goliath with monocles, though. <laughs> uh, true, true, very true. So. In the last paragraph in the law section, 
It seemed in those months after the great darkness that the power of the Imperial House might be broken for good. As the rest of Necromunda carried on under the guidance of clans and guilds, its people dared for the first time to wonder if they needed the nobility at all. Yet millennia of tradition and obligation are not so easily cast off, as was to soon become apparent. The victories of the clan houses were to be temporary triumphs, and the crushing feudal weight of Necromunda was about to reassert itself. Lady Credo's rebellion might have found a foothold, but the resilience of her uprising and her allies was soon to be tested in the most bloody way imaginable. Rock'em, sock'em, robots. Yeah. I don't know what you mean by that. I don't know. I'm just trying to think of some horrible ways to test a rebellion. Oh, um, right. Musical yeah. chairs. Yes, absolutely. Musical right. chairs, but all the chairs are on fire. Yeah. Mm. Or an egg and spoon race. and Egg and spoon race, except the oh. egg is a frag grenade that will go off completely without warning. Yes, yeah. It doesn't matter if you drop it, you carry it. If you win, you could win the race, and that's it. It still goes off. Mm. Yeah, you're in mm. trouble, Credo. You're in big, t- big time trouble. So <clears throat> I guess this is, sums up very nicely um, everything that we've spoken about in regard to the population not needing the Imperial House and also um, the gangs, the clan houses, the ones who are actually bringing sort of peace and, and, and stability back to Necromunda. Um, and I just have a feeling that old Hera is going to cause quite a bit of a kerfuffle from what we see at the last little bit of that paragraph. Oh, man. Well, talking about not needing noble houses or noble families, like that's dangerous talk. Mm-hmm. Because let's be honest, those clan houses are all chomping at the bit, hoping to be the next uh, noble house, the, really. The next noble house. But mentioning Lady Hera, and I genuinely think we've been talking for like seven hours. There is a lot so far, so we will not spend too much time talking about these four characters. We've spoken about a couple of them a fair amount so far this episode, and I know we will be talking about them in upcoming episodes. So I want to start with Lady Hera. Now, I love the first descriptive line of her that you get in the Aranthian succession. So, as a description for her, this is all I'm going to say. Even by the grim standards of Necromunda's nobility, Hera is a sociopath and a backstabbing murderer. <laughs> so, fits the, the planet perfectly. Yeah. Fits the planet perfectly. Now, uh, from what we can see here, it, she was named as one of Lord Helmore's true-born children, apparently only because her mother, the consort Junos Gillian Yolanti, reminded him of his own mother. And others also believe it was because he recognised her talent for treachery early on and thought naming her true-born would keep his other children on their toes. <laughs> well, 
Unfortunately, it put about a dozen of his kids on their backs yeah. after she <laughs> murdered them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> on, on their toes. I just love the logic of it. It's like, yeah, yeah I'll put a, a murderous sociopath and backstabber as a trueborn. Oh, that failed. Shock horror. Well, he, he won't even know. He, he doesn't know. He got shanked, remember? Well, that's true. He might wake up. Who knows? He might wake up. But this woman is a combat monster. She's got a phase sword, that mm. boomerang power spear we mentioned before. Yeah, uh, true. Yep. You know, she's, she's got these those absolutely awesome watch skulls that hang on her, giving her a 360 vision arc. Oh, yeah. But this model, my God, it is just beautiful. And it's something I could probably just never consider painting because it is, it is just so intricate. And there's uh, if one of the absolute best paint jobs I've seen, funnily enough, was of both Lady Hera and Lady Credo, done by Hazard Stripes on Instagram. Just the scenic base on it is, yeah, chef's kiss. <laughs> I love their, their Lady Hera model because it looks properly over-the-top Imperial Gothic, like a little bit sort of batshit crazy way that the an, an Imperial might look, like an Imperial of nobility, you know, so. Yeah, ball um, gowns and ballistic weave. Exactly. There you go. Perfect. Exact, exact description of it. That's what I love about that miniature. It just, it, it's, it crosses the line between what's functional and what's not functional. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as you say, brilliant, brilliant miniature. Really, really worth a look um, if you haven't already seen it. Uh, who should we jump on next? Who, who do you want? I'm, I'm not even going to say take Vespa because you, <laughs> I, I could just see you you rolling your eyes so hard they literally fall down your throat. So <laughs> why don't you give us Athera and Styx? So Athera and Styx, two awesome characters. Uh, and One and a half. <laughs> All right, only counting Athera as a half. That's a bit mean. <laughs> um, <laughs> so Athera is actually the gene sister of Adina. And yeah. so the birthing of both Athera and Adina were, in a way, an attempt for the clan chemists or the chemist covens to attempt to cure the flesh curse within mm. uh, House Eshop. Obviously, it failed because it, it, it's still still an ever-present. Um, but uh, where Adina becomes a, you know, inspirational and enigmatic leader, Athera becomes the, the combat element and the, the brutal sort of militant arm of Adina that is able to just go through and stomp out faces and wreck Goliaths, well, unless they're giant stim monsters. Yeah, yeah, there's always the ever-present risk of being beaten by a stim monster. <laughs> so she's also Adina's a, a bodyguard as well. So champion, bodyguard. Um, I guess there's this sort of uh, underlying theory of, like, you know, they're sisters and, they're, and they're, they're, they're behaving as sisters, even though they are not quite sisters, if you know what I mean. Well, they're both clones of Queen Vodicia. 
So yeah. it's they, pseudo system. Yeah, they. I I agree with you. I like that comparison of you know yeah you know they they've got that sister sort of rivalry bond. They they obviously care for each other. Yeah. Yeah, and there's this, and there's this connection that they have, which we we mentioned earlier as well, that Adina is Athera is able to approach Adina in a way that nobody else can. Oh yeah. So just in terms of the the miniature itself, it's a very very cool looking miniature. Yeah. Um, it, it it sort of it strikes me as just a little, whereas here is like you know crazy over the top and perigothic, um. Athera, I don't know, just seems a little a little unbalanced in the actual in the actual design of the miniature. Are you with me on this or not? No, no, I'm I'm questioning. What do you mean? It's, do you know what does it for me, which I don't like? There's only one element. Her hair just doesn't sit right for me. It just doesn't look right. What are you talking about? Her I hair's like thick. No, the chain axe is cool. Plasma is to cool. The, the armor's all is absolutely fantastic. Oh, the yeah. armor is glorious. Yeah, all that's bonkers. Love it. But the, the hair, hair is so over the top. I love it. It just doesn't. It just doesn't look like it sits right. I think it because it comes out so far at the front. It just. You know, I'm looking at the the model uh, oh. from like the the profile, and yeah. then I look at the picture of her on page seventy five of the Cinderac Burning, and in the picture, her hair is much is much smaller. You are absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. It doesn't come out to the front as much. Uh, Do you know what I mean? It's almost. Uh, it's, it looks very rockabilly on the mo- on the model. Yes, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I would, and I know this would probably upset a few people. I'd go f- go as far as to actually make cut her bald. Make a bald, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think she look- would look a lot more dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. It just, I don't know. The, the rest of the miniature is brilliant and obviously sticks. Looks freaking cool. I would replace her hair with uh, the stuff from the Dark Elder. Uh, man, oh, come on. I have I forgotten this. Is it Layla Hesperax? The hair Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah, that little top knotty top thing that she's got with the yeah. spikes through it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd look really cool. That would be cool because it's got the length. It's got those cool hooks in it and that, mm. but it's not sort of foofing out the front. Yeah, and that's that's what I mean. That's what I, I I kind of want to get this miniature just to do that, like just to remove the hair and see if it improves it. Um, yeah, just because it's it's got everything going for it except for that one element. No, I like I, I like that. I like that. I like what you're saying. I'm picking up what you're putting down. Good, finally. Well, it's only taken seven hours. <laughs> I will jump on. To Vesper Menx Medina. Now, this gal. So we did mention earlier that she is, in fact, the equal youngest of Slate Medina's 12 daughters. And, yeah, she got into some trouble. She killed people she shouldn't have. 
she started fights with guilders and enforcers. So her father basically kicked her out to the wastes and said, you know, hey, try not to cause too much trouble. She winds up in Cinderac City, falls in with a bad crowd of Outland Orlocks, and literally just starts raiding convoys, and it's suspected to impress one of her older sisters. So Slate sends one of his own gang members, a fella by the name of Big Pete Plainsman, to look out for his little girl. She effectively schmoozes her way into Pete's good books and has him wrapped around her little finger to the point of Pete is actually the driver of her (laughs) custom Orlock quad. So Pete is driving, doing his best to keep them both alive, and Vespa is perched on the back of that thing like a vulture with her custom belt-fed missile launcher, Mischief. I, I love this Medina daughters. I get it. You don't like them. But well, let me just say one thing about this. Right? Yeah. And you mentioned his name. Big Pete Plainsman. Yeah, buddy. Right? It says it in the name. Plain. It's exactly oh. what she is, what they are. You can talk about these character. You can talk about this character all you want. I'll just probably just have a drinks break, and um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. I'm not interested at all. Really, you don't look at that model and just go like, "That's rad." Um, Would you I've... be happy if you if if I bought this model and I was like, "Hey, Nath, I don't want to use this uh, missile launcher." you would slap that on one of your Esher? Um, I think, I think I'd probably just buy the Ethereum model and keep the hair on it instead. It's, no, I'm, I, no, I wouldn't use that. And I'm, I just don't find that very impressive. Moving I on. don't find you very impressed. You know what? Okay. I I do like the model. I like a lot of things about the Orlocks. And I'm dreading doing that Orlock episode with you. Oh, I'm, look, I I will be I'll be willing to change. I I want to be convinced that they're good and not dull. And I'll I'll let you do it. I will let you do it, but oh. I guess be prepared to do a lot more talking on that episode than I will. I'll I'll convert you. I'll <laughs> convert you. So how about you jump in on Gorshiv? Gorshiv Hammerfist. Now we've already spoken a lot about him. Currently he's in the infirmary after having been beaten the daylights out of by Credo's general. Um, I want. I want to see that mini. The Credo's general. Yeah. Yes. I'm, I'm hanging out. Like you can't just write stuff in a book and then not bring anything in for it. You know what I mean? Like you can't just write that and just be like, oh yeah, you guys could just uh, deal without for the minute. Yeah. Just just hang out, kids. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, very annoying. Anyway, old Gorshiv. Um. Again, a, another cool miniature as well. But I guess we've, we've talked a lot about 
where he's come from. So, and you mentioned it earlier, Doc Shiv having created Gore Shiv basically um, as a giant stim monster, for use of a better term. Genuine Frankenstein's monster because oh. it's believed that he was grafted together from different parts from a dozen failed experiments. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. And then he just keeps in, he keeps injecting him with the chemicals to, to make mm. him grow bigger, to just see different effects. He Old Doc Shiv sounds like a mad doc from uh, Warhammer 40,000 Orcs. Yes. You know, just yeah. like, oh, I'll just bolt this onto you. I'll inject this into you. Let's see what's happening. Oh, it didn't work? That's okay. We'll uh, get you to just punch through a couple of plate steel walls. That'll get the rage out of you. Well, Doc Shiv genuinely described as this tiny, almost insignificant character who just has the unswerving and limitless loyalty of this enormous monster. She's like a tiny Dr. Frankenstein, yeah. but actually a bad person. Well, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's probably, it probably is an Escher, I'd imagine, who oh. has, yeah, who's just testing out all their nonsense. They're like, oh, yeah, I'll take these cams, I'll pump them into this like, Goliath and see what we can get from it. But I will no, say... that's awesome. Imagine if she was, yeah. if she was a chemist who'd just been like, I want to make, I want to make, like, Goliath, oh. Yeah, it's like the Goliath, the concept of the Goliath project is not dead. We just need to make them bigger, stronger, better, more aggressive, you know. We need to start actually making space marines. Oh, God. She's like a tiny female Fabius Bile. Exactly, yeah. Get out. (laughs) That's sick. Speaking of sick, I will say that Gorshif's hammer, the one one that he carries in his right hand is... Freaking cool ass. Oh, man, yeah. Such a great-looking piece. You could see that on any any Astartes model or even just a... Do you know what I'd see that on? Like a... um, What do you call it? Like a Redemptionist Priest or something like that? Oh, dude, yeah. It's probably a little bit too big, but it looks absolutely nice. It's that big, actually, that you could probably even use it like as a ram on the front of a vehicle, just because, and it just looks so aggressive, that huge skull face on there. Yep, everything about his model just oh. screams punishment. Like, his cloak is this, I was gonna say, yeah. this like, skeleton and remain of some horrific monster that I'm guessing he's beaten to death at some point then he's got the he's got like an axe on his belt he's also got a pistol he's just dripping with chain mail and trophies and There's a lot of skulls on him actually a lot of skulls it'd make the, a good uh cornate worshiper the dude is give like imagine this guy uh in front of a gang of um uh what are they called the jackals I should oh, yes. right there. Yeah. Slap him with jackals and do like a corn worshipping Goliath gang. It, it's it's very like obvious oh. a corn worshipping Goliath gang, but it's also freaking cool too. Yeah, you know? it's so good. Yeah. No, he's a great looking miniature. Um 
And so, yeah, I, I will say three of the four characters out of this book are just absolutely <laughs> worthwhile. Yeah, you don't you don't like Lady Hera? <laughs> um, okay, you. I'll, I'll I'll make you listen to uh, the the episode again, so you can just pick up exactly which one I don't like. <laughs> well, there's one character I want to talk about before we close this bad boy off. I want to talk about Lady Credo. Now, and we've talked about her so much. What? We've talked, we have talked about her so much. But I would like to throw out a wild theory that I genuinely believe is 100% accurate. Is this a carrieted level theory? This is not of the same level as carrieted. Okay. Uh, it's like it's close, but I wouldn't say it's the same. So hit, hit me with it. What is it? Remember how she effectively came out of nowhere? She had she specifically mentioned that she had made a promise to Vidicia in regards to being there in time of need or mayhaps she's had a an agreement with House Escher that they maybe they have done a favor for her and she needs to pay back. Now, she knew a lot of things about House Escher, and when she walked up to that throne, she dragged her fingers across that three bladed icon, the yeah. symbol of House Escher. Yeah, and it was a drop of her blood that allowed the throne to open. This might be wackadoo. But I think Lady Credo is one of the Blades. I think she is one of the original three sisters that made up House Escher. So strap yourself in because I'm going to break this bad boy down for you. Okay, go ahead. So we know that Celestria, Sedrina, and Solarana all created clones of themselves. And... We know that randomly throughout history, these clones have either been found or accidentally activated when an apprentice leans on a wall and hits <laughs> the big red button. And, you know, do you remember that Escher that fled, was it Hive Arcos? Yes, after it was Arcos. The, yep, after the uprising and was, went, went back to the house and was like, hey, um, hmm. I've got news about this and that woman was just taken by enforcers? Yep, yep. Okay. Now, Lady Credo is described as an excellent fighter. Now, it specifically says that Lady Credo is a formidable warrior in her own right. Her skill with a power saber has cut down countless challenges to her cause, while her speed and resilience speak to hidden biomechanical implants or gene enhancement of the highest order. The Blades were all experts in close combat with their bladed weapons and would actively fight either for or against any cause as long as it served themselves. Now, okay. what's to say that Lady Credo, or let's say um, if she's Celestria, Sedrina, or Solorana, has not made an agreement 
with the owners of that heptagram. The heptagram, which routinely is mentioned through this book, also talks about the seventh house. And on top of the seventh house, the seventh great guild. This is the Mercator Viritas, the Guild of Oaths, sometimes called the Heptagonian or Seventh Great Guild. What's to say? This blade, now known as Lady Credo, has been sitting around either cloning herself and her memories for thousands of years and watching what the Helmore family has done betraying their original oaths that the Blades agreed to when they chose to become part of Martek Helmayer's new dynasty. Uh, so what my question was going to be for you, don't they have a sworn allegiance to the Helmores? But that makes sense what you're saying, if they've corrupted it. Exactly. So Martek Helmayer agreed to whatever he needed to to bring these hives and bring these houses under his control. Remember, there were dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of houses way back when. Now there's seven minor, seven major, and countless little ones that mean nothing to nobody. Yeah, true. I believe Lady Credo is one of the blades who married that Constantine Credo just for his name, because she needed to start being more active to bring followers to her cause. And she couldn't be turning around saying, I'm Solarana, because all of a sudden the Escher is sitting there going, whoa, 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 hold on, yeah. crazy. Yeah. Lady, Lady Credo is one of the blades. She may, I don't believe she is one of the original blades. I believe she is a clone. Right. She is the prime consciousness of one of the blades, and her intellect has travelled down the millennia to now, where she is starting this uprising against House Helmore in league with particular groups we haven't spoken of yet, because she sees herself as one of the three as the logical successor and leader of Necromunda. Right, that was my next question. So <clears throat> she's not looking to supplant him, the, the Helmors or Gerontius with anybody else other than herself. Other than herself? Mm. Or mayhaps someone she serves that she may have decided is worthy of ruling. I don't want to go into specifics, well, but it is the Aranthian succession. <laughs> so, so well, save it for we, the next seven-hour episode. We might say, God damn, if the next episode is... I'm, anyone who's managed to sit down and listen through this thing, I bet when you went to work this morning thinking... I'll throw uh, my headphones in, you know, just have a casual little bit of listening to a podcast, you know, while I, while I do my work. I'm assuming you're sitting there now crying, you know, <laughs> you've, you've got your arms, your knees tucked up against your chest, your arms 
hugging them oh so tight to yourself because you're sitting there going, will these two just finish this episode? And I think we should, dude, because I... I, I, I think so too. I am tired. I am finally at a point where I'm sick of my own voice, which is not good because that never happens. I love my own voice. So, closing thoughts. Closing thoughts. I This book is great for laying the foundations, but I need to know what those those soldiers are with the Arco pistols and the Arco oh rifles. God, yeah. I, I need to know who Lady Credo's general is. All those are massive talking points. Um, I also feel like the Delacroix, as much as we have mentioned them enough, just don't seem to be involved as much as they should be for something so global and something so uh, underhanded and built upon ridiculous schemes. I think the Delac are doing what the Delac do. I think they are yep. watching, they are waiting, they are gathering information. They don't need to openly strike against me. you got to remember, remember when they took out all those informants and spies? Yeah, that, yeah. That was, just, from what I remember from today, now, tonight, I suppose. <laughs> From what I remember, that was the bloodiest they got during this conflict. There yeah. was that time where a couple of their holdings got attacked and that, but like I said, that happened. They sprinkled a few dead bodies around and they looked at their agents and were like, all right, good, well done. Go oh. tell everyone you killed the Delark. Yeah, uh, okay. The, the Delark yeah. haven't done much, and I think that's on purpose. Uh, the corridor also didn't do much. We saw a little bit of them here and there. That uh, deacon that turned himself into the walking bonfire. Yeah, I, I loved him. Uh, <laughs> and and obviously the the corridor just charging all those corpse grinder cultists. That was amazing. Yeah, that uh, and yeah. Well, so I think yeah, they've definitely done a lot more than the Delacroix, but. Um... It's also just another way for me to get the word Delacroix in to the episode. So that's some real deliquation thinking you got going on. Yeah, there. it is, isn't it? <laughs> well, who else? Vansar really haven't done much. Um, we we had one gal teleport herself to our Lord and Savior Corn, and then a bunch of other ones broke into some security systems and stole a bunch of stuff. So. Honestly, I don't know what my house is doing, but I'm assuming it's some real, real big brain moves. Yeah, we'll say it's that. We'll say it's that for sure. <laughs> well, we'll close this one off here, and we're going to do it with a quote. This particular quote is actually very easily accessible to everyone because... It literally is on the first page of the Orantian Succession, book one, Cinderac Burning. And it's kind of an ominous one. It's not attributed to anyone. When the dark orb of Somnus stains the sky, when the line of Helmore meets its end, when the old blood returns to claim its due, the Heptagonian Covenant is begun. 
And that was our latest episode of the Underhive Law Keepers podcast. I am Spaniel, and on behalf of the Law Keeper team, thank you for listening. Please follow us on our social media pages available in the show notes, and don't forget to follow and review us on your preferred podcast platform. As always, if you have questions, complaints, corrections, or if you have overthrown your oppressive overlords and now serve in the armies of rebellion, please reach out to us at underhivelawkeepers at gmail.com. Thanks.